How do you do? Mr. Carl Emily feels it would be a little unkind to present this picture without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh, well, we've warned you. What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Horror Cast. This is episode number 28. In this episode, we are going strong on our series that we have titled Monster Palooza. And this is our second show of our Universal Monster series reviews. In their respective release order is the way we're going to talk about them. So we're going to get into some Frankenstein. So since we have already cracked the coffin open on the top three Dracula films from Universal... We are now going to electrocute Frankenstein back to life for what I believe is one of the best original trilogies in all of film. And that's not just horror. See what I did there, guys? Electrocution, cracked coffin open. <laughs> okay, it's a little corny, but anyway. These three films of Fra- are, of course, Frankenstein, the sequel, The Bride of Frankenstein, and another sequel, The Son of Frankenstein, or it's also known as the Karloff Trilogy. I am your host this episode, Walshy, podcasting from my room of horrors in northeastern Pennsylvania. And now let me bring in the best co-hosts in the world. And I do want to say I apologize if my voice is breaking and cracking. Had a sore throat for a little while, and I literally had no voice just three days ago. So sorry about that if it does come up and it's a little annoying. First person, I am very happy to have her take on our show. Not only a talented person on and off the air, she is one of YouTube's favorite people in the horror world. Recording from beautiful Los Angeles, California. Welcome, horror gal Susan. How have you been? Oh, I've been hanging in there. It's actually getting warm here, <laughs> finally. So, yeah, I'm super excited because Frankenstein is one of my all-time favorites in the world, like you said, not genre-specific, just in general. So I am super excited about today, you guys, and we're all here, so that makes me very happy. (laughs) I know. It's nice to hear your voice again. It seems like me and you always have something going on. I uh, know. (laughs) We've had had chaos. (laughs) We have had like the chaotic, like 2016 has been stalking us into 2017. (laughs) It's true. It is true. But I got to say, you said it's warming up there. What was is it like 60 degrees and no, now it's, it's like, going to go to 90? Like no, it's like 82. Oh right my, now. listen, <laughs> tomorrow we are getting in my area, probably Maryland. I don't know who else, but in my area, we are getting 18 to 20 inches of snow. What? 
Are yes. You, no, are you serious? No milk, no eggs, no nothing <sighs> in our area. It's a total freak out. But let's talk some horror anyway. Glad to have you on. Super. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Yep. I'll, have to co- I'll have to come out just to see some snow then for a while. I do miss snow. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's going to be crazy. I'm sick of it. I'm ready to get to some California weather. <laughs> All we'll right. Sw- we'll swap out for a week. <laughs> I'd love to. All right. Next, let's bring in the man that doesn't stop, the machine and workhorse of our show, beaming in from Southern Maryland, my buddy Mark Nato. What is up, dude? Me. Podcast. <laughs> Good. <laughs> oh, just gotta love old Frankenstein. Hey, man, it's, it's good. It's good to be here. <laughs> it's good to talk about some Frankenstein tonight. These are some great movies, man. So I'm I'm excited about talking to them. And and I did want to say about your voice cracking and squeaking, man. It happens to all of us. It really does. Uh, as Peter Brady once said, when it's time to change. You've got to rearrange. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, the iconic, it, it's, always it, insightful Peter Brady. Yeah, yes, it's, you it, pulled it, the best of the best there. Pu- puberty is uh, is one of those things that we all we all face. Hey, and, I'm uh, just getting through it, guys. <laughs> no, no there, while she is I'm the old. youngest, I think while she is the youngest of, of all of us. So yeah, I'm know. just hitting puberty, guys. So if my voice is cracking, I'm all you know. I'll get through it. I'll get through it. I'm learning things. All right, glad to have you on, Mark. Okay, last but certainly not least, the author of the best horror blog I have ever read, called The Revenant Reviews, recording from Connecticut, The Revenant Vin. Welcome, buddy. Hey, what's up? What's uh, up, man? I'll be getting that snow the day after you are. We're, oh. we're supposed to be getting about a foot, so, uh, yeah. It's, oh, oh, when's it going to stop? I know, and I'm a teacher, and we're, we're going to be going late to... Oh. Late into June, you know, to school, which sucks because our school doesn't have air conditioning. So oh, and, and I don't want I don't want these snow days. Oh um, man, oh <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, I'm excited to be talking these Frankenstein films. These are my favorite Universal monster films. Is that uh, so right? I'm, yeah, I'm really excited to be diving into them. Sweet. Okay, guys. Now that we got the co-hosts in. And just like our last Universal series review, the format is a little switched up from our regular shows. For the fact that we are covering three very famous and loved films. So it will basically be all about the films and the history. So not a lot of anything else, but I think that's the beautiful part of these shows. Okay, so now let's get in to Frankenstein. So I'm going to bring in, just like our last episode, which had a very amazing, insightful essay. So Revenant Vin, what do you have for Frankenstein? Um, well... I have something that I I warned I warned the co-hosts here before we started recording. It is a little bit long-winded. Uh, I wrote it yesterday morning. Um, didn't have a lot of time to really edit and pare it down yet. So hopefully listeners will kind of just stick with me as I go through. Um, but you know, uh, Mark, you you would ask me if I would last episode if I'd write something about Dracula, and you know, you, you would kind of said something about um like vampires and Dracula in popular culture. So I tried to keep it with that. Yes. Um, and then with Frankenstein, I really wasn't sure how I wanted to approach it. Uh, but I realized that with discussing these universal films, we'd be talking an awful lot about men. Uh, men working in secret to create life without input, uh, consent, or the assistance of women. Um, so I felt appropriate. I felt it was appropriate, uh, especially given that it was March, 
um, which is also Women's History Month, uh, to take a look really at the creation of Frankenstein through the experiences and inspirations of its creator, Mary Shelley. Um, and I'd like to try to bring some historical context to the tale, um, kind of as it stood before the Universal films, and to speak a little bit about what came after them. Um, so hopefully I can offer kind of a compliment and contrast to those films. Uh, so before I really dive into my writing, what I'd like to do is begin where Mary Shelley began, um, with an excerpt from her novel. And this beginning of the novel is actually the first thing she wrote down, uh, in the book. So bear with me for this, this portion of the novel here. It begins... It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me, that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning, the rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out, when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe? Or how delineate the wretch whom with such infinite pains and care I endeavored to form? His limbs were in proportion, and I had selected his features as beautiful. Beautiful, great God. His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of a pearly whiteness. But these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost of the same color as the dun white sockets in which they were set, his shriveled complexion and straight black lips. The different accidents of life are not so changeable as the feelings of human nature. I had worked hard for nearly two years for the sole purpose of infusing life into an inanimate, op an inanimate body. For this, I had deprived myself of rest and health. I had desired it with an ardor that far exceeded moderation. But now that I had finished, the beauty of the dream vanished, and the breathless, and breathless horror and disgust filled my heart. Unable to endure the aspect of the being I had created, I rushed out of the room and continued a long time traversing my bedchamber, unable to compose my mind to sleep. At length, lassitude succeeded to, t to the tumult I had before endured. I threw myself on the bed in my clothes, endeavoring to seek a few moments of forgetfulness. But it was in vain. And I slept, indeed, but it was a disturbed... It was dis but I was disturbed by the wildest dreams. I thought I saw Elizabeth in the bloom of health, walking in the streets of Ingolstadt. Delighted and surprised, I embraced her. But as I imprinted the first kiss on her lips, they became livid with the hue of death. Her features appeared to change, and I thought that I held the corpse of my dead mother in my arms. A shroud enveloped her form, and I saw the grave worms crawling in the folds of the flannel. I started from my sleep with horror. A cold dew covered my forehead. My teeth chattered, and every limb became convulsed. When, by the dim and yellow light of the moon, as it forced its way through the window shutters, I beheld the wretch, the miserable monster whom I had created. He held up the curtain of the bed, and his eyes, if eyes they may be called, were fixed on me. His jaw opened, he muttered some inarticulate sounds, while a grin wrinkled on his, wrinkled his cheeks. He might have spoken, but I did not hear. One hand was stretched out, seemingly to detain me, but I escaped and rushed downstairs. I took refuge in the courtyard belonging to the house which I inhabited, where I remained during the rest of the night, walking up and down in the greatest agitation, listening attentively, catching and fearing each sound as if it were to announce the approach of the demoniacal corpse to which I had so miserably given life. So begins Chapter 5 of Mary Shelley's seminal debut novel, Frankenstein, begun when Shelley was 18 years old and first published anonymously when she was 20 in 1818. What I love about the passage is not only the description of the monster, but of the ambiguity of its actions. One can easily take Victor Frankenstein's interpretation at his word that the creature was acting in a threatening manner and wished to accost him. 
but one may easily read desperate, confused pleading in the monster's open mouth and outstretched hand. More on that later. The road to the novel is nearly as legendary as its subject, and its examination, I feel, helps to shed light on the story's creation. Mary Shelley was born August 30th, 1797, by two influential thinkers, the radical political philosopher William Godwin, whose writing, among other things, criticized aristocratic privilege, and Mary Wollstonecraft, who wrote extensively of the French Revolution and most famously penned A Vindication of the Rights of Women, of Women, sorry, in 1792, where she argued for the equality of intellect between the sexes, and that women were, should be treated as rational beings and given the same educational opportunities as men. Sadly, the placenta broke and became infected during delivery, and Wellsoncraft died less than a month after Mary came into the world. Left to raise Mary on his own, Godwin encouraged her to take part in the lively and provocative political, philosophical, and scientific discussions that occurred within the house with a host of radical thinkers, and was given access to a bursting library, granting young Mary an advanced, if informal, educational foundation. In 1814, she met the radical poet Percy B. Shelley, a devotee of her father and a regular visitor, who was then estranged from his wife. They began to meet secretly at Wollstonecraft's grave and quickly fell deeply in love. Despite Percy being the ideal embodiment of Godwin's expressed ideals, he disapproved of the relationship and essentially turned his back on his daughter, to her great surprise and disappointment. Godwin was in terrible debt and knew that Percy would not be able to help him if they married. Mary and Percy left England for Europe and soon found themselves penniless and pregnant. When they arrived... Uh, sorry, when they returned to England, Percy was tending to the birth of his son uh, from his first wife, while Mary was left to care for their two-month-old premature newborn, with frequent visits by Percy's friend, Thomas Jefferson Hogg. On 6th March, she wrote to Hogg, My dearest Hogg, my baby is dead. Will you come see me as soon as you can? I wish to see you. It was perfectly well when I went to bed. I awoke in the night to give it suck. It appeared to be sleeping so quietly that I would not wake it. It was dead then, but we did not find out that out till morning. From its appearance, it evidently died of convulsions. Will you come? You are so calm, my creature, and Shelley is afraid of a fever from the milk. For I am no longer a mother now. Mary suffered bouts of acute depression after and had haunting visions of her baby. Nevertheless, she conceived again and gave birth to a son, William, named after her father, in January of 1816. That summer, referred to as the Haunted Summer, Mary, Percy, their child, and Mary's stepsister, Claire Clamont, stayed with the libertine romantic poet, Lord Byron, whose flamboyant lifestyle, aristocratic excesses, and sexual fluidity made him notorious on Lake Geneva in Switzerland. As evident to his reputation, Claremont was at the time pregnant with Byron's child. Byron's young physician, John Palladori, was also present. The penultimate evening is depicted with mixed success in the 1987 film Gothic. In, 18th, in the 1831 edition of Frankenstein, Shelley wrote about that summer and of the circumstances of her horror novel's germination. She wrote, In the summer of 1816, we visited Switzerland and became the neighbors of Lord Byron. At first, we spent our pleasant hours on the lake or wandering on its shores, but it proved a wet, ungenial summer, and incessant rain often confined us for days to the house. Some volumes of ghost stories, translated from the German into French, fell into our hands. We will each write a ghost story, said Lord Byron, and his proposition was acceded to. There were four of us. Poor Palladori had some terrible idea about a skull-headed lady who was so punished for peeping through a keyhole to see what to see, I forget. Uh, something very shocking and wrong, of course. He did not know what to do with her and was obliged to dispatch her to the tombs of the Capulets, the only place for which she was fitted. 
The illustrious poets also, annoyed by the platitude of prose, speedily relinquished the congenial task. I busied myself to think of a story, a story to rival those which had excited us to this task, one which would speak to the mysterious fears of our nature and awaken thrilling horror, one to make the reader dread to look round, to curdle the blood, and quicken the beatings of the heart. If I had not accomplished these things, my ghost story would be unworthy of its name. I thought and pottered vainly. I felt that blank incapability of invention, which is the greatest misery of authorship, when dull nothing replies to our anxious invocations. Have you thought of a story? I was asked each morning, and each morning I was forced to reply with a mortifying negative. Many and long were the conversations between Lord Byron and Percy Shelley, to which I was devout but nearly silent listener. During one of these, various philosophical doctrines were discussed, and among others the nature of the principle of life and whether there was any probability of its ever being discovered and communicated. They talked of the experiments of Dr. Darwin, who preserved a small piece of vermicelli uh, in a glass case, till by some extraordinary means it began to move with voluntary motion. Not thus, after all, would life be given. Perhaps a corpse would be reanimated. Galvanism had given token of such things. Perhaps the component parts of a creature might be manufactured, brought together, and imbued with vital warmth. Night waned upon this talk, and even the witching hour had gone by before I retired to rest. When I placed my head on my pillow, I did not sleep, nor could I be said to think. My imagination, unbidden, possessed, and guided me, gifting the successive images that arose in my mind with a vividness far beyond the usual bounds of reverie. I saw, with shut eyes but acute mental vision, I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out, and then, on the working of some powerful engine, show signs of life, and stir with an uneasy, half-vital motion. Frightful it must be, for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavor to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. His success would terrify the artist, and he would rush away from his odious handiwork, horror-stricken. He would hope that, left to itself, the slight spark which he had communicated would fade, that this thing, which had received such imperfect animation, would subside into dead matter. Uh, and he might sleep in the belief that the silence of the grave would quench forever the transient existence of the hideous corpse which he had looked upon as the cradle of life. He sleeps, but he is awakened. His eye, he opens his eyes. Behold the horrid thing that stands at his bed, opening his curtains, looking on him with yellow, watery, bespeculative eyes. I opened mine in terror. The idea so possessed my mind that I th a thrill of fear ran through me, and I wished to exchange the ghastly image from my fancy for the realities around. I see them still, the very room, the dark parquet the closed shutters with the moonlight struggling through and the sense that I had the glassy lake and the white high Alps were beyond. I cannot see, I cannot so easily get rid of my hideous phantom. Still it haunted me. I must try to think of something else. I recurred to my ghost story, my tiresome, unlucky ghost story. Oh, if I could only contrive one which would, uh, one which would frighten my reader as much as I myself have been frightened that night. Swift as light and as cheering was the idea that broke in upon me. I have found it. What terrified me will terrify others, and I need only describe the specter which I had haunted my midnight pillow. On the morrow, I announced that I had thought of a story. Frankenstein proved to be one of the literature's most influential works. Shelley combined gothic horror with romantic sensibilities, and in the process crafted one of the earliest examples of science fiction. It should be noted that Shelley was far more conventional in 1831 than the young spitfire she had been in 1816 when she began the novel. Audiences have overwhelmingly read the tale as a cautionary one about the consequences of man playing God. In a 1978 introductory essay to the novel, Stephen King even writes, quote, The evil in Frankenstein is suggested by its subtitle, The Modern Prometheus. Prometheus, bringer of life and 
chained to a stone, his eyes pecked out by ravens, punishment for stealing what belonged to the gods. Frankenstein comes to a similar end, not in fire, but in ice. For his temerity in usurping the power which belongs to God alone, the power to create life, end quote. With all due respect to Mr. King, I can't entirely agree with this assessment. Even despite Shelley's mentions and the moral horrors of mocking the, quote, creator of the world, end quote, and even her depiction in the introduction of 1935's The Bride of Frankenstein, where she claims her wishes were to, quote, write a moral lesson of the punishment that befell a moral man who dared to emulate God, end quote. Evidence suggests such concerns were likely far from Mary's mind at the time, though she would have been aware of the debates. Uh, both of Mary's parents, whom she strove to emulate, were non-believers, and Percy Shelley had been expelled from Oxford for writing the pamphlet The Necessity of Atheism, and he even lost custody of his children from his first wife in the courts because of his atheist views. Bringing it back to Prometheus, he is a titan whom the romantics admired. In 1820, Percy Shelley would publish what many consider his masterpiece, the lyrical play Prometheus Unbound, which depicts the titan as a hero, not a cautionary figure. And much of Frankenstein was written via conversations between Mary and Percy. Additionally, Prometheus was not punished for creating man, which he did, but for stealing fire to try to care for him. Victor creates a new species of life, but unlike the Titan, he has not the responsibility to care for him. Instead of a moral lesson against man trying to act as God, Mary was actually more concerned with the benefits of the changing structure of the contemporary scientific community, which was growing more organized and responsible, in contrast to the more haphazard and undisciplined legacy of the Renaissance natural philosophers. In the novel, Victor Frankenstein is influenced by these Renaissance thinkers, who mix natural philosophy with solitary pursuits and occultism, and shows little patience for modern science. Like earlier natural philosophers, Victor works alone and for personal glory, away from the restraining judgments of other scientists and society at large. Herein lies his folly. During the 1810s, Mary was well aware of the, changings, of the changes going on uh, through the scientific community, where peer review was being stressed as well as responsible use of science to benefit society. Victor's sin is not that he wishes to, make, to take power from God, for within traditional national philosophy, if such knowledge were naturally attain, attainable by man, it would only serve to know God better for nothing can be taken from God. It is instead that he works divorced from pure judgment and is motivated by the desire for fame. Other influences in the story include The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, published in 1798, and especially Milton's Paradise Lost, published in 1667, a verse from which Mary opens her novel's title, title page. Uh, it reads, Did I request thee, maker, from my clay to mold me man? Did I solicit thee from darkness to promote me? End quote. In Milton's tale, Silton is depicted as a classical hero, and Frankenstein's creation reads the epic poem and identifies with the character. It should be noted that Percy Shelley, in his introduction to Prometheus Unbound, writes, quote, The only imaginary being resembling to any degree Prometheus is Satan, end quote. Both embody the spirit of rebellion. And so such a view can serve to further blur the line as to which character the novel subtitle refers. Is it the creator or his creation? Given Mary's history of loss and grief, it is perhaps not surprising that Frankenstein deals so powerfully with such themes as birth, death, and immortality. The creature is motherless, just as was Mary. The creature seeks the approval of his creator, just as Mary sought the approval of her father. Further tragedies would no doubt influence a novel as it was written. William Godwin had given his children happy childhoods, but as debts continued to grow, he grew increasingly angrier. Mary and Claire had escaped the household, but they left behind their half-sister, Fanny, who was left to deal with the brunt of his bitterness. She committed suicide later that year, in October of 1816. On December 30th, the pregnant corpse of Percy's first wife was found floating in a lake in London. She had drowned herself. After the novel was published, the cruel fates were not done with Mary. As she and Percy toured Italy, both of her two children died, and Mary's severe depression alienated her from Percy 
who wrote in his notebook, My dearest Mary, wherefore hast thou gone? And left me in this dreary world alone. Thy form is here indeed, a lovely one, but thou art fled, gone down a dreary road that leads to sorrow's most obscure abode. For thine own sake I cannot follow thee. Do thou return for mine. They did succeed in having one more child in 1819, who lived to old age, but Percy Shelley would not live to see his son grow. He drowned at sea three years later in 1822 at the age of 29. Mary would continue to write novels, but Frankenstein remains the most powerful and lasting of her creations, written at a time of emotional turmoil and intellectual daring. The earliest critical receptions were largely negative, likely from the novel's unconventional contents, but also stemming in part from speculation as to the anonymous author's identity. When Mary's name was printed in the 1822 edition, many dismissed the novel in the pretense it was authored by a woman. One writer in the British Critic writes, The writer is, we understand, a female. This is an aggravation of that which is the prevailing fault of the novel. But if our authoress can forget the gentleness of her sex, it is no reason that we sh- why we should. And we shall therefore dismiss the novel without further comment. Still others discuss her only in terms of her not reaching the heights of her esteemed father. Nevertheless, over time's recognition as a major literary achievement and of Mary Shelley as an artist of stature rapidly increased. And despite what the critics spewed, the novel was immediately popular. In 1823, Richard Brinsley Peake's adaptation of the work uh, adapted the work for the stage, entitling it Presumption, or The Fate of Frankenstein, and it was seen by Mary Shelley and her father at the English Opera House. Another play followed in 1826. Mary Shelley's final years were characterized by bouts of illness and paralysis. A brain tumor was suspected. She died in 1851 at the age of 53. Nearly six decades later, the first film adaptation was produced by Edison Studios in 1910, and it starred Charles Ogle in a fright wig and padded outfit as the creature, describing itself as, quote, a liberal adaptation of Mary Shelley's famous story, end quote, the plot takes more inspiration from Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which was published in 1886. The Edison Kinetogram explains, quote, in making the film, the Edison Company has tried to eliminate all actual repulsive situations and to concentrate its endeavors upon the mystic and psychological problems that are to be found in this weird tale. Whenever, therefore, the film differs from the original story, it is purely with the idea of elimination what would be repulsive to a moving, moving picture audience, end quote. In this version, the creature is created with fiery chemicals and is ultimately a counterpart of his creator, finally disappearing into the nether when beholding his own reflection. Two more now-lost films were made in 1915 and 1920. Following the immense success of Dracula in 1931, Universal Studios quickly went about adapting Frankenstein for the screen, this time held by James Whale. Combining the aesthetics of German Expressionism with American Romanticism, and taking obvious influence from 1920's The Golem and 1926's The Magician, which both starred Paul Degener, it is considered one of the era's greatest horror films. Uh, Will Will changes much from Shelley's creation. Instead of a highly intelligent and loquacious creature, Frankenstein's monster is childlike, mute, and lumbering. Still, however, Will retains an understanding sympathy for it and lays at least part of the blame for its more violent behavior at the feet of its neglectful creator. The makeup by Jack Pierce and performance by Boris Karloff made the character undeniably iconic, even overshadowing, overshadowing Shelley's creation and the popular imagination. Well followed with a sequel in 1935, The Bride of Frankenstein, giving audiences an even more artistic, artistically accomplished achievement, giving moments of levity, but also of horror, and bestowing another icon onto the world, even though Elsa Lanchester who plays the bride, is only on screen for the final minutes. Nevertheless, her striped, towering hair, wrapped clothing, and bird-like stares are instantly recognizable. The creature go on to appear 
the creature, meaning Frankenstein's monster, will go on to appear in six more Universal films. Son of Frankenstein, 1939, with Karloff. The Ghost of Frankenstein in 42, with Lon Chaney Jr. Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman in 1943, with Bela Lugosi. House of Frankenstein in 1944, House of Dracula in 1945, and Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein in 1948, all with Glenn Strange. Hammer Films revived The Doctor and Monster in 1957 with The Curse of Frankenstein, with Christopher Lee playing the creature and Peter Cushing playing the malevolent creator. Six more films would follow. The story has appeared in countless other forms, some serious and some comical, some successful and others not, including I Was a Teenage Frankenstein in 1957, Young Frankenstein in 1974, The Rocky Horror Picture Show in 1975, Frankenhooker 1990, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein 1994, the Tim Burton films Edward Scissorhands from 1990 and Frankenweenie from 2012, and Victor Frankenstein, the simply named Frankenstein, both from 2015. This list, which is only a fraction of the adaptations or parodies which have spawned from Shelley's nightmare at the Villa Diodati, speaks to the longevity and power of the source material. To return once again to Stephen King, in his book Dance Macabre, he identifies Frankenstein's story, along with Dracula and the Wolfman, as archetypal tales which have had the greatest influence on 20th century, and we can add 21st century, horror. He refers to it as the thing without a name, horrific creations with run amok, which run amok against the status quo and our innate and no doubt highly prejudiced sense of decency. The name Frankenstein has itself become an adjective to describe conspicuously assembled parts, or Frankenstein's monster as being a creation which has dangerously been loose from the control of its creator. But beyond this, Mary Shelley's story, and certainly James Whale's films, allow us the opportunity to look into ourselves at the risk of seeing a monstrous reflection. Our own hubris, irresponsibility, and indeed apathy create and allow to persist horrors the world over, from genocides to H-bombs to the extinction of species to the ability to all too easily change a channel when confronted with uncomfortable truths. When we look upon Karloff's face in the monster makeup, what do we see? The mistake of one man who dared to challenge God's authority? I hope not. After all, people create life all the time. My wife and I have done it twice, though admittedly she did all the hard work. I see a challenge. Can we treat that which we don't understand, which to us fails to fit within the fragile molds of beauty to which we've been conditioned, with kindness? Can we resist crushing the spider, which unknowingly surprises us in the bathroom tiles? Can we look upon the other with compassion and recognize its outstretched hand, not as a threat, but as an opportunity to be more than our instinctual programming to fight or to flee? Frankenstein failed this test, and the result was the hateful destruction of everything he loved. Hopefully we and our children will fare better. I hope that we grow beyond the angry mobs who swarm the structures in Frankenstein films and see a kindred intelligence and emotion in the eyes of those who we don't immediately recognize as being a part of our tribe, whether political, cultural, or special. My hope is only very loosely tethered to my knowledge of history and the monsters that mankind can become, and it threatens to unravel each day. Frederick Nietzsche wrote in Beyond Good and Evil in 1886, quote, He who fights with monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. And if you gaze long into the, an abyss, the abyss also gazes into you, end quote. In The Bride of Frankenstein, Dr. Pretorius toasts to a new world of gods and monsters. From my view, gods and monsters, we already are. And that's going to do it for this show. <laughs> he has covered it all. Good I'm work. blaming I'm blaming Vin for my weight gain. Dude, <laughs> I am speechless. I Good just job. ate an entire sleeve of thin mint cookies. Damn <laughs> <laughs> nice work, Vin. Nice work. Wow. Thank you. Very nice. That's why you're on here, my I know man. it's long. 
When this dead hand moves, the monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. <laughs> to shock women into uncontrolled hysteria. Elizabeth! To prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about. The spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. Don't touch that! All right, guys, now let's get into some IMDB information on Frankenstein, uh, which I think Vin basically covered, but, you know, this is the gig. So, 1931, it holds a 7.9 star out of 10 review on IMDB. Uh, it is a w- roughly one hour, ten minute film, considered a drama horror slash sci-fi, released on November twenty first, nineteen thirty one, in the USA. And the director, of course, is the iconic James Whale. The writers is John L. Balderston, based upon the composition by, of course, Mary Shelley, from the novel by Piercy B. Shelley, which is her, of course. And it stars, okay, Colin Clive as Henry Frankenstein, Mae Clark as Elizabeth, John Bowles as Victor Moritz, and we got Boris Karloff as the monster, or which is really cool as just a question mark in the film. We got Edward Van Sloan as Dr. Waldman, Frederick Kerr as Baron Frankenstein, Dwight Fry as Fritz. Lionel Belmore as the Burgermaster, Marilyn Harris as Little Maria. And that's all I'm going to name for now. So, Mark, you did a cool little thing here uh, with the budget. So, let's get it. Well, I thought that I would uh, update things for people because when you're talking about a movie that was released in 1931, when you give budgets and things uh, in, in theater grosses from 1931, it doesn't really put things into perspective. So let, let's talk about budget for a 1931 film, $291,000. Now, get this. Wow. There's movies being made today for a lot less than $291,000, okay? So what's the equivalent of today's 2017 money? It would have been about $4.6 million. So this was, you know, for the time, a pretty big sum, you know, for for a movie to to almost hit the $5 million um, mark for their budget. And it brought in at the movies uh, $12 million. Which actually, in today's money, is about a hundred and ninety-two million dollars. Wow! Yes. So this this was wow. a this was a bona fide blockbuster. I mean, massive. Uh, when you, when you can um, take a you know a, a near five million dollar budget and and almost bring in two hundred million dollars, 
it, it definitely was a huge success, and and well, even more so than Frankenstein uh, as than Dracula. Well, yeah. Especially when you consider that they're in the depths of the depression at that point. Yeah, right during. So yeah. the, to make that kind of profit is is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, and, and think it seems about like it. A I mean, perfect storm. You think about yeah. this. This was one of those things where people were, back then, you know, there, there was no internet, there was no TV, there was no VHS, there was no. I mean, people probably went and saw this multiple times. You know what I'm saying? Say because so. that's sure. really yeah. the only way. There's not like, oh, I can't wait to see that again when it comes out in six months on on DVD. Yeah, no, right. I mean, right. as far as they knew. You know, they would never see this thing again, you know, unless they yeah, went really? and saw it at the movies. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it, it really did, uh, did well. So it gives you a little bit of perspective. Yeah, that's all. That is incredible that it made that much in the conversion to today's market. That's mind blowing. Yeah. And like Vin said, right during the depression, it's, and I said, I don't know if you heard me, it's kind of, it was like kind of like the perfect storm. I don't know if people were, just really wanting horror, uh, but it seems that way from the money it made. You would think that they'd want some uppity and happy, but maybe something you know they correlated it with what was going on at the time—the horror yeah. on screen. You know, well, well, I think that especially in in you know 1931, I think people when they look at something on the screen, yes, you can you can have a nice happy comedy drama movie. But it's not as grand, you know. I mean, right, they, they right, wanted yeah. to see the the special effects. They wanted to see the monster makeup. The monster, they wanted to yeah. see the sets. They wanted to see. I mean, th- this was. I love the sets in this movie. As we, oh, you know, yes. get into it, and and yeah. and I think that even though Dracula was a success as well, I think this is where uh, I know they were released the same year, but the man, just light years. Oh yeah, it's not even in the same league. Yes, no. uh, light years in quality of the movie of the sets. Not saying that Frank uh, as what do I keep bad, saying that? Right. Yeah, not saying Dracula's bad or anything because we we talked about that and we gave it its props. But Frankenstein is really where I, I think monster movies. Every monster movie has to thank Frankenstein nineteen thirty one because it all. Is is uh, is a genesis from there? So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Uh, well, while we're on it, let let's get into some likes here. So, Mark, you were saying the sets, man. How about some of these sets? I mean, unbelievable. Yeah, the the sets are fantastic. Uh, very gothic. Lots of uh, shadowy places. Lots of angles. Uh, it was also a very vertical. If you notice, like vertical sets, like up high, like towers, sure. and yeah, and that very big, just like the monster was filmed, very big. There's mm-hmm. also a lot of diagonals, which help to kind of carry your eye upward. Yeah, that's you know? yeah, so yeah, your your eyes are constantly moving up the screen as you're watching. You so know, smart. The, every little every little bit of space is filled by whale. Yeah, he yeah. James Whale, man, he is just. He's a phenom at directing, and he just took the art form from script writing. I mean, he it was everything to him. Uh, I have a book on James Whale, and I have that Universal Monster book. And what a fascinating human being and just how he treated this art. I think mm-hmm. he he just elevated it to, like you said, a, it's astronomical, the jump, watching something like Dracula as a horror film compared to this. It, it's 
it's night and day. It's it's phenomenal. So uh, the sets alone like that, the the iconic electricity set, the the actual setting for getting the monster, you know, let's fire this monster up, uh, it, you know, cranking him up into through the hole in the ceiling with the storm and the way they shot through the roof. I, I mean, it's like the perfect sequence. That is one of the, if not best scenes in horror film history. It's, yeah. it's incredible. Oh, I, I, I agree. And even movies today, I don't think they, they don't capture that. They don't. Uh, sorry for the pun, but they don't capture that energy. I mean, they, yeah. they don't. It, it's, it's just, and it, and it really, stays ingrained in your brain it creates this visual that you cannot get rid of like absolutely absolutely as that you know as he's getting elevated up and the camera's descending like zooming out such an amazing shot Mm -hmm. too yeah i think your your inner child is really activated you know in that you know, if that was done today, it would all be CGI, you know, no doubt about that, it that we yeah. know that this is a, a working set and all these things are really sparking all over the place. And, yeah. you know, you, you can imagine yourself being on that set and how much chaos there would be. And, yeah, I, I think that's part of it. It's it just it, it strikes a, you know, it, a, that kind of that part of our brain that hasn't you know, yeah, uh, it's, hasn't it's, lost it, its it, magic. No, it does you know? Yeah. Well, it what it, what it is child, like. Yeah, what it is 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 freaking movie magic. Yes, the way the way yes. that it used to be, and I'm not one of these guys. You know, all oh, the the modern day movies are horrible. It's all superhero. I, you know, I love a good superhero movie. I love a good movie with with computer graphics done well. I like that. But man, there's just something about. Yeah, I am one this of those sort guys. of thing. Yeah, there's just something <laughs> am, about man. this sort of thing, and and thinking about it being 1931 and uh, about that set. And all of those uh, uh, electric gadgets and stuff going on. That, that was a guy named Kenneth Strickfadden. Strickfadden, yep. Yeah, who, who made that, designed that. And, and basically, he made it out of junk. That's it, man. He, he was an electrician. He just made yep. it out of junk. Yay, what can spark here? What looks cool here? And And the cool thing about it, man, that set was used in all kinds of other movies up until oh, the yeah. 70s. Especially, um, what was the one with the big alien, uh, universal one in color? Oh, come on. The big brain aliens with the claw hands, uh, from space. Oh, come on. It's a huge monster. I can't remember the name. I can't believe it's Metaluna Mutant. The Metaluna Mutant. That oh, set yeah, yeah, yeah. It. If you got, yeah, I don't know if you knew that, but in that movie too, it was the Frankenstein, uh, all the electricity type things. They actually used the same set. Yeah, I so think awesome. young Frankenstein. It's the same. Yes, it is. Uh-huh. It's same it over, is. Right? Yeah. yeah, yes, it is. So yeah, you know, you know, it was well made. It was well made to 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 last. You know, forty years on the set. Uh, people using it in different movies. It is. It's it's. There's no other word, and I know we're going to use this word many times during, especially the first two of these movies. But it's iconic. It is. It's yeah. iconic. It truly is. <clears throat> it's it's everything mad scientist that we think of. That's that's and, exa- think, and this is where we get it. And I think it keeps its shine. Like uh, for me at least, it's so mesmerizing that every time. And I've seen these movies. I can't count how many times. It's still just as great watching it the next time. It doesn't yeah, dull. 
Yeah. And you and you'll always notice something that you didn't notice before or appreciate something yes. Mo- yes. more than you did before. It's not I, I, I don't know. It's I mean, I think for most of us, it's like our favorites, too. So we're just super excited. By yeah, it. I mean, but, but there's a reason why, a you reason, know, there's yeah. a reason why it, it's so many people's favorite. You know, I, I remember this is weird because I don't normally remember things like this, but I remember the first time I saw this movie and I was eight years old wow. and it, it was it was in September. I don't even remember. I knew we had just kind of gone back to school and I was staying up late without my mom knowing about it and it was on i think uh, channel no one's going to know this but channel 45 i think it was a uh, a local station in baltimore and i just remembered watching it and not being scared because this is not necessarily a scary movie for someone nowadays it's just fascinating but for someone exactly. but for someone in the 30s this might have been pretty terrifying I would think. <laughs> because it's really the first kind of thing like this you're seeing on the screen but That's right i remember as a, yeah. as a child watching this you know on a on a, a little <laughs> probably 15 to 20 inch black and white tv you know back in in the uh the 80s and and really just being drawn to it um really loving it, it i think it's it's the it's one of the perfect horror movies to introduce a child to it really is. I think it's a probably the best in a child. Any of these Universal monster movies to introduce a child to so-called horror. Uh, you like you said, Mark. What were you eight years old? And mm-hmm. it it didn't scare you, but you absolutely adored it. So that yeah. says something. Yeah. Well, what else, uh, Vin? What did you like about it? I mean, we have so much to go through. Well, I mean, just to piggyback, piggyback off of something that Mark just said about as a child, you're eight years old, you're not scared. But I love how in the film, when the creature comes across the child, yes. you know, she doesn't react with fear. You know, mm-hmm. she instantly kind of recognize him, recognizes him almost as another child, yes. as another innocent. And I really like that aspect of this film. Um, they, you know, I talked a little bit in my my introductory essay here uh, from before about the the fact that both in the novel and in this movie, the creator is neglectful. You know, in this one, yes. it's, Henry, it's Henry Frankenstein. Yep. And, you know, he's obsessed with creating, but he lacks the responsibility to actually care for the creation. Like, he keeps him in the dark for days. Yeah. You know, he's, he's disappointed that it isn't sophisticated or highly intelligent. You know, and he just he just ends up abandoning him. Um, but really, the creature is this this child. And when he comes across another child, like she just reacts. You know, she recognizes it instantly. She's the only one that's not repulsed by him. Yeah, yeah well, man, that that has to be one of my favorite. Other than like the, you know, the startup of getting the monster to come to life. That scene is so emotional um, yeah. that, how that plays through. And it's just absolutely yeah. brilliant. And, what and, a brilliantly written scene. And and cut from many of the versions cut. of this movie. Right. Which yeah. Uh, because because it would be way Child too upsetting. Death. And yes. ended up being more upsetting. Worse. Yeah. <laughs> because it wasn't explained. You just got this drowned girl being drowned carried girl. through yep. the yeah. through the village and, and, they and cut if, right when he's about to reach for her. So yeah, so everyone yeah. Like yeah. Assault, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, right. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. So but what a, so, what a yeah. sequence, man. It is but, just yeah, so to, amazing. Just to kind of talk about that for a second because we just touched on it, the amazing cinematography that's going on in here, the sweeping camera movement, oh, you know, especially 
that, that tracking shot of the father carrying the daughter's body yes. through the party. And you see people around him just kind of catching on to what is happening around them. You know, they're seeing what, what he has. And they just kind of gradually start following him. And the crowd gets bigger and bigger as it goes. And it's just this, again, you know, you, Mark, you had mentioned Dracula came out earlier that year. You know, there is nothing like that in Dracula. You know, this is just... Only, only in only in Spanish Dracula. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> now I, w- I wanted to talk about real quick because as far as themes to a movie, this one, oh. you know, because it's such a heavily thematic novel, you know, there is so much. Uh, in this movie that you could dissect and talk about, you know, birth and creation, ambition, revenge, appearances, free will and fate. I mean, you could go on and God. on and on. Um, but like you were saying, Vin, like this, this like nature versus nurture, you know, how, how, uh, Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein creates uh, this monster. And then when the monster doesn't live up to his expectations or things get difficult, he abandons the monster, and, and and it really is. He's really one of the worst parents ever put to screen. He turns into a monster. Yes, and and, and the thing is, mm-hmm. a lot of parents can do that. You know, when things get tough, or or the child doesn't act like you think the child should act, or whatever. Or, right. We're, we're going to give up, or we're going to walk away, or we're going to do this or that. And what what causes Frankenstein's monster to be? What he is? Is it because um, See, you're touching Fritz, on one of my dislikes, actually? Well, but is it is it because because Fritz uh, got the the criminal brain, you know, mm-hmm. or is it because you know he was mistreated? I mean, Fritz is whipping him and and doing all kinds of stuff to him and show, uh, shoving fire in his face and making him frightful, or you know, is, is it? You know, nature versus nurture, basically. What? What? Just go ahead and say that, Vin. What? What's your dislike about it? Yeah, I want well, to hear this. My my dislike is actually the aspect of the criminal brain, because I think that it undermines the creature's innocence, which he clearly shows, and it gets all those who kind of willfully abuse him or neglect him off the hook. Um, because when of that they should title, be, right? Because well, because uh, you know, it, Fritz is abusing him. All right, but we're saying that he's more violent because he has this criminal brain and not because of all the abuse that's being thrown on him. You know, he's probably violent. You know, if they took out the criminal brain aspect, we could easily see why he would be violent from the abuse, from the neglect, from being kept in the dark, you know, from, you know, basically being kept in perpetual fear. I mean, Mm -hmm. one of the things that I like about this is that kind of in the novel and in the film, there's no, there's no, except for Fritz, there's really no clear villains. Mm -hmm. You know, Victor is. I'm sorry, not Victor, uh, Henry. Henry. He's flawed, but he's not wicked. You know, and the creature is at first very benign. He's just pleading. He wants to see sunlight. Yep. You know, that's all he's trying to do, but he becomes violent and hateful through circumstances, because through things happening. that are happening to him. Right. So Fritz's sadism is really the only clear wickedness in the film. And I just think that that criminal brain aspect, I, it just, it's unnecessary. And I think it undermines the more kind of deeper poetic things that are going on in the film. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can, like, I can I like get that. that. But, yeah, but don't I like you that. think? But don't you think that it's also kind of speaking to them, probably 
wrongly labeling the brain just like we as a society wrongly label people or animals or things that we don't personally understand because we think we're so much better than everyone and we're so much smarter. I I mean, to me, I kind of took it like that. This brain is not what we think, what we deem as normal. So it must be bad. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I took it. That that's what they were trying to translate with that, but yeah, I think but maybe you can I'm do that. Yeah, maybe yeah. I'm just trying to, you know, no, no, what I mean? because maybe I'm because we to, see to no, because well, there is something in what you're saying because Henry kind of turns on the creature when he finds out that he accidentally put a criminal brain in, right? Because before that, he's saying, oh, he's he's learning, he'll he'll get better, and this and that, and then when the other doctor, you know, Van Sloan's character, when he tells him, you know, that was a criminal brain that was stolen. From my, you know, that's when he he kind of gives a look, you know, off camera. Um, you know, Henry does. You know, this kind of, and then the next time we see him with the creature, he's basically saying, "Oh, forget it. We just just destroy him." So I do think that there is there is definitely something to that. I just feel like it's it, it's an element that I don't think necessarily had to be introduced in the first place. But yeah, yeah. Right. So, no, I, I I get what you're saying too, and like not yeah. everyone, not everyone that is a casual you know, viewer of the movie is going to, to delve that deeply and try to think that intensely about it. So they may take it, you know, strictly as, well, this is why it just like you said, yeah. which mm-hmm. is validating all these characters for going at him and, and validating the person watching yeah. for saying, Oh mm-hmm. yeah, he's yeah. bad. Well, and, and, I, and, and I think that here's, here's my question. Here's my question. Okay, yes, criminal brain, normal brain, whatever. Um, it raises that question. Like, even if, even if it was a, a regular, uh, I'm, I'm trying to see how I'm going to say this. Like, are our people bent towards certain behaviors? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. or is it all, uh, you know, nurture, you know what I'm saying? Like, can a person, and I think, I think that the answer might be yes, but can a person be born with a tendency towards violence or towards, uh, alcoholism or toward, because some of those things run in families, you know what I'm saying? Sure. Right. So, so maybe it's just like, there's nothing wrong with that brain, but if you steer it in the wrong direction by, by that, nurture you're going to more easily sway it right. towards There's the a greater maybe. potential for yeah. violence or yeah. addiction or whatever yeah. it might be right yeah. well, if you, put you in the right to... circumstance they're more likely to yeah, yeah. but that, i mean mm. but, but i understand what you're saying and and i think that exactly what you were saying it kind of kind of cheapens it a little bit and i didn't even think about it that way but i, I can see where you're coming from yeah, me, me too. I never yeah. thought about it that way. But you want to know the beauty of this film is that all three of your points, well, your question and Susan and Vin's points, they can all be the answer, which exactly. is so amazing about this film. Yeah. Uh, it's, because it's just a matter of perspective. At that's that exactly yeah. right. Right. Yeah. Which is amazing that I I never thought of it the way that you brought it up, Vin. But now that <laughs> – now that I think about it, it's like, yeah, I could absolutely see that. Are you right? I don't know. Is Susan right? I don't, I don't know. 
but that's the beauty. Right. It just comes down to a matter of preference, I think, of it just which shows one how, we'd yes. rather, you know. <laughs> yeah, it just shows how the art in this film really, well, you know. We'll, we'll, we'll keep going with the themes, okay? Because, I mean, man's desire to be God. Yeah, that's a oh, I mean, I mean, come on. They had to cut another part of this movie out where, where, you know, he talks about it's alive, it's alive. And then he's like, um, in the name of God, now I know what it's like to be God, God. you know, and, and that was just deemed too blasphemous. So they would for the time. Yeah. Yes. They would cut that out. Now, now that we have these beautiful Blu-rays restored and everything, it's back in. But if you watch this movie, um, you know, back in back, like I think uh, this was re-released right in nineteen thirty. I don't know thirty seven, thirty eight. They they released both uh, Dracula and Frankenstein. Yeah, I think it was right together. before the Son of Frankenstein that they yeah. released them. Yeah, yeah. so I, I don't. I think they had cut those things out uh, because it was just <laughs> deemed too blasphemous. But mm-hmm. that's a theme, man, is, is, is man wanting to be God, wanting to be the author of life, wanting to find the secrets of life and, and death and birth and all of that. It's just deep stuff. It really it is. is. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the ambition that, that uh, Dr. Frankenstein has is like, it, it's, it's like everything else became unimportant to him. I mean, his, his fiance was unimportant. Uh, you know, everything was unimportant to him except for this, this desire. Um, and then I know we'll get into it about revenge when the, when the creature basically acts out in revenge. And then about appearances. This is a huge one. Is the monster feared because of his ugliness? Well, that's what society does. Absolutely. You know, he, he's it's different. Tell somebody guy. different. Somebody and different. I, right. I, if yeah. I, I think if all four of us, no matter, I, don't, I mean, I'm not going to speak for you, but I don't know for me, no matter what anybody says, if I see that thing walking down my street, I'm getting my gun. Just uh, by appearance. No, not me. Mm-hmm. I'm weird that way, you guys. I'm the that's one that'll good. be like, That's hey. good. That's good. Well, <laughs> I'm Susan, ninety-nine percentile. Susan is the one that sees the uh, the world's ugliest dog video. You ever seen that one? The, <laughs> oh and, and is thinking, I'd love to adopt that dog. That is me. That but, is true. Yeah, but uh, with I can I can actually as as low as that might sound. Because I'm not talking about a normal human being. If I seen that monster just walking down the street without talking, without having any, you know, interaction with it, I'd be like, uh, lock the doors. Yeah. You know, watch well, out. Would you do that? Well, unfortunately, you know, our our human nature is to uh, judge things on their appearance and and not take the time to get to know. That's what I'm saying. You know, or understand or the yet. facts. You know, we we jump to conclusions, and That's it. you know, it, it's 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 a tough thing. But it, I mean, think about it. this. Is, this was 1931. This is still as relevant today. It really is as as it was in 31, and it was just as relevant a hundred years before that, and it's going to be re- relevant another hundred years from now. I mean, it's just it's the way it timeless. is. Timeless. Yep, it's timeless. Um, yeah. Yeah, but but uh, there's so there's so many themes to get into. Uh, you could just you could honestly keep going about it with with all these films. Mm-hmm. But um, one thing I we have to talk about is the acting itself, which I think just elevates this film through the roof. Um, Karloff, I mean, we got to talk about 
this movie with Karloff. Did, is it true he's only 5'9"? Mm, I don't know. I'm not because sure if he's 5'9". I, Vin, are you still there? I uh, Yeah. Okay, <laughs> I just wanted, I wanted to make sure. <laughs> I just want to make sure. Uh, I don't know if he was 5'9". I do know that you know those boots were platform boots and and they were they weighed 13 pounds a piece <laughs> but so he was definitely much taller in the movie but um i didn't i don't know what his, Wait, I'm, his I'm height was i'm about to find i just asked google google says that boris karloff was 5 feet 11 inches 511 five okay. so he's so close so to that's 6 not foot as tall as one would think that's that blew me away when i heard that i was off by 2 inches but yeah. you know well, it seems like he's 11 feet tall i mean it, yeah. yeah the boots but just his presence the way he walked um mm-hmm. and that goes to jack pierce's makeup too cutting the sleeves short yeah. but um that, sorry we're going i'm going in circles there but the acting in this watching Karloff just be this kind of supposed to be brain dead monster but the emotions he pulls out without uh, talking is incredible which was the the pantomime you yeah. know and just how he uses yeah. his hands yeah you know to, to kind of show the pleading and it's so pitiful it know? really is it, but he creates this amazing pathos he got the, that gaunt face you know he had the uh, the bridge that he took out of his mouth to kind of have that one yeah, that one yeah. sunken cheek, and it does kind of give yeah. him this, you know, kind of a cadaverous look to him. Um, and it, but it's you you can't you can't um, I don't want to say underestimate, but you know you you certainly cannot underplay uh, how absolutely iconic Carlos' performance and Jack Pierce's makeup are. Yeah, you know, the combination of the yeah. two together. I mean, it, it's not just in in the horror genre. I mean, just in film history. I mean, you yep. you don't oh. get more iconic yeah. than that. It, nope. I mean, you. And yeah. I don't think anybody else could really have, you know, for whatever reason, conveyed the. I don't know. I mean, it was like without just with his 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 body language and these subtle subtle expressions. I mean, it just said so much and yeah. I don't really know any actors even today that could really Pull it just off. really punch it in the gut. It, it, it hit me in the yeah. feels, you know? Yeah, like, yeah it's, a, it's an emotional really, performance. Yeah, it's yeah. really, it really incredible. I mean, it's the first horror movie, you know, that ever made me cry. I mean, I just, I I felt so bad for Frankenstein that oh, entire yeah. movie. Yeah, so Especially that entire when, the, uh, movie. when the windmill's burning. Oh, yeah. And brutal. he's just kind of frantically trying to escape. Yeah. And when those mm-hmm. beams come down, you know, and his desperate you know, attempts to try and remove. It's just, yeah. uh, you know, if, if it doesn't hit you, you know, <laughs> yeah, it has, you're not human, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but Karloff, he was just, uh, th- this is crazy. I'm, I'm kind of doing some trivia as we go in through, you know, so, so we don't just list them all off at the end. So if anyone else has yeah. things, you know, just throw it in there. I think these three movies kind of lend itself to that sort of thing. Yep. But, but I mean, I'm not sure if this was true or not, but this was his 81st film. Oh yeah. See, people think that like this was Boris Karloff's, you know, big discovery or whatever. And yes, this is his most iconic role. No matter what, Boris Karloff is going to be known as Frankenstein. That's just the way it's going to be. But he was a veteran actor, uh, 81st film, and James Whale saw him eating lunch in the studio commissary and asked him to do a screen test uh, because he loved. Karloff's face. There was just something about his face, and it was hilarious because look. because his daughter said in an interview, Karloff's daughter, that you know 
Karloff kind of took exception to that because he was kind of gussied up that day, you know, in a, in a nice suit and, and looking looking what he thought was pretty good. And the director wants him to play a monster because I love yeah. your face, you know. But if you look at him without makeup, still very like he has a very unique look. Oh, so mm-hmm. unique! So it, it really just lent itself to that makeup. And uh, well, I, I am going to put. You know, a small little biography of Jack Pierce, because without Jack Pierce, I mean, there wouldn't be any Rick Baker. There wouldn't be any, yeah, you know, this nothing. is a guy that that really, really pioneered some some stuff that people use to this day. Yeah. And let's, just, let's just think about how many people today have a hard time trying to replicate this look. Yeah, it's true. I mean, let's it's just be still, real. And there are a lot more different types of of you know mediums and things that they can use to do it and and mm-hmm. nine out of ten yep. don't really get it right you know so it, it really still holds to, up still holds yeah. up i mean it still looks great i mean, well, I mean uh, one thing i think that's interesting that you touched on mark is with boris karloff I, you know back in the 30s he was always compared with bell lugosi you know so but you know we, when you look at their both their careers you know, the fact that Boris Karloff had already done 80-something movies, but up to that point, he was still incredibly – it was still incredibly difficult for, for him to to support his family. I mean, uh-huh. he was digging ditches. He was delivering, like, construction plaster. He was constantly working, you know, manu- hard manual labor just to Crazy. support his family while he was working as an actor the whole time. So when he gets success in Frankenstein – He's very grateful, and he's very grateful for all the stuff that he gets from the horror genre to have a steady career. So he never looked down on that. When you look at Bela Lugosi, Bela Lugosi was there at the forefront of his career. So, yes. you know, he he's immediately typecasted. Yes. So he didn't have necessarily the, the love and appreciation <clears throat> for the horror genre that Boris Karloff did. You know, Karloff yeah. was just – he just kind of went with it. He yeah. – well, you know, go, but go right to what you were just saying about Bela Lugosi, because who was slated to be Frankenstein? Oh, yeah. Originally, it was going to be Bela Lugosi. Yeah. And apparently, the, the makeup test, it, they claim that it looked a lot more like the Golem from 1920. And it, Lugosi decided not to do it. But from what I've, oh. what I've read, his the script was very different from what Karloff ended up doing. Um, so it was even less for the creature to do. Yeah, and he uh, said, crazy, and he yeah. said, yeah, and he said, he said that uh, later that it was one of his biggest regrets. But regrets, yeah, he did. You know, things that. work out the way they're supposed to work out. I don't think it would have been. Yeah. It just wouldn't have been the same. And, and nothing against Bela Lugosi, because Bela Lugosi, I think, is is a great actor in his own right, and we'll talk about him in, in, oh, in a couple movies. Oh, but, oh yeah, um, yeah. But man. Uh, yeah, you just can't say enough about about Karloff. Just icon again, iconic man. I, I just, uh, I, I love that that square forehead that that was inspired by Edison's uh, early film depiction is what they said for Jack Pierce is is if you watch that, it's only that Edison film is only like fifteen minutes. You know? Yeah, it, it's it's and, nuts and, to watch. Yeah, and. Um, Kind of definitely has that square type head, and yeah, it's much more of a big freight wig that he's wearing. But <laughs> yes, yeah, yes, uh, but, but it definitely it looks very industrial. Yes, you that, know that, this industrial kind of cubist interpretation that yes. Jack Pierce creates, or you know, has a hand in creating. Because I know that they they say uh, many interviews they say it's, it was really kind of a collaborative effort between Karloff, Pierce, and Whale. But um, it does have this very 
very modern sensibility. Yep, yep. And I, I, and I've never seen a colorized version of this. I'm not sure if any of you guys have, but I have seen no. some no. some colorized. There's, there's scenes. I've seen. I've seen. I'm not sure if it was from Son of Frankenstein, but there's some like home movies of Jack Pierce and Boris Karloff in his makeup. It. And yes. man, that, that greenish gray. Yep. You know, it doesn't really come across still on, on a black and white. Um, you know, to, to, but maybe, uh, maybe it wouldn't have been as, I don't know. Cause we all think right now, of course, Frankenstein's monster is green, mm-hmm. but yeah, back but the then, green makeup was because I'm black and white. It red as but, pale. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So mm-hmm. even a lot of the actors were done up more red so that they would look more. Lively, yes. you know, yeah. but it it was it was never meant to be seen in color. It was always meant to entirely be the way that it would show up on black and white films. That's right. Yeah. And Which you is were amazing. <laughs> Van, you were saying about Karloff never looking down on on you know the horror genre because he always appreciated what it what it gave him. And I think that a lot of people unfairly, you know, criticize him for only doing these three movies. As Frankenstein, but it's a good call, think, honestly. It was yeah, a good I mean, call, but 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 he, world. I guarantee you that the other movies. By the way, this is these three movies are sort of like the A Frankenstein yeah. movies, you know, and then the rest are kind of like B. But I think he kind of, from what I've read, he kind of had to because he had uh, really hurt his back in this movie, uh, had lots of back problems. And he couldn't really, really physically, you know, it's a, a demanding part. I mean, I think the, the Dagon costume weighed like, uh, I forget what it was, like yeah, 60, them all up. 60 yeah, or weight. 70 pounds. Each, each boot was 13 pounds. And, uh, you know, he wasn't a young, heat, yeah, yeah he was, wasn't a young fella, so, you know, right. he was in his forties and, um, but the thing is, even though he stopped doing the creature, because he also was afraid that it would become goofy, you know, that mm-hmm. they would. It would become ridiculous, um, which, it, which it kind of did, you know. Kind of did, but yeah. <laughs> even though, even though he stopped doing the Frankenstein's monster, he never stopped doing the horror. No, yes. so he awesome. was doing all kinds of horror roles all throughout the thing. It's just he stopped doing the monster. That's all. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. Yeah, hey, he Walsy. went on to do different tiers from the horror realm. Yeah. Walsy, what would yes. you think about uh, uh, Professor uh, or Professor Doctor Frankenstein, <laughs> dude? Henry Colin, Frankenstein, Colin Clive. Colin Clive was absolutely phenomenal in this film. I I honestly wouldn't be able to like if if there was a previous casting of somebody that was supposed to do it just as Boris if Boris Karloff wasn't cast like it needed to be him. It needed to be Colin Clive. Uh it's it, even though it, it's very over the top but it has to be because oh, yeah. of the theme and just the heft of the story. So Colin Clive blew me away just as much as Boris Karloff blew me away. That's what I have to say about him. What did you guys think? Yeah, again, iconic. <laughs> I just, yeah. it's just oh, that whole it's alive speech. And of course, he gets to say uh-huh. she's alive, you know, in the next one. But that man, voice, the yeah. voice and yeah. the look, the look in his it, eyes. Is it overacting? Yeah. But I mean, that's what you want in that scene. You know, <laughs> yeah, you don't want to understate it's, it's it. This dramatic. Is, yeah, there's yes. sparks flying all over the place, and you know it's. <laughs> yes, I mean it, this is a major scene. He had to, you know, he's ramping it up even more, you know, with all the insanity that's around him. Um, but no, I think it's entirely appropriate for what he had. 
Yeah, I, I thought he was he was uh, very well cast. Uh, I wasn't. I, I liked Edward Van Sloan as well as Doctor Waldman. Yeah. I like him better good. in this actually than I than I did in Dracula. Yes, me me as well. And then uh, Dwight Fry it was good as Fritz. Now here here's the thing. How how did we? And I don't even know the answer to this. How did we as a society come, yeah. <laughs> come to know uh, this character as Igor? I know. Other yeah. than Fritz. Uh, I mean, I know that in in the third movie, we have an Igor played by Bela Lugosi. He's not, yeah, yeah, he's not a hunch. Yeah, well, he's got a, like a broken neck, but you and know what I'm saying? Always, somehow as a child, I always imagined him as Peter Laurie. <laughs> you know, yes. master. You know, with like yeah. this little eye that's going the wrong way. Yeah, yes. I have no idea where that came from. You know, it's. Yeah. I mean, is it is it from Young Frankenstein? I mean, I don't know what it's from. But where did they uh, get that from? Like they were playing yeah. on something. You know. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I feel like there must have been something older that it was. Like the Hunchback of Notre Dame, maybe. Maybe maybe just a mix and of Charles that, and, and maybe a mix the, yeah. of that, a mix of Fritz, a mix of Igor, a mix of of everything. Um. Because that young Frankenstein kind of takes, um, a little bit of everything. You know, a little bit of everything from these first three movies. It really does, and um, yeah. But that that kind of, you know, I, I liked. Uh, I like his 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 role. He's creepy in this thing. Fritz uh, is, is so dumb, so dumb too. <laughs> dropping the daggone brain on the floor, and uh, it, he I, he's I, like he's like straight out of like, um. Uh, what is it? I'm, I'm trying to think. When he's going to answer the door in the tower, he's basically like this, this like Shakespeare's like clown. Mm-hmm. You know, like there, there's a whole scene at like the door, I think, in Macbeth, where like they're trying to get to the doorman. It's this whole comical thing, and it's pretty much just what Fritz is doing at that point when he's going down the stairs in the tower, complaining. He's going through. Um, yes. But yeah, he, he's like he's almost like a comic relief, um, even though he is the most twisted person in you know all of this. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't answer your question at all about Igor yeah. and everything else. I'd like to. I'm, I'm going to dive deeper into that and try to try to find out. Um, I, one thing that I didn't like too much was uh, May Clark. I'm not you didn't like her. Uh, she was okay. She was okay. I mean, she she was she was nothing special. And I think, uh, of course, they recast her in the the next movie because she was sick or something had fallen ill or whatever but um yeah elizabeth i could i could have done without a little bit a little bit and and i don't understand why they um really chose to switch the names you know instead of victor frankenstein they went with yeah. henry um i know that they kind of felt that you know victor was a little too harsh i don't know what that even means I know they were they were trying to, even though it seems impossible to do. I know that they were trying to kind of play down as much as they can the kind of Teutonic German nature of things. So I think that they were trying to anglicize, yeah, a lot of it. Um, I you know this is this is between two world wars, so I think that there was still there was still some aversion to uh, Germanic culture at that point. Um, yeah. Not as strong as it was in the 1920s, but I think if there was probably still some of that left over, they wanted to, you know, to take a lot of the German edge off of off of the story. I think, and I think, although they they name another character Victor for some reason, but I think that was the original impetus to name yeah. him Henry. Well, because he he wasn't the you know the main guy. That I guess I guess I don't uh, Henry Frankenstein wouldn't be considered the 
the the hero definitely but he's somebody that you at least want to root for at the beginning but then he kind of lets you down so i, I kind of like his character even though he turns out to be a a douche yeah <laughs> and, a, and a really bad and a really well, bad there, there's something deep down inside him that you know is decent yes that he's making the wrong decisions but that he ultimately could do something better you know i just think that there's irony in the the fact that he's rejecting his creation because you have his father, the elder Frankenstein, Baron Frankenstein, whatever. I don't remember quite what his title, his name was. Baron. Um, but yeah, he, he keeps talking about how excited he is to get a new son for the house of Frankenstein because Henry's getting married, you know, but ironically the monster, the mon- <clears throat> excuse me, the monster is just that, you know, it's this illegitimate heir that's out roaming the countryside, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, being rejected by Henry, um, which is kind of a great irony there. Um, but you know, Henry ends up being a very good character. Um, you know, one of the things that you were talking about before, um, when he's talking about now, I know what likes to be God. Uh, I never, I, I generally don't see that as him because he's created life. I think it's because he's conquered death. Yeah. You know, I I think that's what he felt like he was really accomplishing. You know, because even in the cemetery scene in the beginning, Henry throws dirt and he literally throws it in the face of death. There's a Grim Reaper statue. Yeah. And he's tossing the dirt and it's hitting the Grim Reaper in the face, you know. So I, I think that that's really what he's he's managed to do. That's how he's managed to play God um, and kind of, you know, uh, do one up, you know, on, on his order of things is that he's conquered death somehow. Um, and I just think that that's no matter what you think about the folly of such things, there's something incredibly desirable in yeah. all of humanity to do just that. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's one of those things like you even have this thing nowadays where there's plenty of, uh, I guess you would call a controversy, even the things about like stem cells or, or any of that, anything that's scientific that is kind of pushing those boundaries. Oh, yeah, medical you ethics. Know, yes, yeah. medical ethics. I mean, yes, if we did use this or had a breakthrough, man, what a what an incredible thing for humanity that would be, and it would probably save a lot of lives. But what about you know the here and now and, and the lives we might be hurting or ending? You know those sorts of things. Uh, you know, again, very relevant for today but um yeah so like i said i like i liked him i i, I think uh he was a really bad dad but yeah you know, not <laughs> not not everybody can can be uh ward cleaver you know <laughs> what did you think about the monster's entrance <laughs> the the first time that we see the monster when he walks into the room backwards mhm um what do you think about that choice i thought it could have been uh a little bit more dramatic. I'm not, I'm not sure if, if there was a better way to do it. Why couldn't he, why couldn't he like sit up on the slab or something? <laughs> like Michael Myers. Of, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come on. Le, um, Leslie Vernon or somebody, you know, just, just uh, sit straight up on the slab. But um, yeah, I don't know why he had to walk in backwards, but I mean, I kind of liked it. I mean, I liked how, it, first of all, one of the things that is really good in this is the sound design. Uh-huh. Um, and I like how, you know, uh, Henry's talking with uh, his colleague, the professor, uh, and they they hear the footsteps coming. 
and him walking to the back him walking in backwards i think kind of gives a sense that there's something deeply often unnatural about this creature mm-hmm. and, you know that that he comes in this way but also there's something really innocent <laughs> kind of about his ignorance of the world you know that yes. you don't you don't you're supposed to walk in facing forward um so i think it kind of accomplishes those two things at the same time and of course i know it's iconic when he finally does turn around whale kind of follows through that with a couple of these close up shots that you know get closer to his face, but I th- I remember kind of laughing a little bit the first time I saw it when he came in backwards. And then each time I've seen it after that, I've I've kind of grown to appreciate it more and more. Mm-hmm. Well, so, sort of like a toddler, you know, right. which I, which I think he he kind of based his movements on, you know, like someone just kind of mm-hmm. learning to walk and stumbling around. And, he doesn't um, have all his motor function yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, again, good. Good, uh, good choices there by by Karloff, and probably mm-hmm. I'm sure uh, Whale probably directed him to do that. But yeah, and I did want to mention if if you want to know a little bit more about the life of James Whale, there's a good movie called Gods and Monsters that uh, that um, talks about the life of James Whale. Oh yeah, with yep, uh, Ian, Ian McClellan, Ian McClellan, and Brendan Fraser. Yep. Yeah, I mean it's it's slightly fictionalized, but it yep. does a really good job of kind of letting you know what made James Whale tick and how his monster movies especially kind of, you know, related to aspects of his life. Yeah. And it's like, it's a very awesome performance by Ian McClellan. He's phenomenal on it. Yeah. Now I liked, uh, I didn't even realize like at the beginning, uh, the monster is billed or Boris Karloff, you know, not giving credit, you know, it's just question mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at the end, the name is given, is is what I've was I cor- am I correct on that? Uh, I don't remember. I'm not sure. <laughs> I read that somewhere, and I'm not. I, I didn't. Uh, I verify remember the question that. mark. I don't remember the end credits. Yeah, and yeah. and I know uh, Susan, you had even mentioned before that um, I think it was you that he didn't even get invited <laughs> to the premiere of this movie. Um, back in uh, December 6, 1931, he was not invited to the premiere, <laughs> which What's is really weird. I'm not sure what happened there, but uh, I, I think that that maybe he was a little under underappreciated, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. But uh, and a couple of a couple of little uh, trivia things here is um, this girl that played uh, little Maria, Marilyn Harris. Which, who, by the way, shows up again in the in Bride of Frankenstein, not, not as the same character, of course, because uh, spoiler alert, she dies in this. <laughs> but but um, she she was only supposed to do that that water scene once, and she didn't sink. She was like floating or something, or or she had clothes on or something. Yes, yeah. it did. It didn't come out the way James Whale wanted it, so James Whale needed to convince this little girl to do this scene again. And he said, I'll give you anything you want. Now think about this. It's 1931 and you're a little girl. Anything you want. What do you think she asked for? A pony. I don't know. (laughs) I know. She asked for a dozen hard boiled eggs. What? Yes. Because they were her favorite snack. And, and and her and her mother always made her diet 
you know, her so mother she was one of those real kind of celebrity moms. That yes, didn't let her get so, any weight. And, yes, yeah. so so uh, when it was all over, he actually got her two dozen hard boiled oh eggs. <laughs> but but I mean, come on, that's a, that's crazy. A kid nowadays he was probably relieved when he heard what it was. <laughs> yeah, he, he was probably like this. Like, really? Are you sure? Yeah. Uh, okay, no pony, no million dollars all right hard boiled eggs like, somebody right, get on that, that. <laughs> yeah, not, not even girl scout thin mint cookies no <laughs> no no um i like the uh um the uh, this is kind of a, a like and a dislike for the second movie but i love how he removed that bridge from his mouth to, yeah. to kind of make that his cheeks more hollow and, and more sunken in. And yeah. then of course the, the monster speaks in the second movie. So he had to wear that bridge and not only had he gained a little bit of weight, uh, but the, the monster looks a lot different in the second one, which we'll yeah, talk still about. Looks good, but not still looks good. Well, yeah. I think weren't they trying to make it, you know, seem like, the burns and whatnot on, yeah, on his head. Yeah. The problem is they in had black his hair and all singed and everything. Like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they had everything singed, but then in black and white, it just kind of translates as a little washed out. Yeah. I think. Mm. And I don't, and I don't think even that part was too bad. It was just his face was fuller, you know, because of that yeah. bridge being put in, and because he had gained a little bit of weight, and and that's that's the truth. Exactly what you said. He, he doesn't look as dead, you yeah. know. There was just that angular. You know, cheekbone structure that he had in that first one, again, being iconic. And, um, you know, is Walshy back yet? Where the heck did he go? No. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Uh, we we've had we've had for all the listeners we've had a, a little chaos behind the scenes today. It's been Sorry. crazy. We've all had something like going on. Like I thought I'd sneak to the restroom really all quickly, right. <clears throat> and I tripped over the my mic cable and pulled it all out of the computer and crashing down to the floor. So Ridiculous. like we've all had like a little something. Vin had a little ghost in his mic earlier. Like we've all had yeah. something going on for a little bit. <laughs> I personally have had uh, explosive diarrhea and um, would like to apologize <laughs> for everybody uh, for that. Oh <laughs> I'm just kidding. So um, and you wait, you know there is someone on iTunes right now that like paused it for a second and they plus press play and hear you say hear, that and they're like, wait, what is this? What am I- what is explosive? Explosive diarrhea have to do with Frankenstein. I'm not sure. Uh, now this is kind of cool. Um, I really liked the the Edward Van Sloan preface, the, the prologue. Yeah. You know that uh, I, I actually played at the beginning of this episode. Mm. Um, I thought that was kind of cool because they really, when you when you contrast this with Dracula, this is a whole different animal, and, and I think they really thought that people would be frightened and disturbed by this movie by, by putting that, you know, out there. What do you think? Yeah, That's an awesome, I love that. Just the history of it to see that today, uh, to see how they used to warn an audience. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was, it was kind of cool just to see him do that. Um, yeah, it, it is cool. I love that. Yeah. I mean, they don't, they don't do that sort of thing anymore, you know, address the audience. So, right. Yeah. So, anyway, well, what are we some have, dislikes from people? Anything? Uh, the, really, the only dislikes I have. There's a couple of things 
and this is just the the way this movie is made, especially back in the thirties. This you know this is this is a pretty quickly paced movie. Uh, what is it? A hundred and I mean, it, it's it's not not long at all. An hour and ten minutes, maybe, right? Somebody yeah, tell it's me. Swift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and that's just the you know par for the course back then. But there are certain things like um, when uh, Elizabeth wants to to go and uh, to to uh, to this laboratory to stop Frank Frankenstein or to try to get him to come home, and Victor tries to get her to stop. No, you shouldn't do that. But I'm going to go. Okay, you know that sort of thing. There's like there's no conflict or yeah. i don't think they i don't they just didn't do they didn't make any time for any of that like there know. was supposed to be almost like more of a subplot that you know victor was desperately in love with elizabeth um yes. but they they kind of end up downplaying it in the final you know final scheme of things it was something that was originally supposed to be kind of played up a lot more mm-hmm. so a lot of that i think is just kind of a remnant from the other plot point that yeah you know really doesn't go anywhere as far as the film is concerned. Yeah. But that, but that, uh, you know, tension or, or I'm not sure what the word I'm looking for, but, you know, it was just kind of real quick and they could have developed that a little bit more, but whatever. And then, and then let's face it, there is one sad looking flying dummy in this movie. Yeah. Yep. The, the good old <laughs> yeah, classic dummy. universal dummy. I think that's made appearances in almost every film. It's one of my I, I'm telling you guys, though, wonder. It's, it's- it's not a dislike. It's, just, <laughs> it's, it's not part a of it, right? Raggedy Andal sliding down the. <laughs> I mean, like, like the leg is bent in a way that like a human legs do not go. Wait till the limbs are swinging. Yeah, carelessly. <laughs> uh-huh. That's good yeah, stuff. Yeah, that always makes me laugh. Man. I do I wonder, and I because I, I don't know, but I do wonder if they purposely didn't make it look too real. Yeah, you know, if so if making it look too real would have almost been too much for the much. like, you know, you know, it making it, you know, not worrying if it looks like a dummy is maybe maybe intentional. I um, I always thought about that myself. Then we might well, be on something. Well, there there's another dag on dummy and bride. So <laughs> oh, and, very uh, dummy. It's a pro- <laughs> probably <laughs> probably probably the same the same dummy. You know, it. John R. Dummy. You know, I'm not sure. <laughs> He starred right. in many a Universal. He really did, movies. man. He's in them. He's in a lot of them. He, yeah. He's got to show up. And and I always laugh. I actually, I I know it looks so bad on film, but um, it, it it's not so much a dislike to me. I, it's it's enjoyable to me because it's funny. Oh you yeah, know? it it doesn't but take I me know, out of I it. I know how it goes on that side of the, you know, on the dislike side because it's like what? Well, this is kind of related. Not as funny. But you know when, when they're when they're scouring the mountains for the monster and you see the clouds you know behind the oh, behind yeah. the mountains it's just especially with HD you can you can very clearly kind of see the folds of the fabric yep. in the backdrop yeah. you know mm-hmm. which you know there's kind of a, a charm to that just kind yeah, of seeing exactly how the set is created but it is also a little bit distracting when you know <laughs> when yeah. I'm counting the folds rather than trying to watch mm-hmm. the action that's going on yeah. underneath them yeah. for, but, sure. And, for sure in the in the um, the mad scientist laboratory scene when when he uh is given life to a uh, frankenstein's monster there's actually a um uh a crew member like huddled in the corner 
guess he didn't get out of the way in time and he was just kind of trying to make himself scarce but you can see him it's kind of kind of funny i never caught that yeah but there's no, there's stuff it, like that and yeah. all kinds of in all kinds i think there's supposed to be another scene where you can see like you know, some whoever's laying on the slab is not Karloff, but it's you see like a, a shoe or something like that, you know, sticking yeah. out. But whatever, nice. you know, it's it, there's so much going on in the scene. You really got to be looking out for that stuff. That's right. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, and you could see in one scene, Colin Clive, he bent over and he was wearing a thong. It was it was not <laughs> it, was, it was not attractive, but uh, <laughs> Colin Clive, <laughs> don't tarnish Colin Clive. <laughs> I'm just messing. So. Any other right. trivia? I mean, I, I, before we, we get into ratings, because we got two other movies to talk about. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just really quickly, just a couple of things that the script could I wish had done a little bit better was, uh, you know, how did the father know that the girl was murdered? Um, That's yeah. a kind big of question. Yeah. Exactly. Great. Just drop. Like yeah. Slip yeah. Fault. And how did Actually, he even, you know, find her that quickly? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> thanks for bringing that up. I didn't write that down, and does, I totally agree. The other thing is, does the monster know that he was entering Elizabeth's room and who she was? Mm-hmm. Like, did, was that a random room, or was he somehow actually targeting Elizabeth? Yeah, that's you know, right. It's just little things like that. Where like it, that. It's, I don't. Whatever. I mean, it's 1931. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I, I think he was targeting her. I think he knew exactly who she was. I think so. You like I to think, think so <laughs> because he was he was ready he was going to get his revenge that's what I thought but I could be wrong yeah no I I see both sides there yeah I'm thinking that maybe the girl's uh, little Maria's father maybe a maybe he saw Frankenstein fleeing the scene or something I don't know you just got to kind of read that yeah, into that's it that's a good way to yeah. look at it. Yeah, yeah, what what a phenomenal film though, man. When you you try to bring up dislikes, you almost feel bad because the film's so good to talk about a dislike. Um, but we're, you know, we're looking at it critically. I st- I have like no problems with it that bother me about this film. Yeah, Horgal, any any dislikes? Oh, yeah, no, you know, I, I you know, <laughs> yeah, no. anybody anybody who has heard more than one episode um i pretty much knows that anything that has a sentimental feeling for me and that i have really great memories of i'm going to be completely biased so well you know maybe you could tear this apart but i mean honestly even even if if i were to look at it and dissect it like that you know, outside of a couple of the 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 topics that we touched on, you know, I, I mean, I really wouldn't change anything. So I don't I don't really have any dislikes. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> nice, Vin. Did you have any uh, additional trivia? Uh, yeah, I got some stuff. Um, I knew make- you would. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I haven't talked enough this episode. Um, May Clark, who played Elizabeth, you know, she was genuinely genuinely afraid of the monster makeup. Um, so Karloff told her that he'd wiggle his pinky finger. Uh, during the scenes to remind him, remind her that it was only Boris. Oh, that's um, great. Aw. Yeah. His, uh, you know, she was <laughs> real. How, just how he, from what I hear and what I read, he was just such a, nice a down, yes, yes. down to earth guy. And like something mm-hmm. like that is very touching to hear. That is um, touching, but what is she, 11? <laughs> I mean, this, no, this is a movie, you're an actress. <laughs> it is 1931, probably freaked her out. 
Yeah, I'm just uh, it, the no, film earned twice the gross of Dracula, That's and true. Universal dubbed the film a horror picture, helping to name the genre. Um, and other than that, I just I have biographical information on people. What? I have a question. What didn't Universal do for the genre? Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a harder one to answer, isn't it? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's true. Go ahead, man. All right. Well, first, uh, I got James Whale. All right. He was born the 22nd of July, 1889 in England. Uh, he's best remembered for his four classic horror films, Frankenstein, 1931, The Old Dark House, 1932, The Invisible Man, 1933, and, of course, Bride of Frankenstein, 1935. We also directed films in other genres, including what is considered the definitive, fil- definitive film version of the musical Showboat, 1936. He became increasingly disenchanted with, it, with his association with horror, but many of his non-horror films have fallen into obscurity. Uh, Will was born into a large family in Dudley in the black country area of the English West Midlands. Uh, by the way, I've adapted most of this stuff from Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, he discovered his artistic talent early on and studied art. Uh, with the outbreak of World War I, he enlisted in the British Army and became an officer. He was captured by the Germans, and during his time as a prisoner of war, he realized he was interested in drama. Following his release at the end of the war, he became an actor, set designer, and director. His success, his success directing the 1928 play Journey's End led to his move to the U.S., first to direct the play on Broadway and then to Hollywood to direct films. He lived in Hollywood for the rest of his life, uh, most of that time with his longtime companion, producer David Lewis. Uh, apart from Journey's End, he directed a dozen films for Universal Studios between 1931 and 1937, developing a style characterized by the influence of German expressionism and a highly mobile camera. Uh, at the height of his career as a director... Whale directed The Road Back in 1937, a sequel to All Quiet on the Western Front. Studio interference, possibly spurred by political pressure from Nazi Germany, uh, led to the films being altered from Whale's vision, and The Road Back was a critical and commercial failure. A run of similar box office disappointments followed, and while he would make one final short film in 1950, by 1941, his film directing career was over. He continued to direct for the stage and also rediscovered his love for painting and travel. His investments made him wealthy, and he lived a comfortable retirement until suffering strokes in 1956 that robbed him of his vigor and left him in pain. He committed suicide on 29th May 1957 by drowning himself in a swimming pool. His death was originally ruled an accident, but many years later, his lover, David Lewis, revealed his suicide note. Whale was openly gay throughout his career, something that was very unusual in the 1920s and 1930s. As knowledge of his sexual orientation has become more common, some of his films, Bride of Frankenstein in particular, have been interpreted as having a gay subtext, and it has been claimed that his refusal to remain in the closet led to the end of his career. However, his associates dismiss the notions that his sexuality uh, informed his work or that it cost him his career. Um, so that's James Whale. Uh, Colin Clive. Talk a little bit about him. Uh, born in 1900 in France, Clive's first screen role in Journey's Ed in 1930 was directed by James Whale. Clive played the tormented alcoholic Captain Stanhope, a character that, much like Clive's other roles, mirrored his personal life. He was an in-demand leading man for a number of major film actresses of the era, including Catherine Hepburn, Betty Davis, Corin Griffith, and Jean Arthur. Clive was also bisexual, so he had many male lovers. Uh, he married Jean de Casales in June 1929. Uh, though they were estranged for several years before his death. Conclyde suffered from severe chronic alcoholism and died from complications of tuberculosis in 1937 at the age of 37. Clive's alcoholism was apparent to his co-stars, and he was often seen napping on set and sometimes was so intoxicated that he had to be held upright for over-the-shoulder shots. Uh, there's a scene in particular in Bride of Frankenstein, I don't know if you guys thought it, but where when he's talking about the heart, 
they're trying to get the heart to work and pump. Yeah. Where he just seems completely plastered. Like he's slurring his words. I'm, I'm sure <laughs> it that he is, was, dude. Yeah, he was wasted, I'm guessing, at that time. Um, so anyway, <laughs> uh, Clive was tormented by the medical threat of amputating his long damaged leg. Forrest J. Ackerman recalled visiting Clive's body in the funeral parlor. He said, as I recall, he had a dressing gown on and he was calmly lying there. And he looked very much like that scene in Bride. Over 300 mourners turned out. One of the pallbearers was Peter Lorre. His cenotaph is located at Chapel of the Pines crematory, the crematory, but his ashes were scattered at sea in 1978 after they spent over 40 years unclaimed in the basement of the funeral parlor where his body was brought after his death. Um, and wow. I know, uh, Mark, you have stuff on Boris Karloff, right? For, uh, yes, there'll, uh, there'll be a... There'll be a Boris Karloff uh, bio at the end of this. Okay. I'll skip my stuff on him then. Yeah, because I think he deserves like a like a whole shindig. So, well, there you go, man. Let's let's rate this thing and let's move on to Bride. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. I'll Come start on. out. Yeah, I was gonna say Susan. I think <laughs> Susan's like Susan's like you three got, out of you, ten. You guys, you got to keep me away from the rest of this box of Girl Scout Thin Mint cookies. Just, oh. just, just. You know, this is Frankenstein night. Just eat it all. Eat it all. I know. I and they're it's like good. They're black and green box and whatever. I'm in. Um, okay, so I, you know, I'm sorry. It's gonna happen. I absolutely love Frankenstein with all of my heart. This is 10 out of 10 glistening rhinestone badass rock and roll skulls out of 10 for me and and plus one really bad dummy thrown off of a cliff. Yeah, that makes it a 10. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, perfect. Perfect score for Perfect score for you and I cannot disagree with you. Um the art in this film, what it did for my love of horror watching it today it means just as much as any time i've seen it so how could i not give frankenstein a perfect 10 so that's it but i do have to say you guys have to get the legacy collection i mean yeah, it's the complete package right i think we all we best. might all have it yeah it's incredible it the it's the, the i mean it covers everything, and you talk about commentaries. I have never heard such a flurry of information other than these Frankenstein commentaries. You will learn some of the most amazing stuff you've ever heard. It's mind-blowing what these guys know, and that's not only to say the picture quality, the, the added scenes, the insights. I mean, it, it's Frankenstein. How could it not get a 10? So that's for me. So, Vin, come on in. What's your score, man? Um, I... I'm not giving a perfect 10. It's like a 9.5 just because there are things in the film that I can't deny that could have been just done a little bit better. Um, but otherwise it's an absolute classic. It's mandatory viewing and especially mandatory viewing for anybody who wants to consider themselves even slightly knowledgeable about the horror genre. I mean, this is like learning a letter of the alphabet when you're trying to learn to read. You know, you, you have to see Frankenstein. You have to know what it's about. Um, it's absolutely essential. So for me, 9.5. Awesome. Mark, let's go. Um, we're going to start right now by advertising for a, a new co-host. <laughs> um, Revan and Vin will be stepping away for a while. Uh, I'm just messing with you. Now, uh, 10 out of 10 for me. Uh, and it, the the very small flaws in the movie, like, you know, dummy 
and totally those sorts of things, they pale in comparison to, um, you know, what this like, movie, like, what this right. movie means and, and what it, what it represents and, and what, what it is. Um, I could watch it five times a day and maybe six times on Sunday. It's a, <laughs> it's a good one. It's a good one. And you, I, I will second that, uh, Walsy that you got to get that legacy collection. Uh, you can get the, the Blu-ray legacy collection, right? For probably about 15 bucks somewhere, yeah. 15, 20 bucks. And, you get all the Frankenstein movies, so yes. all of them, even the Abbott so, and Costello. Yes, yes. So I don't know what you're waiting for. And House of. I tell mean, them, it, tell yeah. them Mark Nato sent you. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> incredible. Um, nothing else could be said there. So, almost, so all, all, guys, all, yes, platinum. almost a forty, but no, <laughs> we've got a thirty-nine and a half. <laughs> I am going to become. I'm going. I am going to be the officially pretentious host. Of this we're, we're not going to. We're not going to let right. Vin rest on this one. Right. This one is not. This one's going to go down in history right now. We're going to okay. be like, Infamy. you know what, know. Vin? You know what, Vin? Save it. You only get Frankenstein at nine point five. We can't be friends anymore. I have just heard <laughs> a terrible story. Let me just say this. I know we're a clean podcast. Oh. Vin, oh, you son is. of a bitch. <laughs> I was playing in the film at Universal and James Whale was the director of Frankenstein and uh, he saw me in the makeup uh, rather in the lunchroom and um, I had my best makeup on a straight makeup and what I thought was my best suit I was playing a different kind of part and he invited me to his table to have a cup of coffee and said he would like to make a test of me for the monster. And I thought, well, that doesn't speak very well of my nice straight makeup and my good suit. However, I was delighted. And uh, they had a fine makeup man at the studio, a man named Jack Pierce. And he experimented and worked on the makeup for two or three weeks, really, before he said, now we are ready, you can photograph it. Mm -hmm. and, and they liked the makeup, the test, and I got the part, and that's how it started. How did you make out with Frankenstein? Did how, you like the, the the person you had to interpret? Oh yes, it was it it, it was a, it was a great challenge, and tremendously interesting because here was a completely helpless, inarticulate, lumbering, helpless creature in a strange and hostile world without speech and he had to communicate to people and it was a challenge to find some way to do it. How did people react to Frankenstein? Well the film itself of course was an enormous success mm -hmm. and um, they had made all told this is Universal who sort of first made the Frankenstein they've made all told I suppose at least a dozen of them mm -hmm. but I only played the monster in the first three mm -hmm because I felt there wasn't much left mm -hmm. to do in the character. It was getting less and less and less. A monster series could be of an appeal to the public. Do you explain the reason of the success of the series? Yes, I think I can. We know that fashions in plays and in films and in stories change. They go in cycles, then they die out, then they come back again. But this kind of story not, not of necessity the monster, but this kind of story seems to go on forever. 
And I've often wondered if the real reason isn't that it's the oldest kind of story in the world, really, that it has its roots very deep in the legends and the fairy tales and the folklore of every race in the world and has a universal appeal. And I think that's why they go on in, in one form or another. Now, they go on without you because you only made the first three. Don't you regret the monster tales? Uh, no, not really. The monster turned out to be the best friend I ever had. He changed the whole course of my life. I was an obscure and struggling, unknown actor. Then all of a sudden I get this marvelous opportunity handed to me with all the help and assistance that I could ask for. And uh, in my career, my work hasn't stopped since. 32 years later, you are asking me about him. Now, who could ask for anything better than that? I have a question. Is there anyone else that, now hear me out before <laughs> before you jump on me, that kind of sees Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein kind of like Halloween 1 and 2, kind of like one long movie? Like oh, you yeah. enjoy watching oh, them together no and, you, and you love it like as one yeah, no, no doubt. No doubt that's what they were going for, you know, picking up right as they left off. I think we're going to get into it, but Bride is a little bit more uh, comedic, you know, has a lot of more black comedy in it. But yeah, definitely that's exactly what they were going for. Yep, no yeah. doubt. I got something to say about that when we start talking about Bride, but should be should be right now. So go yeah, ahead. let's do it. <laughs> let's get can't wait! Can't wait to see what Vin gives this one. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler gonna... alert! Oh, this will be like a seven and a half. It, right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. The first Gothic that I fell in love with was Bride of Frankenstein. She's alive! Alive! I saw it as a boy, and I probably would have been about 12. Stayed up for it. And it was one of those late-night Saturday horror things where they showed both. Uh, you've got Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. And Frankenstein was a huge disappointment to me. Um... I'd been expecting, I don't know what I'd expected, but somehow what I wanted was, was much more than what I got. Um, Bride of Frankenstein, on the other hand, was delirious. Um, it had this very, very strange plot that I didn't understand as a boy, in which, you know, a lab has burned down already, you have uh, this mysterious Dr. Pretorius. I was never quite sure what he was doing with little homunculi, but there were these tiny little people and he was making them. And then he's working um, with, with, with Frankenstein to build a bride for the monster. And then it turns up and it's Elsa Lanchester. And it's my favorite, what is it, two, three minutes at most of film ever is between the cloth coming off and Elsa Lanchester coming to life and her seeing Boris Karloff. And... 
friend. Screaming, him, you know, hitting the "We Belong Dead" switch, and uh, and everything going. That's I just think that's perfect. Um, I had no idea what it was about, quite what had happened, and I felt afterwards like I'd watched something faintly dreamlike. The peculiar thing about *Bride of Frankenstein* was it stayed one of my favorite films. Um, I have seen it every few years, um, whenever you know, whenever I could, in whatever way I could, and I even showed it to my daughter when she was about eleven or twelve, and really into movies. And watching her peculiar disappointment in it, realizing that if I'd shown her at that age, you know, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Nice, big, amiable film with, with, with proper villains and things. She would have loved it. And instead, it was this film that is all atmosphere and all strange, slightly camp oddness. Um, and again, this, this, a plot that is almost impossible to describe because it doesn't quite make sense enough to be describable. It's like a dream on waking. You accept it moment by moment as you go, and then Bride of Frankenstein is done. The We Belong Dead switch has been pulled, and uh, and it's all over. And you go, what? What was that? What was that? One minute we're there's, there's the beautiful young Elsa Lanchester actually getting to act playing Mary Shelley, saying, oh yes, there's more. And the next, you're into this strange, hyperbolic, hyper-real dream world. And it's, I think it's magic. All right, so Bride of Frankenstein, 1935. This is the direct sequel to, of course, Frankenstein from 1931. This holds a 7.9 star out of 10 review on IMDb. 33,500 ratings. It runs about one hour, 15 minutes. It actually has right on here comedy, drama, and horror. And it was released on May 6, 1935 in the United States. The director, of course, is once again James Whale. Writers, Mary Shelley, suggested by the original story, written in 1816 as Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. William Holbert, that was what it was adapted by. And it stars Boris Karloff once again, reprising his iconic role as the monster. We got Colin Clive back as Henry Frankenstein. We got Valerie Hobson as Elizabeth. Ernest Ernest Fesger as Dr. Pretorius. Oh, is he eclectic in this? <laughs> we got Elsa Lanchester as Mary Wallenscraft Shelley and the monster's mate. Woohoo! Yes, yes. We got Gavin Although at Gordon. that point in her life, she should have been called Mary Godwin. Just That's for true. Just be a little stickler there. They weren't married yet. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> so. Mark, get on IMDb. Fix that. Fix that now. <laughs> okay, we got Gavin Gordon as Lord Byron, Douglas Walton as Piercy Bysu Shelley. What's that, Mark? Uh, 
I was just going to say, please don't even mention Gavin Gordon because he yeah. was just – that guy <laughs> was trilling the R's so much – <laughs> oh, at the beginning of this movie, what a lovely day! I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna shoot you through the TV screen. I could not and stand of course, him. Anyway, I love that. <laughs> you know, I would. Yes, we got uh, uh, Una O'Connor back again. You know, classic face of Universal. Many as many got E.E. E. Clive as the Burgermeister. Uh, we got Dwight Fry back, uh, and he is Carl. We got Reginald Barlow as Hans, Mary Gordon as Hans' wife, and Annie Darling as the shepherdess, as Anne Darling. Okay, here we go. Direct sequel of Bride of Frankenstein. And Mark, I think you got some more stuff about the budget and its conversions. I does, I does. Um, <clears throat> the budget in this one, well, because of the, the big uh, success of the first one, they upped the budget, and this one is up to about 400000 uh, estimated around 397,000. So, uh, if we're going in 2017 money, that's the equivalent of 7.09 million dollar budget. Nice. So the budget went up considerably on this one. Uh, and it made approximately, now this, this is, sorry, this is what I got on the, on the, um, the internet. And I'm sure there are other ways to kind of figure out, you know, how much this made, um, because I'm, I'm not sure if this is just the first year or what, but it, it made two million, the equivalent of thirty-five point four million. So still, um, you know, a big success, but not not in comparison to the first one. Um, and I just wanted to mention that Karloff got paid uh, twelve thousand five hundred dollars for this movie, the equivalent of two hundred twenty-one thousand dollars. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. I, now was that was that like huge for that time no. as an actor? No, it, it, I mean, I think even was, after what it did, the first yeah, movie. That's I think crazy. I think it was, I think he was paid. I think it was well. respectable. Yeah, yeah, it was respectable, but it, was, it wasn't it was like good. Yeah, he wasn't like top earner or something that year or anything like that. But you know, gotcha. I think it was. Um, I think he was paid. It was by the week. And that end up whatever being uh, uh maybe I think it might have been like a like a two thousand dollars a week in a six week shoot or something like that, but it ended up being twelve thousand five hundred. I got you for the it's for the entire better than film. being paid in hard boiled eggs. So absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, little <laughs> that Maria, is correct. little Maria sitting by the bank eating hard boiled eggs. What the <laughs> heck is going on? That's funny. Yeah, and and I think. Uh, from all my reading and research, I mean this this is really thought to be by many critics to be the the, the perfect horror film uh, I've I've read, or at least the perfect horror sequel. Uh, I'm not sure if I agree with all that, but it is undoubtedly one of the best Universal horror movie um, movies, or it's I think it's definitely the best sequel to all the. Uh, Universal horror movie. It's without movies. a doubt, I think the the best made. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, technically, all yes. the stops are pulled out on this one. Yep. Yes, a uh, bunch of new camera tricks, bunch of new effects. Um, let's let's get into it. Um, you know, what we didn't do on Frankenstein. We got to bring them in. First impressions of the sequel. So, uh, mm-hmm. Vin, what were your first impressions of the Bride? I mean, 
I didn't see this one as a kid. I know I saw parts of the first Frankenstein as a kid. Um, this one I saw as an adult, and I was really impressed with it. Um, I, I remember watching Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein back-to-back and just being really kind of blown away by this film, just by how how far ahead of its time it felt. Um, you know, watching something, it, it, it's hard to believe that you're watching something from 1935 when you're seeing this. Um, just with, I mean, it's it's a batty film. It, it is, there is some weird stuff going on. Um, really? But it's it's so ambitious. There is such, you know, there's some really witty dialogue going on. Um, it still packs some horror into it. Uh, so I just remember being really blown away by it. That's the uh, yeah. basically the same first impression as me. I've never seen it as a child, um, unlike the original Frankenstein. Believe it or not, I ha- I've never seen this until the Legacy Collection came out. I've never seen The Bride what? until that. Yes, wow. I'm, I'm, I'm oh being my honest. Oh, God. Wow. And, um, yeah, all, it was just one of those. You know how we all have those movies that are on our wall of shame that everybody saw? It's I, the I blind spot. Yeah. It's the blind yeah, spot. exactly. Yeah. Uh, and this was one of them. Like I knew, I knew the monster. I knew, I knew the bride. I knew what she looked like. You know, it's just ingrained in in just our subculture of it. Mm-hmm. And so I gave it. You know, I like I did with every single legacy collection when they released. I bought them all and I watched them in order, as I said on Dracula. So when I made it through, uh, the I didn't watch Frankenstein originally, so I put in the sequel. And it, it really did blow me away, technically. Just like Vin, you mentioned, it's hard to believe you're watching something made. What was it, 1935? Yeah. That, it's insane, actually. Like to make that equivalent today, I don't think you could with how much you know the effects jumped. Everything about it, man, was just it blew me away. But but there was a lot of stuff in it that. I when it was like the funny kind of weird humor threw me off. This was just my first impression, but mm-hmm. I'll talk about when I ended up watching it again and again. So that was just that for first impressions. So Mark, what were your first impressions? <clears throat> yeah, well, I I saw this one when I was a kid as well. Um, probably on late night TV. I don't remember this one quite as um, vividly as I do my first watching of the original, but. Um, yeah, it, it is definitely a different tone th- than the first movie. And, um, I, I think, uh, you know, choosing to, to have the monster talk and, and, and all that, it, it does lend itself a little bit to that, that dark comedy. And, um, but it's, it's, um, it's more of a, like a fantasy world. You know, to me, where where the first one kind of seemed like it was rooted more in reality. Yeah, this one just kind of seemed like a really crazy fairy tale. Yeah, you know, but I liked it. Uh, I I do. I like it. I love it. I think it's a really, really good movie. Again, I think tonally different than the first one, but um, but I, I think that it it has its merits. You know, it stands on its own. Uh, I have I have some definitely some dislikes in this movie more so than I did from the first one, but man, the first impression is a still still a great movie, still a great movie. Yeah. Okay. Very good, man. Uh, Susan, what were your first impressions ever well, seeing I, this film? I first saw this. Uh, I want to say when I was a teenager on TV. 
I like TV or cable, you know, whatever. Um, and, I, you know, I had heard about Bride of Frankenstein and everything, and my first impressions were that that I really, I really did like it as far as the pacing and all of that. Just like you guys said, it seemed like it was ahead of its time period um, for all of that and and effects wise and and everything. But I remember my first thing, I'm like, okay, where's the bride already? <laughs> but but these scenes with the blind musician. And mm-hmm. Frankenstein like stayed ingrained in my brain for the rest of my life from that time on. So I love, you know, the bride, but that that part of it was actually um, what stood out more to me. You know, that for the first interaction, that whole scene. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it just really, really stuck with me. And I was like, oh, I love this. Um, but uh, again, uh, always, you know, the first one had the biggest impact on me, but I I really did enjoy this one and, and that just really kind of made an impact on me specifically. Awesome. Okay. So let's just hop in with some likes here. Um, Mark, throw out your likes. Well, I I definitely uh, will agree with Susan who said this just a little bit earlier. I really like the fact that this is a true sequel picking up right where the original left off. I was like, how in the heck did this monster survive this, this, you know, this windmill crashing down on top of him. But you know what? It's, it's kind of like the first in a, in a long line of horror icons refusing to be killed. Yep. You know, they, they come <laughs> <Jason>. back. Yes. <laughs> Jason, Michael Myers, Freddie, whoever it is. Yeah. Frankenstein did it first. Okay. Um, I really like the better looking Elizabeth. Uh, <laughs> I like I like I like Elizabeth in this one a little bit more. But it was crazy. She was seventeen years old. I know, what? beautiful. Yes, seventeen years old when they made this movie. Wow. Is that crazy? Crazy. Yeah, she's beautiful. I, I mean, I think that's illegal, right? I mean, with the nude hey. scene and all. Yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Did I have the wrong movie? <laughs> just kidding. But um, yeah. uh, and I my one of my favorites likes about this movie. Is uh, Ernest uh, Thysiger? Is that how you say his name? Thesiger. 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 Yeah. As Dr. Pretorius, uh, as soon as he came on the screen, by the way, this is the first time I've seen this in quite a while. So I didn't even realize who this guy was. The first time he came on screen, I was like, I know that face. Where is he from? He has just got some striking. Just like Boris Karloff has those striking features in the first movie, <clears throat> uh, he really has some striking, strange features. Yeah, mm-hmm. and 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 it came to me, and I don't know if you guys love uh, a, a Christmas Carol. It's one yeah. of the best versions of a Christmas Carol. Well, it's it's one of my favorite stories of, of all time. You know, it's a little bit of horror. It's a little bit of you know um, Christmas. It, it's it's all that rolled up into one. And I've seen every version of it. This guy played the Undertaker in in the the Reginald Owen version from from back in the 30s. Yep. And oh, um, was he? I'll have to, yes, that's one I watch every Christmas. I'll have to really look out yeah. for that. Yeah, yes. he's the perfect grave digger. <laughs> yes. Just and I was like, look. I said, I knew I knew this guy from somewhere, and I looked it up, and that was it. But, man, he's really good in this movie. He's oh, yeah, really he's good. He's I so mean, uh, He has the best dialogue. 
he does the show. Yeah. oh yeah i love how uh you know when he's in the crypt and he's laughing over the girl's bones <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> he, he doesn't bat in an eye when the monster shows up you know it's just yeah. like you know it's, he's just like hey have a drink <laughs> yeah he, like yeah well, he says originally he says gin is my only weakness and then he says yeah. cigars yeah they're, they're my only weakness like every single yes. vice is this guy's only weakness well, um, well i love i love the fact that the um the his his full name I'm sure you have this, Vin, written down as trivia. His full name, uh, I forget exact, Septimus Pretorius or something. It's Latin and, and it means the Royal Seven. And it was, it was, um, Seven so, Deadly Sins. Yes, yeah. supposed to be a nod to the Seven Deadly Sins. Um, so, but he is definitely a sinister, oh, yeah. uh, sinister villain. He, he has the best line in the movie when, uh, someone says, I love dead, hate living. And he says, "You're wise in your generation." <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> yes, that's but, awesome. And and I love, uh, dude. Again, 1935. I really love the effects that they came up with for all the people that he had in in uh, yeah. in the jars. Dude. I was like, yeah. that really looks good. I Even know. Does. It looks like, great. how about the mermaid? Yes. Yeah. Like, yes. Uh, it is mind blowing. And when you put this DVD in or Blu-ray right now, it looks great. Yep. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, yeah. It, that's it gets a little silly. Yeah. It gets a little silly with with the king. Look terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it looks no. Good. no. It looks really good because I know they had the actors actually in like full size jars. Yes. Yeah. You know, they were actually in there. And then they composited it and everything. But it also provides a great opportunity for satire. You kind of have yes. this lecherous king, and the, the one that's the most disagreeable, he made an archbishop. <laughs> you know? Yes, yes. <laughs> all the different, all the different things that you know, the, the different roles that he made for them, depending yeah, on what their their you know. The love. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, like yeah, whatever their their uh, personality was, he kind of delegated whatever role they were going to have. Now that's so yes. funny, and I, I like um, uh, Frankenstein's. Uh, comment, you know, when he sees this, he's like, "This is not science; it's black magic." <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they they took one of the jars out too. Like the there was originally like a baby in a high chair. Um, yeah, <laughs> but it was seen as going too far, you know, to have this baby in there. But there's one there's one shot where you can see all the jars, and you can actually still see the baby in one of those jars. That's um, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's the special effects in this are through the roof. Best of the best. Like like I said, even compared to today, just fantastic. Such a such a fun weird movie to me. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're definitely not expecting that. <laughs> yeah. And it, just no, like you, the first right? movie, even more. I grew it, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, he was great. Just like the first movie, even more in this one. The interiors are awesome. The sets, I mean, they they look fantastic. Oh, I love yeah. the the arches, the arches um <clears throat> that are in the estate, you know uh, Frankenstein's estate. They're these big, these like consecutive arches that kind of get smaller on the screen, going towards the door. You know the way that these sets are built, they, it looks like something that's kind of again right out of nineteen twenties, the Golem. It's it's really fantastic. All all the different sets that are in this. Yeah, even the outdoor when he's walking around and there's oh, what yeah. are they lambs or whatever, and that little fountain you know that little yeah. waterfall when he drinks the water and then oh, yeah amazing. and then later on when he's going through the forest and the trees are just basically telephone poles i know yeah. you know they're just poles. there's like this just this dead landscape that he's going through and then he's going through the cemetery and he's knocking over 
you know, headstones and stuff like that. He's really angry, but all the headstones are like have these weird angles. Angles, you know, yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's so just, it amazing. looks fantastic. It's amazing looking character. Yeah, there's so much character in the backgrounds of these movies. James Whale mm-hmm. was just a genius. Like like every single thing on screen, there's a meaning. Mm-hmm. Love that about him. And it, he went on to do just with his effects. Like look at the Invisible Man. You know, like you could tell this guy was always pushing forward. Oh yeah, it's, it's so sad to hear that mm-hmm. later on in his career, what happened. Uh, because of his sexuality, I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. I did want to give a, a shout out. I mean, th- I know James Whale had a lot to do with it, but uh, Charles D. Hall is the art director for this movie, as, mm-hmm. as well as Frankenstein. So, you know, he came up with a lot of lot of stuff that you see. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he did, uh, man, he did so much stuff. Um he kept him around too. Yes, yes. I mean, he he went all the way up until uh, 1958, um, but he was he went all the way back. Uh, let me look here. All the way back. Oh my good lord! This dude started movies in 1918. Wow. With a with a short. He was a production designer on a, a short called A Dog's Life in 1918, and then. He was a assistant art director on the Hunchback of Notre Dame uh, from nineteen oh, really? uh, from nineteen twenty three, um, the original. Wow. You know, the, I mean, oh, wow. so uh, art director uh, on Phantom of the Opera from the 19- best of the best from man. The, you know, been with Universal for a long time. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, so uh, the man who laughs. He was oh, the, nice. Uh, one of my favorites. Art, he was the art film. director and technical. So, you know, not just James Whale, but man, just. Yeah. There's a lot of talent, uh, you know, behind oh, yeah. this. Well, I mean, even behind yeah. the art direction, the, the lighting and cinematography. Oh, my God. Yes. I yeah. love, especially when they're creating the bride and the, you know, Clive, uh, Clive Owens and Thesiger's faces, like they're flashing in the lights. Flash. Yep. You know, yes. and you can see this, the deep shadows on them. It's just, it looks fantastic. It looks amazing. Yeah. It's like love- they had an all-star team. Like they grabbed yeah. the best oh, of yeah. the best. Everybody's in the top of their game. Everybody. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I love that one scene uh, where the monster is coming to find Dr. Pretorius, and he's just kind of like in the shadows. I don't know mm-hmm. if you remember that scene, but, man, just uh, – Oh, hell yeah. yeah. Oh, man. The scene where, where uh, Frankenstein's monster uh, – by the way, it, it's okay if you refer to Frankenstein's monster as Frankenstein. Yeah. Because I mean, l- let's just say this. Don't be that guy. He's yeah. still <laughs> – Exactly. He's the son of Frankenstein. You know, he is Dr. Frankenstein's basically his son. So he was he is also Frankenstein. So I don't know. Whatever. Uh let's and not get pl- into plays that. before this, the the plays that happened in like the early nineteen hundreds, late eighteen hundreds, like they they purposely kind of confused the two too. So Yeah, yeah. Saw them as kind of doppelgangers or, you know, reflections of each other. So it's something right. that goes back quite yeah. a long ways. Yeah. And I always catch myself <laughs> saying Frankenstein when I mean the monster. So, you know, if you are that guy, I apologize. I, I mean the monster. I mean, it's how yeah, the brain yeah. of our minds. Just in reference to the monster, though, I mean, they do con- they do continue that amazing, you know, that 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 pity that you feel for him. Oh, yeah, it's I, even I just, heightened. That one scene where he, when he he finds a body in the crypt and he waves mm-hmm. his hand over its face and he says, I "Friend," know. you know, know, it's oh man, that. that's yeah. Th- this movie is just what you said, Walshy. It's heightened. Th- this makes me feel even worse yeah, it's because he actually, he actually has a friend 
you know, in, in, in this, um, the hermit. So happy. I mean, you know, I, I love the whole, uh, music calms the savage beast, you know, mm-hmm. thing. And, and, and he's learning and he's, oh, smoke, good, good. You know, and he's just, he is just having himself a great time with his friend. And, you know, people come and, and ruin it, you know, and, um, it makes you feel really, really bad. That, that scene is so beautifully shot, though. Um, and all the themes behind it with that man, that blind man, uh, not knowing. What what is standing in front of them, and it's like they both needed each other the most at that moment. That man was mm-hmm. waiting for a friend, and obviously the monster was waiting for a, a, a friend. And yeah. um, just the way it takes place in the middle of the woods, um, and what'd you say? The smoke, the music, and then all of a sudden, what is it? Two hunters come along, and he turns right back yeah. into what he hates the most. Dag- one of those John- hunters was John Carradine. John Carradine, yeah. Dag Nabbit. <laughs> What? No wonder you were uncredited. Are he was uncredited. <laughs> yes. That's awesome. Um, yeah, that, that's that's such an emotional scene. Yeah, and Op uh, Heggie did did a great job as as the hermit. He was he was really cast well. I, I think that this, if we wanted to jump into one of the themes here, because I think it's really interesting, is James Whale does so much with like religious iconography in this. He always did, yeah. And oh, yeah. he really he he's kind of he seems to be delineating, drawing a line between kind of um, what he considers to be maybe the more positive aspects of religion and what he doesn't. You know, because mm-hmm. w- when this when the monster's with the blind man, um, the blind man seems to represent this kind of true religious charity. You know, you got the hermit's robe looks just right out of the New Testament. You know, um, yes. there's a cross on the wall. He gives a prayer. Their dinner is of bread and wine before yeah. the hunters show up. It's basically the Last Supper. The Last Supper. Communion. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Mean, but also in the film, the the monster is crucified. Yeah, you know, he's resurrected. So we have that kind of that Christ imagery there. But yeah. at the same time, there's jabs at religion, especially with religious authority. You know, because Pretorius, he kind of dismissively refers to Bible stories. You know, the way that he says it, you know, he doesn't believe any of it. And also, when the monster's in the graveyard, he topples a statue of an archbishop. You know, so he seems to kind of be like, yes, the religious charity is fine. But when you start kind of making it, I don't know, maybe political or make it authoritative, that's when Whale seems to be, you know, more, more likely to put it down. Especially well, it's the same. Yeah, it's the same message uh, that Jesus had to tell you the truth. I mean, because because yep. when Jesus came along, who who were the ones that wanted Mark, to kill him and, and crucify him? Killed they the Pharisees, the religious people, the yep. the uppity, the authority. Yeah, yeah the, the authorities. Authority. You know, and, and that, that's that's what jesus spoke against and that's why they killed him you know so you know you've got a lot of the same you know themes running through but man uh just (laughs) shoes you can't these two movies together man you could just do like a uh, i'm sure there have been just books written on uh yeah (laughs) you know the themes and and those sorts of things and maybe maybe vin will have a book coming out uh, I'm waiting for him year. to write a book, man. That so guys, listeners, get on him. Let you him are write too. Yeah. Book. That's right. That's right get too. Parts one that and two. Because there, there's so many. Both of these films. I mean, there, there's such a, a, a social commentary. I mean, a religious. Com- I mean, there's so many facets to this. You know that 
that you can yep. really dig apart. I mean, we could talk about it probably for 24 hours straight, you know? Yep. <laughs> yeah, well, it, and going back, it, it, it affects a believer and it affects a non-believer. That's, yep. It's amazing. Yeah. Yep. Now, now let me. It's no. touching on something that's human. That's right. Yes. You know, whether that's whether right. you believe in a higher power or not, you're human. That's right. You know, and that's as long it. as the truth is hitting that, you're you're still being you're still being affected by it. You're still you're still a target. <laughs> you yeah, know. Yeah. Now, now I will say this. Uh, moving on to another like, I liked that this is kind of the first Universal monster movie to have a score throughout. Mm. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Whereas, like nowadays, we have a score, you know, underneath of a movie that's just like par for the course, right? Right. Uh, but but then they were just kind of starting to do that, so there was no silence. <laughs> I mean, it, it played through the whole, you know, pretty much the whole movie. There was something, you know, going on, uh, even in parts where I didn't think it really needed to be there. But uh, I thought the score was good. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, very, um, I don't, I'm not trying, trying to say what the score was. Somebody give me a word that was Swe- uh, well, sweeping, you know, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there were certain, certain parts where, you know, it became a little lighter uppity. Yeah. That, yeah. A little, a little yeah. lighter, a little, you know, and that, that kind of lent to that, you know, comedic feel. Yeah, yeah, it, it complimented it. Yeah, yeah, it definitely yeah. complimented it. Yeah, but you know, that's, sometimes I don't feel like that's necessarily a good thing. You know, for a horror movie to have that kind of music in it. But again, this is 1935. They're going with the flow of the of the of the movie and what's happening in the movie. You know, this is happening, so it's a little bit more light and a little bit more airy and you know, and then we're gonna get into the horror, so we're gonna get you know but you know, that I thought I thought it was kinda cool that they, they did the score through the entire movie underneath mm-hmm. of it all. So Yep. Good, good, good. Can can we also talk about the fact that the age-old dilemma of the guy going after the girl and the girl being repulsed by the guy totally happens in this film. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Another heartbreaking moment for uh, the monster. I it's know. He's madly in love with her. Right? Yeah. He's madly in love with her. She is not having it. I'm, <laughs> I'm, hissing. I'm hissing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, at the end, he thinks he's going to get something for him. That's meant for him. And and it's another letdown. It's brutal. It's a very emotional film. And when When he says, she hates me, oh my God, it's heartbreaking. (laughs) Yes. Just the little touch that I think is brilliant in that scene, though, is when she first tries to scream and can't. Yeah. Yeah. It's like her vocal cords haven't kicked in yet. So she kind of lets out this, (laughs) "Ah, ah," you know. Yeah. yeah, but it's what, it's a, it's kind of, it's almost a little bit unnerving, you know. Wasn't when, that intentional? She like thought about you, you know she was thinking about that. I think I read that about that uh, with her voice doing that. She would just came to life, so she didn't know how to use it. So that's why that noise did come out. That was her yeah. reaction. It's great though. It's it's a great little touch. That's it is. 
Well, she's she said that she based her little performance there, the hissing on the swans. Yep, you the know, swan. Yeah, because yeah. if you've ever been around some swans, they are not particularly friendly. <laughs> um, and that was really cool. And just think about this: how iconic the Bride of Frankenstein is. Oh yeah. And what has she got? Five minutes screen time. Mm-hmm. I know. I mean, I mean, the, the movie. Film, if you go in. <laughs> Bride of Frankenstein, you're thinking to see the Bride of Frankenstein through the whole movie. No, you see her in five minutes at the end. But, I mean, she is just as iconic, just as iconic as Frankenstein's monster uh, yeah. in our culture. And th- that's how effective it was. And this is way too early for the trivia, but um, she's also the only universal monster that never killed anyone. Hmm. Wow, wow that's right. Was she the first female it has I, yeah, to be, right? Yeah, the first, yeah, the first female, female monster. The only, she, non-gender specific. She's the only universal monster that never killed anyone. It, either intentionally or unintentionally, well, she never right. killed anyone. She I mean, she's only in it for five minutes, but that's what She I didn't have a chance. <laughs> well, she I wanted it was a chance was to really, kill people. <laughs> I wonder if that was exciting for women back then to see, like, this huge thing come out, uh, Frankenstein, this movie, and then they're doing a sequel, and they name it that. Uh, I wonder if it was exciting knowing that there's going to be a monster as a woman or was it uh, or did it detract because the budget because the income wasn't as high. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Did men yeah. not go see it because back in the day because it said bride of it. So it didn't make as much money. You ever think about that? Oh, yeah, hmm. that's a good that's a good thought. It's I mean, if that were to happen today, it would make me want to go see it today. Right. Back that's then what I'm was saying. A whole back di- then. Yeah. Back then was a whole different story. So, well, what I'm thinking and, and I just didn't do the the digging is maybe the the numbers I had from Frankenstein. Maybe that uh, was including like the re-release as well. Um, and this one, you know, wasn't re-released in in. You know, it, it was just Dracula and Frankenstein, so maybe that is why it's so much more. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. I don't know. I don't know either. But thought, yeah, I have to do some research on that. Hey, you, you want to know what else was a really heartbreaking scene to me when the villagers capture him, and it goes back to again, uh, almost. Almost a, a Bible thing again. How he gets yeah put the on crucify. The stake. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was most definitely the imagery of of the cross. I it mean, just comes back again, and yeah. and then they drop him onto that uh, the hay. You know the the yeah. barrels of hay, and it's so terribly sad watching Karloff's reaction. Um, knowing mm-hmm. he's captured and he's being subdued, then they bring him right in and put him and pound in. You know they they restrain him on this chair. Yes. Yeah. That's a brutal it, scene, man. You think of how how you know frightened this this be, this it. being must be. You know, he's been alive for what you know not not that long, and all he's known is uh, you know hatred, hatred, and and except for the the hermit, so. right? One person. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I love the design of the bride. That was pretty cool. I like how they uh, chose to do that with that uh, different colored hair and almost uh, the electric think, strike. Yes, the, so the smart. And I think they used like some some horse hair wire or something to keep her hair up like that. Yeah, it was like a net. Yeah, and uh, I loved the uh, 
the call back to the first movie where uh, Dr. Frankenstein, you know, she's alive. She's alive. <laughs> I like that. And then uh, I loved I loved how she was wrapped up like a mummy there and you could see her eyes open um when they brought her back down. That was cool. Yeah, very awesome look for her. I I enjoy that too. I mean, the guy could not make a bad-looking creature monster. He everything he did was so so once again iconic. Well, I kind of like it how you know, th- this this was more of a uh, a delicate type thing. Like Frankenstein was just kind of like pieced together, right? From from she was multiple. Prettier. Yeah, well, she was just one woman, right? That's it. Yeah, right. Back. Like just one woman that this yeah. guy went went and killed, right? I mean, she yeah, they fresh. got the bones for her. Yeah, but I think that it was uh, Pretorius's ability to grow the rest of her. The yes. magic, pretty much, part. right? I think that's what mm-hmm. it was. Yeah, they, yep. they grew the brain instead of took a brain, and yeah, so yeah. she's a little more, uh, a little more delicately put together. You know, Frankenstein is just like a big, you know, he's he's big jigsaw puzzle of all kinds of stuff. So he's, you know, but she was she was uh, she was awesome. That was it was such a good uh, a good moment and a sad moment. So all he wanted was a wife. Daggone it. <laughs> women for you for you women out there just just try to take a look on the inside you know don't judge a book by its cover <laughs> i'm just kidding uh, i'm glad that my wife took that advice so yes <clears throat> anything else man that we that we liked when we said the sets the score i think the acting is all good i think the movie has aged tremendously well mm. Well, I know I, the I, film. Go ahead, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna say, I'm. If you guys remember, I said during my first impressions that I was, I, I wasn't as happy with it as watching the original because of that huge tonal change, um, mm-hmm. with a lot of the comedy. But this movie is one of the one of the biggest movies that grew on me the most. Uh, watching it other times, you know, uh, it, it, it the the rating kept going higher. Um, not only because of the technicality, but because of how much is put into it uh, with the comedy, the horror, the the sounds, the look, everything yeah. about it. Uh, I I don't know why originally. I guess I was looking forward to a direct sequel of just something very similar to the original Frankenstein, and I think that's why Whale did, Whale did not want to do this. Um, well, so I he. Think- Sorry, do you want to finish up that thought? Well, I know he didn't want to do this, and finally, yeah. as like as like a middle finger, he threw in all this stuff, but it works. I think that you know, I think there is a valid. I think we should just mention it: a valid kind of homosexual reading in the film. That yeah, we I didn't mention that. That's right. That, yeah, that I, I think kind of helps to explain the tone, maybe a little bit. You know, we have Pretorius, who is obviously meant to read as gay. Yeah, he's clearly. You know? yeah. And he's he tempts Henry away on his wedding night so that they can go basically procreate without the use of females, you know. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> and Whale Whale, as we said as I said before, he's he was a gay Englishman. He would have naturally felt like an outsider in Hollywood, especially. Um, but he was also growing up, he was this young artist in a factory town where his interests were really not met with any kind of tolerance. Um, Ernest Thesiger was openly gay. Colin Clive was bisexual. You know, I think that all of this really helped to create a sympathy for the persecuted outsider. So I think that there is this kind of natural 
tendency within the film, especially when you see the people who are making it, to really sympathize with the monster, especially as he's being misunderstood, as he's being, you know, hunted down. You know, these men, you know, they, they were risking their careers by being kind of openly gay, you know, and the fact that, you know, it, it's debatable whether Wales' career totally suffered because of that. Um, but, you know, Thesiger is, it was hard to hide the fact that he was gay, you know, um, right. he was very flamboyant. And what you see as Pretorius is apparently pretty much how he was in real life. I mean, this yeah, is I the read guy that. he was. Um, so, you know, these guys, but they always would have been aware of what society it could it could destroy their career at any second you know so i think that them you know you kind of have this camp sensibility which has been in gay culture for a very very long time mm-hmm. um you know it, it, we have the wit of thesinger that we see a lot with kind of gay humor yeah. um and i think that helps it and that combined with just this kind of again the sympathy for the persecuted outsider i think that really helps to explain why this film has that kind of tonal shift but it it still completely respects the monster and everything else. You know, nothing is compromised because of it. Um, but it, it just adds this kind of extra layer onto the story that wasn't in the first film, but that just kind of it, it flexes the muscles of the the tale a little bit more. Absolutely, I yeah. love how you brought that together. I never thought of that too. Yeah. Then, dude, you. I like when you do reviews, man. You make me think a lot about these films that like things that I don't see. You should have me on the show more often. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) You're invited back. Uh, Hey, I did want to make a a quick. That's awesome. I wanted to make a quick uh, um, correction. I said that uh, what's his name? Um, Oh my gosh, why the heck am I not? Ernest uh, Thysinger. Thysinger. I said he was the Undertaker in Original Owen. He was not. He was the Undertaker in the 1951 Alistair Sim. Oh, okay. Is that the Christmas one, Carol? But he's the perfect Undertaker. Yes, but that was my favorite Christmas Carol. Alistair Sim is. I don't know if I've so, seen that one. I'll have to check that oh, one out. Are you kidding me? Oh man, you got to see. Oh, you'll that know one. it's him. It's his face, man. You'll you'll know. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the best adaptation of the Christmas Carol. I, I usually watch the original Owen one every every year. Oh, oh so yeah. do I. I also put that in rotation too. Yeah, but definitely see that one. So I just wanted to. I was looking uh, at uh, Ernest's other stuff, and I was like, oh, made that mistake. So. Correction made. All right, yep. why don't we why don't we move into some dislikes? We still have another film to hop into. Yep. I've already said, man, uncontrollable rolling R's for Lord Byron at the beginning. Uh, uh, I was, he was he was just too, uh, and I don't mean this in a homosexual way, gay. You know what I mean? How they say he was just gay and happy. That dude was on some opium or something. I just wanted to get a baseball bat and smash him in the face with it. Um, <laughs> and I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. Look, look, I know he's supposed to be. I know it's supposed to be eighteen eighteen or whatever, and this is what they did, and whatever. Um, well, at least it's what Whale wanted to depict as being. You know, eighteen sixteen, in you know, <laughs> at least yeah, that's, right. the, um, that's, <laughs> that's definitely right. his his version of it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Lord Byron, we know he was a pretty flamboyant, you know, yes. <laughs> guy. No, but yeah, uh, no, yeah, no I'm it's, not, it's over the top. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how I felt about the 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 beginning 
where you know they're showing Lord Byron and 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 Mary Shelley. I don't and, I don't like the beginning. I'm not, uh, I'm not sure how I felt it. about it. Uh, I'm not sure if it's a like or dislike. I don't really like it, but I don't like dislike it. But I'm just like I'm not sure that was even necessary. Yeah, I mean, I just yeah. kind of wish they threw just jumped right into the sequence after it. Yeah. I mean, exactly. I see what he did. I know what he did, you know, and and you get to see uh, when what is it, Lancaster or whatever. Yeah, you know, yeah, Lancaster, yeah, in it, uh, which is a really cool thing to do. But it, for me, if they took it out, I'd be happier. Believe it or not, that that's my yeah. that's the way I look at it. I know that Whale had claimed that the prologue was supposed to show that very pretty people can have very ugly thoughts. Um, you know, and it. It was also used as a, f- a framing device to kind of create a morality tale, you know, that's kind mm-hmm. of coming from one woman's mind. So then Whale could actually be excused of being accused of condoning the more subversive elements of the story. You know, it was mm-hmm. kind of especially that little that little quip that she has, you know, to show that, you know, a moral man, you know, what happens when he tries to, you know, basically yes. play God. You know, th- that, that was really just to please the censors. Um, yeah. And I think that by Whale doing that, he also maybe was trying to get – it, the fact that this is all just coming from this one this one woman who's telling a story, there are changes made from the first film um, that maybe it excuses a little bit, um, or at least it tries to. Because, I mean, you know, it rewrites the ending of the first film. The Baron is yeah. all of a sudden, now he's dead after hearing that Henry might have died. You know, when yeah. at the end of the first film, we saw... Henry in bed and the Baron's all happy and having drinks with the Toasting. maids. You know, yeah, it's like yes. that's a major rewrite. You know, yes. So maybe, although although yeah. that wasn't really uh, Colin uh, Clyde, right, right. He was already on his way back to England at that point. Yes. Um, but you know, that's a major rewrite. That I think that the fact that he's saying, "Oh no, this is Mary Shelley just telling her story," you know, I think that's all part of it. And there were actually yeah. supposed to be several more minutes of that dialogue, but they were cut because of too many shots of Elsa Lanchester's cleavage. Uh, so the censors made them take out those parts. I really had no complaints with that part. That's no, a shame. Just, <laughs> I, I, I see the, those parts? <laughs> <laughs> Two parts in particular. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, no, there was definitely a I reason. thought there were actually assets to that scene. Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's the other side. We got there jokes. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, um, yeah. Uh, and another, another thing that really – I know this was – she was there to you know, get this, the the comedy, but Minnie. Oh, you know Connor? Oh, yeah. You, you she graded on, on me. My, yeah, you hit I, on my dislike. Yeah. Oh, she was just annoying. I was He's like, an enough. Face. I think enough. that's a universal dislike. Uh, why, why did we have to go from like, like the, almost like the, in the first movie, they were like kind of German, like, you know, villagers, you know, and, and now we've got like crazy, cock- <laughs> crazy cockney, you know, but, and, but and what I, the heck? I, I mean, she say that, that if, if I don't know, I feel like if Cloris Leachman would have been alive back then, she could have pulled it off <laughs> without it being irritating as you know what, but I, know I just whale found her hilarious. You know, that's why she's in it. That he well, and I mean, I mean, that, that's, man. yeah, um, I mean, that's fine. But, but it uh, to me, it was just a little bit too much out of place. Oh, so yeah. I mean, it's not yeah. saying that she wasn't, you know, doing her job well. Um, but it just to me, it was just a, a little bit too much or a little yeah. bit especially, out of place. That it's it, a, it's a broad of, comedy that hasn't really aged very yeah, well. Yeah, Unlike especially for where they put it. You know, 
Yeah, put, yeah. It, put it this way. If they would have just had her see the monster and run away screaming with that crazy scream, that was okay. Yeah. L- little chuckle, but it kept going. Like they kept coming back to her, you know, and, and, and she comes up and she tells one person that the monster is alive. And the it's guy's like, up. oh, you're crazy. <laughs> and then yeah. she's like, she's like, oh, well. Yeah, like, they'll okay. they'll for you know yeah, I've tried. Yeah. I mean, she's she told one person the entire movie, but yeah. So I was a little bit, you know, I think she could have <laughs> taken a yeah, seat. That's, <laughs> that's clearly a dislike. I, I just think for especially where they put it during the the scenes that she was in, it was so out of place. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think actually it was, anywhere you put her, she would have been so out of yeah, place. Yeah, but it was especially weird. Um, with the death happening, you know, the monster coming out, uh, it, it was just a really strange time timing. Yeah. Maybe it was, maybe it was great back then, but yeah, I think, um, I think Elizabeth is, is very pretty and everything, but she's a little bit of an over actress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very melodramatic. Little, yes, very much so. But you know, um, but it's also thirties acting. I mean, this is that's it. Yeah, but that's it, what but, acting was like back then. You but know, it didn't. It didn't seem like everybody else was acting that way. It didn't seem like everyone else was acting that way. No, but like they, weren't, they weren't playing that kind of character. Yeah, I guess so. You know, it wasn't until the fifties that we start getting more natural acting. So it's just kind of, I don't know, whatever, whatever type they're supposed to be, they kind of. Oh, you know how it is, it's John, yeah. Marsha. Well, well, yeah, but I think it also has to do with like theater versus film. Yeah. Because when you're talking about the- acting for theater, you have to do everything over the top because you're supposed to be reaching the person that's sitting in the very back of the theater. And then as film became more popular. I think it took a while for them to realize that you need to tone it down and you can do little tiny subtle things Natural. that will translate really big in film that if you did that on stage, it would not work and vice versa. So I, right. I think it's kind of like the growing pains of that time period, too. And, and, and Whale did have a very successful stage background. I know. Yeah. I, I believe that one of the reasons he was asked to do Frankenstein to begin with is because he really had knew how to handle dialogue. Um, which, you know, so many directors were having a hard time with transitioning from silent films. Uh, but because he was already kind of a master at doing this dialogue stuff, that's one of the reasons that they, they pegged him to do these films in the first place. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, you can still definitely see a, a stage presence, I think, in, in his sentiments, you know, in, in what he chooses, uh, as far as performances. He still, I think, really likes that, that theatrical, you know, <laughs> yeah. melodrama yeah. that's going on. Yeah, I mean it wasn't it wasn't bad bad. I mean I come to expect those sorts of performances, yeah. and it's and, they're very quick. Yeah, yeah. She's not on the screen for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Now what I couldn't get past is uh, you know more flying dummy. So you know more flying dummy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. John John R dummy is back. A floating um, too. It floats. He was he was floating. <laughs> That is a t- that dummy is the best man, best. <laughs> that is I love that dummy. I wish I had that dummy. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> yeah. what else? So about dislikes. Anything else, guys? Dislikes. Uh, um, I don't think I have any more. I mean, that's uh, no, d- we, the dislike to me is just you know, pretty much my big yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just the overall tone. I enjoy. I, I don't. I don't enjoy horror comedy. All that much, and and I know this is not like 
out and out comedy, but there's just enough comedic elements that eh, I'd rather have something straight serious. But I agree. I, I I know what he was doing, but it didn't work as well for me. Yeah. Okay. All right, we got some trivia real quick. Funeral procession at the beginning was actually cut footage from the original. From the first, yeah. Yeah, that was that. Or that was that. Uh, you know, funeral there at the beginning. They they cut that. Uh, this was nominated for the best sound at the 1936 Oscars. Did not win. I'm sorry. And then we already said uh, Karloff had to speak in this movie so he had to re- uh, could not remove that bridge and the monster doesn't have more of a, a sunken cheek like it did in the first one so that's that's might that might be why the monster looks a little bit different so uh you guys knew that um Karloff dislocated his hip at the beginning um when he fell they're supposed to be in the ruins of this windmill and he falls into this, um, I don't know. It's like a little pond or a cave or something. Yeah. He dislocated his hip Man. during that. And, and he really dude, gave himself up over this filming. Yeah. The dude didn't even, uh, take, he didn't even take off a day of work. They Man. said that they used ropes to, to yank it back into <laughs> And kind of, kind of. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So if that happened nowadays, the actor would be gone for six months. They'd get life flighted. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, um, and then I know you've already said something about uh, Colin Clive being an alcoholic, um, Vin, but the whale insisted on having him back, even though some people in the studio did not want him because of his alcoholism. Uh, he was also recovering from a broken leg because I think he uh, fell off a horse or something. He might have been drunk while he was riding. I'm not sure. Uh, and most of his scenes scenes were shot with him sitting down. <laughs> so, <clears throat> anybody else got any trivia? Yeah, I got some stuff on Ernest Thesiger. Um, he was the grandson of the first Lord Chelmsford. Thessinger was born in London, England, and was the first cousin once removed of the explorer and author Wilfred Thessinger, uh, and nephew of second Lord Chelmsford, who exactly a week after Ernest's birth famously led his troops in battle against and suffered a defeat at the hands of the Zulu army. Uh, Thesiger attended Marlborough College and Slade School of Art with aspirations of becoming a painter, but quickly switched to drama, making his professional debut in production of Colonel Smith in 1909. After the outbreak of World War I on 31st August 1914, Thesiger volunteered as a rifleman. Uh, after training in England for three months, he was sent to the Western Front in late 1914 and was wounded in the trenches on 1st January 1915. So that's a nice little uh, New Year's present for him. Uh, and medically evacuated back to England. At a dinner party shortly after his return, someone asked him what it had been like in France, to which he is supposed to have responded, oh, my dear, the noise and the people. In 1917, he married uh, Jeanette Mary Fernie Rankin, uh, sister of his close friend and fellow Slade graduate, William Bruce Ellis Rankin. In her biography of Thesiger's friend, Ivy Compton Burnett, Hillary Sperling suggests that 
Thesiger and Jeanette wed largely out of mutual adoration for William, who shaved his head when he learned of the engagement. Another source states more explicitly that Thesiger made no secret of his homosexuality. When he appeared in a Christmas production of The Merry Wives of Windsor in 1919, Thesiger met and befriended James Whale. After Whale had moved to Hollywood and found success in films, uh, the director was commissioned uh, to direct the screen adaptation of The Old Dark House in 1932, um, starring Charles Lawton in his first American film. Uh, together with Boris Karloff and Raymond Massey, Whale immediately cast Thesiger in the film as Horace Femme, launching his Hollywood career. The following year, Thesiger appeared as a Scottish butler with Karloff in the British film The Ghoul. Uh, when Whale agreed to direct Bride of Frankenstein in 1935, he insisted on casting Thesiger. Uh, instead, the studio, instead, the studio's choice of Claude Rains, uh, probably inspired by Mary Shelley's friend John Palladori and largely based on Renaissance physician and botanist Paracelsus, it became Thesiger's most famous role. Um, after arriving in the United States for the filming of Ride of Frankenstein, Thesiger immediately set up a display in his hotel suite of all his needlework, uh, each with a price tag. And during the making of the film, he would work on needlework, one of his hobbies. In 1960, he was awarded the Commander of the Order of the British Empire. Uh, his last film appearance was a small role in the Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone in 1962. Shortly after completing it, Thesiger died in his sleep from natural causes on the eve of his 82nd birthday and is buried in Brompton Cemetery, London. Oh, died on the eve of his birthday. That stinks. Mm-hmm. So, kind of an interesting guy, though. Yeah, very interesting, very good, very very recognizable actor. Very Absolutely. Um, Elsa Lanchester was only five foot four. She was placed on stilts. For her role, um, although I, got, I read somewhere that with her stilts, she ended up being close to seven feet tall. Wow, I'm not. That's weird. I'm not sure if I could see that on the the screen because how tall was Karloff with his boots? I don't know. But uh, and then the blind hermit. I think this is true. I, I I didn't read this anywhere, but is he playing Ave Maria on his violin? I don't remember. I'm almost no, positive. I don't think it's that. I think it was it. I, I, I don't thought know. It was some, I thought it was something else. I recognized well, it. I recognized yeah. it, but I didn't that one. I could be wrong. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But uh, all right. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and rate this bad boy, Walshy. Okay. Uh, uh, I'm not coming in with a perfect score for Bride of Frankenstein. Just a couple things bother me that, you know, we already went over that. So I'm actually going to come in with a 9 out of 10. Absolute must-own. It's a must-watch, though. I mean, that's a good score, so I'm happy with it. Um, Susan, what's your score? I Well, I'm very close. I gave it a 9.5 just because of the fact that I, like I said before, I kind of, I kind of like to watch them both together. And while I do think that Frankenstein is a better film than Bride of Frankenstein. I kind of feel like that kind of, I don't know, completes it with both of them for me. So I feel like I have to kind of give it a little bit of cred there. So um, I definitely think it's a must must watch and, and buy just for the continuity of it. You know, I, yeah. So nine and a half skulls out of 10 without the dummy being thrown off the cliff. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Hmm. All right, Mark. Yeah. What do you got? I, I I ran out of exciting things to say. I'm sorry, sorry. sorry. Yeah, nine and a half out of ten skulls. I I enjoy it. Watch it. Buy it. It's Frankenstein. I would say that uh, I'm going to come in with a nine out of ten. Uh, the only thing that really brings it down for me is is just a little bit too much 
tongue-in-cheek comedy. And I know it was kind of even even in 1935, they were doing a little bit of a self-parody, I think. But um, I think this is not as good a movie as the original, but I think this is infinite, infinitely rewatchable. Um, this is one of those movies you could have on in the background and, you know, and it's just a good movie to, to, to watch over and over again. Um, so I would say nine out of 10. And again, just, I'm going to say this to every Frankenstein thing, buy it, you know, with that legacy collection. So that's what I would say. Vin. All right. Well, I'm just like Frankenstein. I'm coming in with a 9.5 for this one. Um, it kind of, it really only drops for me because of, you know, O'Connor. <laughs> it's just, she, her, just, her performance just does not age well. And each time I watch the film, I kind of get a little more irritated by it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, objectively, objectively, I do think that this film is actually a better film than Frankenstein. But I do tend to prefer Frankenstein over this, but it kind of depends on my mood. It kind of depends on what I'm in the mood for. Um, but I do like the kind of the darker tones of the first film. But that being said, this is a near perfect, near perfect because of Yuna, uh, but blend of horror, humor, and a really kind of exquisite pathos. I mean, they, they just nail so many things in this well. Um, and it's easy to forget sometimes after you watch it just how many amazing scenes are in it and how many great scenes of dialogue and performances. Uh, you know, every time I go back to it, I'm just like, wow, all this is inside this movie. It's pretty fantastic. Um, so, yeah, so, th- again, 9.5, it's just, you know, it, it's just those little things that I can't overlook in both films that they don't quite get a 10 for me, but still, 9.5 is near perfect. So we've got two and two, you guys. It's, you know. Two and two. Oh, yeah. With the ratings, with the ratings. Mm. Yes, we're we're gonna have a big West Side Story switchblade fight. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be the Jets. You guys be the Sharks. I think that uh, we're here to honor the legacy of a studio, the legacy of a family, the Lameless, that, and the legacy of the craftsman and artist that gave birth to what I think is the modern horror film. Uh, This man took the visual tradition of expressionist films and uh, not only updated but transformed it into what we now understand to be the basics of what a horror film should be. Today's film is, for me, extremely important, Bride of Frankenstein, the first one we're going to see. Uh, I recommend the whole series. If you're a monster kid, and I am, uh, my mother is here to attest to that. I I, I think that we find out that uh, the films we love uh, are uh, truly emotional uh, biographies and partially prophecies of who we are and who we can be. And this is also true of the men who made them. And if the first one was about the essential loneliness of man, a Miltonian episode about being thrusted into a world that uh, you didn't create and didn't understand. Then the second one is the absolute compulsion for company, the need not to be alone. And uh, through the uh, movie, we will see the monster try that companionship with different figures that either adopt him or reject him in different terms. And ultimately, the most beautiful act, the most uh, profound act the monster can do, which is acquiring uh, his first choice, doing his first willed decision, which leads to the immortal 
towards we belong dead. That is the first time the monster is not just a victim of circumstance or thrown around by the world that he doesn't understand. It's the first time he stands tall and tells the world what he needs to be, what he wants to be. Tonight's movie is a very special film because of the clash of many talents. James Whale, who was an incredible visualist and an incredible director in, in every respect, but who was also cynical and cold sometimes, far more removed from emotion in many of his movies. He had an almost entomological view of mankind in some of his uh, other horror movies, but he is palliated by the incredible talents of Boris Karloff, who understands, like Whale, uh, what it is to be an outsider, since he had uh, in him um, foreign blood that was, in his own biography, uh, a very hard uh, legacy to carry in, 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 in his native England. Whale also understood that and in, in many ways rejected uh, Karloff in some manner because he saw himself in him. And Karloff found an, a great ally in Jack Pierce. Now, Jack Pierce is a mythic makeup artist and, in my opinion, the one that gives birth to what we understand as the modern makeup artist, a legacy that has been passed to uh, Dick, Dick Smith, Rick Baker, Rob Bottin, William Tuttle, John Chambers, many, many, many others. He uh, created the monster with exacting attention to detail. And the variations that he does between the first uh, creature makeup and the second are astonishing, uh, especially if you think of the medium and the resources he had. Uh, the creature also evolves through the film and his look uh, grows and grows uh, to represent uh, the journey and the wear, I think, of Karloff and the creature through the film. And the beautiful moment at the end, which in some ways uh, uh, address the Bride of Frankenstein, almost as the cold, uncaring future, and the creature as the past, trying to connect. That moment in which the creature understands what Sartre said so beautifully, that hell is others, uh, is only aided by Pierce's creation. Uh, a perfect score, perfect cinematography, and in many, many other ways, just a perfect movie. Uh, gives birth to this beautiful cycle that I hope you enjoy during the week and not just come for the big hits, but see also the last uh, well-known uh, films. I, For me, it's an incredibly important movie because I've been a misfit and a freak of a very large size all my life. And the moment I discovered the creature, I discovered in him a twin soul. And in his suffering and in his disfranchisement emotionally, I found a kindred spirit. Okay, guys, let's get into our next review here. But before we do it, um, poor gal Susan had a step away. Uh, she had a couple things to tend to. Uh, this, this episode's running quite long, and, you know, life happens. So, Susan, we'll miss you for our last episode here. But we're going to get into Son of Frankenstein. 20 years ago, in the barony of Frankenstein, a monster created by man stalked through the country, ming and killing. In time, Frankenstein, maker of the monster, died. The monster disappeared. Now, after 20 years, the son of Frankenstein returns. 
and fear grips the village anew. A man tainted by the blood of his father can forget his human soul and carry on the diabolical work of the Frankenstein. As a man, I should destroy him. But as a scientist, I should do everything in my power to bring him back to conscious life. Benson, turn on the generator. Produced on a vast scale, Universal Son of Frankenstein presents the most fearsome cast in the history of the screen. Basil Rathbone. In his heart, warm human emotions. In his mind, the monster mania. It's alive. Alive, you mean? Yes, alive, but alive. I thought you said our experiments... I know, I know. I do thought that we failed, but we haven't. I've actually seen it walk. Karloff. Rising from the past to spread new terror. Dugosi. Sinister. Mysterious. Evil. You'll see that. They hanged me once. Lionel Atwill. Grim hatred in his blood. One doesn't easily forget, Herr Baron. An arm torn out of the roots. Josephine Hutchinson. Her young beauty a magnet to the menace around her. I hate it here, Wolf. I'm terribly afraid all the time. By heaven, I think you're a worse fiend than your father. Where is this monster? Where is he? I'll stay by your side until you confess. And if you don't... I'll feed you to the villagers. And this is the last of the Karloff trilogy. One of my personal favorite of the Frankenstein series out of all Frankenstein movies. And it's from 1939. Holds a 7.2 out of 10 star view with about close to 7,000 reviews. It is runtime of one hour, 39 minutes. It is classified as a sci-fi horror drama, and it was released on January 13th, 1939 in the United States. Okay, the director for this one was Roland Lee. Writers, of course, Mary Shelley has to get her, uh, you know, her, her props for, for the book, uh, and Willis Cooper did the screenplay. And let's get into the stars here. We got Basil Rothbone. As Baron Wolf von Frankenstein. We got Boris Karloff as the monster. He's back. We got Bella Lugosi, and uh, we'll talk about it, but as Igor. We got Lionel Atwell as Inspector Crow. We got Josephine Hutchison as Elsa von Frankenstein. Got Donnie Dunnigan as Peter von Frankenstein. The and voice, as Amelia. The voice of Bambi. Who, Donnie? Yes. Really? Little boy would go on to voice Bambi. Yep. That's pretty cool. I did not know that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's pretty cool. Years later. Yep. Okay. Uh, Emma Dunn as Amelia. We got Edgar Norton as Thomas Benson. Harry Ivins as Fritz. Lawrence Grant as the Burgermaster. I mean, it goes on and on. So, we'll just leave it at that for now. We'll get into anything that, you know, maybe piques our interest other than the cast. So, all right. Let's get into first impressions. Or actually, Mark, do you have the budget? I do, I do. Well, Yeah, do that again. I have the budget for the movie, um, but I do not have any box office numbers. I could not find any box office numbers 
anywhere. Um, wow. The budget was four hundred and twenty thousand dollars, which um, this is the last of the the Frankenstein movies to really have a big budget. Um, okay. and, and so four hundred twenty thousand is the equivalent of seven point three million uh, in in two thousand seventeen. So uh, I, I had heard on another podcast that. They felt by watching this movie that the budget must have been cut. We'll talk about why and all that. Not true. This this, this is a this is a pretty big budget movie with with some um, pretty cool set pieces, some pretty cool um, uh, makeup effects, and it also has uh, really, I guess for the time, man, these are some really well known actors. Uh, Basil Rathbone was was considered a real. Get. Huge, you know, he yes. was a pretty big star at this time. So uh, I think a lot of that money might have went into, you know, luring him um, and probably luring Boris Karloff back for a third time. But um, yeah, so that, but I do know this, even though I don't have the exact box office numbers, I do know that it was a massive success. Um, I, I've read that lots of places. Uh, they were very happy with the returns and it, because, um, let, let's just go ahead and talk about this right now. Uh, Vin and I were chatting about it. Um, mm-hmm. 1936, it was Dracula's daughter. Am I correct, Vin? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was you, muted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dracula's daughter came out and that was the last movie horror movie that universal had produced and until this one so three years go by and zero horror movies from universal uh so vin why don't you why what happened uh well one of the things that we were discussing was that carl limley jr they he lost the studio um, bad investments. They owed a lot of money. So he was really the, the driving force behind, behind these horror films. Um, so he gets, he's out of the picture. The new company that takes over, which I think was, I think might have been a bank or investment company or something. Um, they had no interest in these horror films. And also, uh, one of the main countries which we were, to which we were exporting our films, uh, was Britain and they didn't want them. Um, they were, you know, we're, we get our we get the term for our genre, for the horror genre, really from the British ratings at the time, which used to label these films H for horror, for as being horrific films. Um, you know, they they could have picked any other you know word for this. They could have been terror films, weird films, you know, uh, fright films, uh, but they chose horror, and that that's the term that stuck uh, for our genre. But they were basically kind of being censored they, they were being you know, they, they didn't want them in their country anymore so you had our main export country didn't want them the new company had no interest in them uh so for three years you know horror just was not was not in the cards uh for these studios really um until of course they reissued uh, dracula and frankenstein as a double feature and it just made tons of money yep so you know those Dollar dollar bills, y'all. You know, right. all of a sudden, everybody wanted a piece of that, um, and now, you know, along comes Son of Frankenstein. Yeah, and there was also we, we had mentioned that in the mid '30s, the the PCA, which is the Production Code mm-hmm. Administration, that is really the early, you know, kind of MPAA, you know, regulations on movies ratings. There wasn't, I don't know if there were really ratings. I think there was just approved and, and not approved or whatever. But they would tell them, I think, what to cut out is yeah. pretty much what they would do. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, MPAA still does, but, but, um, 
they really, you said, started to enforce things in the mid-30s. So, Well, yeah, what we call the Hayes Code, which yeah. was basically a Catholic organization. Yep. Um, and if they didn't like your movie, they would boycott it. You yep. know, so uh, the studios really kind of had to bend to their will. And in the early 30s, there was the Hayes Code was in existence, yep. but it really was not enforced. They pretty much were ignoring it. And then by the mid 30s, they started flexing their muscles a lot more and the studios had to start bowing to their will. Yes. Uh, Christians and Catholics been boycotting since, you know, A.D. 33. That's the truth, man. It is. It is. Yes. that's but, cool stuff, though. Yeah, like it's, it's kind of cool stuff. And and just think about, man, what what horror movies could we have gotten in those three years? But uh, I know, right? Yeah, it's the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just just imagine, you know, the, ugh, crazy. But, but they were back. Why, they were back. That's why the horror films <laughs> of the early '30s tend to be a little bit more edgy and risque than the ones that came afterwards. You know, they really so, do. They really yeah, do. Yeah, I mean, the Black Cat. We have, you know. Something being skinned alive. I mean, you know, there's there the stuff that we see from the early 30s tends to be much more, you know, it's just much more of an adult nature. Uh, you yeah. know, they're they're pushing a lot more limits. Yeah. And then by the time you get to kind of mid late 30s, they're they're playing it much safer. And then, like we had talked about with the Dracula films, when you get into the 40s, they're basically they're they're kids movies at that point. Um, yeah, B so, movies, right? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, they always had an attraction to kids, uh, but those kids tend to be much more the target audience by the forties. True. Yeah, it is. It is. Well, why don't we get into our, uh, our take on it? What do we think? So let's do first impressions. Vin, what did you think first time seeing son of Frankenstein? Where were you? Do you remember? I do because this was the first time I saw it. Uh, really? I seen, yeah, of course I had seen, you know, Frankenstein, bride of Frankenstein, as I said before, but son of wow. Frankenstein, I just hadn't seen before. Um, I had seen, you know, scenes from it. Uh, but I never sat down and watched it from beginning to end. Um, so this was great. You know, I knew it by reputation um, for Bela Lugosi's performance, of course, being Karloff's last, you know, performance as Frankenstein's monster. Uh, so I was looking forward to it. And I guess it, it didn't disappoint. I was really, really pleased with this film. I know um, right yeah, the, now, I know yeah. right now one <laughs> of your main likes and I, I'm going to let you do it. I think, I think I know it. If I have that mental connection with you, when we get the likes, we'll, we'll see if you bring okay, it up. Okay, we'll see. <laughs> All right. But yeah, I mean, yeah, everything. I, I, I was really genuinely impressed by this film. Awesome. I'm so glad. Dude, I'm kind of jealous because I'll tell you my first impressions now. Um, I saw this. When I was a kid, this was the first Frankenstein movie I saw, and I'll never forget it. I don't know how old I was uh, on TV, you know, and it wasn't late at night. Um, but I remember just seeing Frankenstein for the first time on film was this film because of that sweater. And <laughs> that's how you know. That's how I know it was sweater. this film. The sweater yeah. vest, right? Yeah, because in that <laughs> other films, he doesn't have that on, so that's how I remembered Dagon. this was the first one that I saw. Dagon fur cardigan, what is going on? <laughs> Love that thing. Love it. That ugly, furry, stinky-looking, nasty. Karloff hated it himself, by the way. But... Best good. <laughs> Sting. No, no more talking in this one. No more talking. That's right. That's right. Between, um, between the furry vest and you know, the Bride of Frankenstein, man, the way that these people around them you know, choose to dress these creatures. <laughs> very very questionable true, fashion sense by all the, the mortals around them. <laughs> but but it makes it so weird that I love it. Uh, so that was the first time I you know I saw it and I fell in love with the monster and Karloff. That was my introduction. So that was my first impressions. I I fell in love, man, and I I remember you know the good old VHS days. I would always 
tend to grab this film because I was allowed to rent it because, you know, every parents knew, you know, it, it was a good watch. It wasn't nothing. Nothing's going to scare me or there no, no curse words or anything like that. So that's my first impressions. How about you, Mark, for Son of Frankenstein? Uh, saw this one for the first time when I got the Legacy Collection. Uh, nice. I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure when I got that. Maybe a year ago. And um, oh, okay, yeah, maybe it was a. I don't know. It, it, it's not been that long. Uh, I'm kind of like Vin. I really hadn't seen it. Um, I saw the first two, of course, many times as I was growing up. But this one just never seemed to really be on TV. This this is a really underappreciated, I think. And um, thank so, you. So I watched it again, and and it was kind of neat because I watched the first three kind of all in a row. You know, so because it is really that first great trilogy, you know. Um, yep. So it was kind of cool to get that that closure. Uh, and I like this movie. I do. I cannot say that I like it more than than the first two, but it's 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 uh it, it is a good movie in its own right. In, you know, just a standalone movie. It's a good movie with some good acting and, and some good uh, uh, plot points and and. I enjoyed it, so and it, it's it definitely takes away the the camp that we saw in, in Bride of Frankenstein. I don't find much you know to laugh at in, in here. Maybe maybe a few things. I mean, Igor knocking on his neck and couple, yeah, right, couple, yeah, that was funny. A couple <laughs> weird things like that, but yeah, I enjoyed that they pulled back the comedy. Yeah, so I, I liked it. This this was uh, you know this this was a, a kind of return to that. You know, really uh, serious kind of gothic horror, and I, and I enjoyed it. So that's my first impressions. Awesome. Okay, so let's get into like, wh- what was your some of your favorite stuff of the movie, Vin? Like, give me your best likes. Uh, I mean, I'll start broad. Um, Go ahead. The the set designs again. Yes. Uh, you know, it, it's. I think you know. I mentioned this to to Mark before we were recording, but. I think it's a it's kind of a it's a worthy successor to the precedent that James Whale had created. It really with those is. expressionist inspired aesthetics. I love how we, there's so many times we don't see windows, but we see them suggested just by the shadow that's on the wall. You know, mm-hmm. so we we get a feel for kind of what's behind corners based on whatever shadows they they happen to be throwing on the walls. Um, it, it's just it's a really cool way to create this sense of space because these are much bigger spaces. There's a lot yes. more negative Why? space, you know, empty yep. space in this one, but the, there's just this, the weird kind of mammoth, uh, architecture, like these gigantic staircases. Gigant- yeah. They're know? huge. It reminds me big. again. It reminds me of like a, you know, maybe an influence from Dr. Caligari. Something the, like that. There where, it is. You did it. Yeah. The, oh, okay. <laughs> did it. That's it, man. I was going to say, uh, if you don't bring up Dr. Caligari, uh, something's wrong. You nailed oh, yeah. it, man. Absolutely. So they're, awesome. They're, they're, the, the landscape is more dreamlike with the, the fireplace and where they're eating breakfast. I don't know. It, it all yes. feels like I'm, it feels like I'm watching through the lens of a dream. Um, exactly. Of course, not like not exactly the kind of broken mind nightmare of Caligari, but Just you can the, definitely the, see visual, the influence yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, you still have that diagonal kind of architecture, you know, mm-hmm. and the use of shadows. I, I I was really impressed by it. And even just the, uh, even aside from the the architecture, uh, I, when they're going in the train and you see that barren countryside I know. outside the window, and it looks like, you know, what like 
what war torn Europe must have looked like just not too long before this was filmed, you know, back in after the first, you know, the great war. And of course, what a lot of it would look like again, just a few years later. Mm-hmm. Um, but this just kind of war torn European landscape now automatically creates a terrific atmosphere in the film. Yeah, that's uh, that is probably my favorite that they got that Caligari look, man. It just adds it fits the Frankenstein uh story it fits what they're going for and the eeriness i love the set design i mean we've been plastering about set designs all three movies but they switched it up while keeping it similar and it worked in this film especially it's a character unto itself it really is you know, man. it was impressive in the other films but in this one it takes on an own, its own personality absolutely really interesting Mark, what did you think about the set design in this one? You, you can tell the difference. Oh, yeah, I, I loved it. And I, I was yep. saying the same thing to Vin. I was like, the, I, I was listening to another podcast, and I'm not going to say the name of it because I don't even remember, but they were talking about this movie. And okay. they're, they're, they were really making fun of the movie. Uh, saying, saying that, boy, the budget must have been low because everything is so sparse. There's nothing on the wall. I was like, you're completely missing (laughs) what what was going on. Um, there was not a, a a low budget. There was a higher budget than both previous movies. And, and, And it was an artistic choice, you know, to, to do it because, um, the director, Lee was very, inspired by the german you know impressionist things and and dr caligari and those sorts of movies from the 20s and and that's what he chose to do and yes it's not as ornate and busy and there's not tons of pictures on the walls and stuff but it's not meant to be it's meant to you know draw your lines uh draw your eyes to these diagonal uh lines and these shadows and 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 it's just very striking so it really is kind of Ticks me off when I hear people making fun of it and saying, you know, saying that, you know, well, Universal must have been really hard up for cash on this one. And I'm like, that's not that's not the point. But I'm trying to even see it from that perspective. And I can't like I, I just don't get that. But, hey, to each their own, man, yeah. um, a lot of people, a lot of horror fans, believe it or not, will not watch these movies because they can't get into them. But for me, uh, this is the reason why we picked Monster Palooza and we're doing this so you know, I, we got to show love for every little detail, but I know we're all itching to talk about the standout performance. And who was that? Oh, Lionel Atwell. <laughs> just kidding. No, he was good as well as the uh, Inspector Crow with with the uh, the arm. That I'm got talking torn. about someone. Yeah, else. I, I know who you're talking about. <laughs> you're talking about Bella Lugosi. You should have said Donnie Dunnigan. No. Yeah, Donnie <laughs> Dunnigan. Yeah, Bella, Bella Lugosi was 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 I good. Think of his name quick enough. <laughs> a lot of people, a lot of people uh, consider this his his finest role. I I am one that would say uh, that it know. is the absolute antithesis of what he did with Dracula. It really and is. Man. It really shows his acting chops. He was He's terrific. He really is. He steals the scene from Boris Karloff in every scene that he's in, and that's saying something. <laughs> exactly. Like, that's mind-blowing that he put Boris Karloff in the background when it was his turn. Mm-hmm. I and mean, the script I, does that, to be honest. But yeah. still, sure, sure. Lugosi, he he owns that screen every single time he's on there. Yeah, you still this, need to this, act right. This humor that he shows, and you know, and, and I do love just you know, as far as the writing aspect goes, that he and the monster are both technically dead. I know. They tried hanging him, they broke his neck, and he still didn't die. So they 
they tend to find this weird comfort in each other, even though Igor is using the monster. I think I think he still finds comfort in them because they're kind of the only members of this very exclusive species of that's right, <laughs> of like man. Nice. Walking, you know. Yeah. So I think it's kind of cool. There's they they have this brotherly bond because they're the only ones of their kind, which is really interesting. Exactly, man. And this is the Igor that. Uh, you know, like it's seen it the first time. I think this is like when you see Igor's and other films, even recently, Victor Frankenstein, they took a lot of nods from this performance. Yeah, I think when we were talking earlier about, you know, where do we get that kind of stereotype of Igor hunchback yep. when, when when the the assistant's name in the first one is actually Fritz? Well, I Fritz, think it, yeah. I think this is just so iconic of a role that they kind of melded both of those roles together. Mm-hmm. And, and Igor here is not a, necessarily a hunchback, but he's got that little bit of a hunch, you know, crooked neck. sticking out of his Yeah, head. yeah. <laughs> so he's still kind of malformed and and uh, kind of kind of weird. So I think people just kind of meshed that name and that performance with Fritz, and that's just what we have come to to know and 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 love so i think uh, the irony though is the fact that we in this kind of weird collective memory that we have of this inaccurate depiction we think of igor as this kind of very obedient little helper you know he's he's entirely manipulative he's playing his own game you know he's playing frankenstein so it's just it's so weird just how twisted we've gotten yeah and and, (laughs) And it's amazing and you know what i also heard and i cannot you name a source and where I read this because I've I've read so much stuff on the internet about these movies over the last couple of weeks, but I heard that there was like a like a backstory that never really got explored where Igor and Fritz were brothers, mm-hmm. and they were like grave grave robbing brothers, you know that yeah. uh, and, and so. That's well, and, that's you know something that I heard, but well, even I know in a uh, Bride of Frankenstein, the other character that Dwight Fry is playing, the murderer, yeah, you know, yeah, he's supposed to be one of those brothers. And I know one of the abandoned plot elements that they originally had was you know we keep hearing about people dying in the village, and it was actually supposed to be his character that was killing them and basically blaming the monster. Um, which they never explained in the movie, but that's actually what's going on. They're talking about, oh, these people have, were found dead here and there. It was actually supposed to be him doing it. Yeah. Uh, so, which is really interesting, you know. And um, just really quickly, as far, especially as far as Igor goes, you know, I mentioned Caligari with the sets, but when you think about what he's having Frankenstein's monster do, mm-hmm. you know, he's sending the monster out to go kill people, just like Doctor Caligari sent out the somnambulist to go murder people in the night. So this, there is a lot of influence from that 1920 expressionist film, you know, yeah. even aside from the sets. For sure. Yep. And you know, the, the crazy thing we talk about, um, Bela Lugosi being the standout is he wasn't really even a big part of the original script. I heard that. And, and Roland Lee, were, were there, I think they were kind of tight, you know, and at this point, Bela yeah. Lugosi was having some, you know, um, addiction Trouble. issues yep. and some, some, um, financial issues. So, Sad. you know, the way it works back then is you, you working for a day, you get paid for the day. Like now it's a movie, you get to sign a contract. No matter how many days you work, you get an, a specific amount. This That's was right. kind of like, you know, so they, they kept adding, 
plot points to the story and script pieces to the story so that Carlo, uh, not Carlo, Lugosi would be able to, to come and, and work. And yeah, it ended crazy? up being the, the best part of the movie. And he so, begged. He yeah. begged to come on to this movie. He yeah. wanted to be back. He missed it. He missed being in the spotlight. But he brought and, it. He brought it. He really did, man. <laughs> like, it, it, it's so sad to hear what happened with him by the end. You know, it's terrible mm-hmm. because he, he clearly could do something other than Dracula. I, I mean, I really do believe this is his best performance. Not, yeah. not his most iconic, but his best acting performance. No, I agree. Yeah. yeah, and he did he did a lot of stuff. I mean, you know, there's a lot of movies out there with him, and especially when he gets to the end of his life, you know, it gets very in, gray, in the gray area. But, you know, during right. these years, man, it, it, it's kind of sad what happened. I hate thinking about that. Yeah. What else did you just like? Uh, well, let's just talk about the other, one of the other actors is Lionel Atwill. Yep, absolutely. Um, I think that, you know... I can't, I can't watch his scenes without thinking of Young Frankenstein. You know, yeah, that's, dude, it, 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 right that's just it. exactly that's just an unfortunate circumstance yes. of a modern viewer. <laughs> get, the, know? get the and, darts in the in the in the exactly. arm. But that's I amazing. It. It's that's a terrific little thing. And yeah. am I remembering wrong? But was was Frankenstein like hitting bullseyes without even looking? Yeah, or he something was. like that. Pretty much, like, but he's just aggravated and throwing the darts, not looking. He's getting bullseyes. And meanwhile, bullseyes, like, yep. but Lionel is like, you know, taking the darts out of his wooden arm. To, you know, it, it was just great. But it was a terrific scene watching these two guys play because, uh, you know, that that scene has some good humor. But at the same time, you seem to see that the inspector character at will, like, he seems to really like Frankenstein. You know, now son of Frankenstein. You know, this new Frankenstein guy that's there. Uh, but they're they're kind of like they're they're always these potential adversaries, but we see this this thread of respect that they have for each other. You know, I, I love this scene where where the inspector is telling Frankenstein how he lost his arm, you know, and how he had yeah. always dreamed to go in the military and now he couldn't. But then later on, when his son asks him how he lost his arm, you know, the, the little boy, um, Frankenstein tells him that he had lost it in the war and that he was an inspector, which is more than a general. You know, yep. and Atwell kind of gives him this respectful nod, you know, kind of acknowledging what he's doing in that moment, you know, and it was just it was a really, a really nice touch of kind of respect between these two men who ultimately distrust each other. You know, n- neither one believes anything that the other one is saying. But at the same time, there's this this genuine, you know, I don't want to keep I, well, I'm going to use the word again, respect, <laughs> you know, that they have sure. for each other. And I. I really like that. It was it was a really nice touch for the story. The inspector was a good character, and of course Basil Rathbone plays off of him really well too. Yeah, it was a good casting getting him for that. Uh, yeah. he, he did. He had, he had a great performance as well. Some funny bits, man. He mixes it up. He's a great part of this film. I think that's why, as a kid watching it, I fell in love with it. You know, his performance added so much to that. So yeah. I know Outlaw was great, man. Yeah, I, I did want to point out, you know, as I continue my theme of kind of just doing trivia as we go along, is is uh, sure. Lionel Atwell was a partier. Yeah. Partier. <laughs> he, was, he was a holder of many orgies at his house. <laughs> yes. No, I swear to you. And I he was even he was even you. he was even arrested, you know, for um I don't know if it was necessarily rape or or whatever, but like well, a huge... in 1942, he was indicted for perjury. Perjury, okay. Um, yeah, when they were wow. investigating 
uh, an, an, an apparent orgy that he had at his home yes. <laughs> in 1941. Yeah, and he <laughs> so, was known. He yeah, was known so for that. Apparently, he, he, they were investigating whether or not he committed perjury when they were investigating a, a sexual yes. orgy yes. Um, during it. But yeah, he was... <laughs> and he, he was, was blackballed. Quite, uh, yeah, yeah. He was blackballed, and, and a lot of the major studios wouldn't touch him. And uh, uh, sadly, he died in 1946 at the age of 61. So only, only, yeah, yeah, only seven years after this. So, yeah. But, uh, no, but he was great. He on, was really good. On that bright ray of sunshine, uh, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Orgy man, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> He lost one of his arms in an orgy. It was uh, it was a wild one. <laughs> what about you, Walsh? What else you got? Uh, I, I just I really enjoy everything throughout this film. You know, it, it, well, we'll get that in dislikes. Never mind. I'll save that for dislikes. But uh, I like how the buddy system of Igor and the monster. But it seems like that on, in the face of it. But. I, and by the end, I don't know if you guys feel like like that, but it seems like Frankenstein was just trying to save his own kind, and it wasn't really. It, it, it's kind of like it's the end of the, his race, so that's why he was so upset at the end of this film. I don't know if he had love for Igor. Do you guys feel that oh, way? He absolutely I think did. He did. Yeah. I mean yeah. that that big scream when he when yeah. he uh, you know that's I, a good scene. That's uh, a really yeah. good scene. They use that I, I, yeah, scream for tons of other movies. I look at it as if, like, you know, he lost his kind. You know, there's no more monsters yeah. now. At this point, That's, I think that, the monster you know, sees himself as an adversary of mankind. And yeah, Igor yeah. is his only ally. Well, I think that he lost the one person the one thing, that yeah. treated him, de- at least thought that was treating him decently. Yeah, yeah he well, thought well, that. You know, even the- yeah. Well, think about That's it. Right. Uh, one of the things about this movie is, 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 of course, it's a time jump. It's set in the future, and it, and it, it hasn't really... Um, explain exactly how much time went by or, or what exactly happened to Henry Frankenstein. Uh, but we do know that, that Wolf von Frankenstein is his son. He, he seems to be pretty much middle aged at this point. <laughs> um, and so I'm, I'm assuming that maybe 40 years have gone by. I don't know. So how long, uh, has yeah, that's, Frankenstein that's right. Been being taken care of. I mean, yes, he's been being sent out, manipulated to to do things. But Igor is still his caretaker. Like I said, he he knitted him that that great sweater vest, you know, to keep him warm. <laughs> you know, I'm sure that there were there there was a, a relationship there, even though um, Lugosi or Igor was using him. The the monster didn't probably didn't see it that way. He just saw him. As his he still friend. cared if something happened to him. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I definitely think he did, and um, yeah, it was it was a good uh, it was a good relationship, and that that scene was was pretty uh was pretty good, pretty heart wrenching. That was a good that was yeah. a, that was a good monster scream. Yeah, it was good. I mean, I think we should we should talk about Karloff a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah you he's to. given less to do, but he's still doing things very well, and I, I love yeah. that that moment where he seems to contemplate throwing the boy into the sulfur pit. Yes. Oh, I know. You know I know. Which seems yes. like maybe a, a callback to the girl in the yep. like in the first movie, you know. Yeah. But uh you know, it's he he has that moment where you see him thinking about it. But then the fact that he decides against it. 
you know, and it, it's it's kind of a cool moment where you realize that there is this this monster is not pure evil. You know, it's he's he's reacting because he feels threatened. You know, it's he's trying to save his own skin. Yeah, the boy is in danger, but at that moment, he's not willing to take it that far. Uh, so it, it's it's cool, you know. And again, uh, he tends to seemingly identify a lot more with children than he does with any adults that he comes across. Uh, you know, except Igor being the only exception. Uh, but it, it was a nice moment. They, they were it still gave him nice character moments, which I was really appreciative of. Yeah, I thought it was a really fitting and like kind of end to a trilogy, especially for Karloff. I I think everybody knew. I I'm pretty sure he announced this was going to be his last. Yeah. Of the Frankenstein's, you know. And that climax in the sulfur pit is pretty awesome. I lo- that's the best. That was cool. ending, man. I love that. I love the whole idea of it the sulfur looks pit. great. Looks yeah, fantastic. the bubbling man. Yeah. Uh, you know the, the, the Tarzan, the yeah. Tarzan kick at the end. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just want to know. I mean, wasn't it standard issue to, for every laboratory? Or hideout to have a sulfur pit in the basement. <laughs> that way. Well, yeah, well, just like in 1959, it was standard to have acid pits inside your basement. Yes, you for know? haunted house, uh, house right, on haunted yeah. hill. Yeah, I mean, you got to have it. It was a That's standard right. feature. It came with the plumbing. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. That whole that whole that whole ending is awesome. It really yeah. is. And the good, you know, spoiler. The, the the it was a really good scene when uh, when the monster falls in the pit. You know, oh, yeah. Kind of, kind of burst into flame there. I mean, it looked yep. great. that wasn't CGI flames, everybody. That was, That's you know, real. Yeah. The so. only, the only thing that, the only thing that puts a little bit of damper on it is like right after that, it goes to like Wolf that Frankenstein weird... at the train station and all the villagers are cheering for him. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, this is kind of an overly saccharine ending, you know, yeah. because all those people that hated him, the fact that he was actually hiding a monster. I'm like, they probably yeah. shouldn't be cheering this guy on, you know, like, <laughs> That's right. they're like, they're sad that he's leaving. I'm like, what the hell is this ending? Yeah. Um, but right up until that point, right up until that with the sulfur, you know, like you said, the Tarzan kicker, you know, pitfall, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Uh, <laughs> Tarzan but, kicker. You know, it was, yeah. Um, right up until that point, it was, it was terrific. Yeah, and I, I, I have to to say it. Don't we have not more dummy in this movie? Is isn't there like isn't there kind of like a floating dummy in the sulfur? There's always a dummy. I yeah, think it so. does look better than the other. Yes, <laughs> but you know, I think there's a dummy. And it looks how about more like a statue than a, how, than a dummy at this point? <laughs> how about those nasty uh, teeth that Igor had? Oh yeah! Oh man, that Crazy is looking. nasty. That was a good uh, you know set of Bubba teeth. That he had going on you sign the next film, he loses them. Like he doesn't That's have those right. teeth in me, which I was really disappointed to see. Yeah, yeah. This, I, you, like we said, you could tell the difference after this film in quality. Oh, well, yeah. you, you lose, you lose he, a off, man. He he looks almost like, uh, and it could almost be like Wolfman esque. You know, because he's got that long hair coming down and the in the yeah, full I beard. Could, well, yep. he, he kind of looks um like the the Frederick March uh, Jekyll and Hyde. Hyde, yeah. Yeah. You know, where it's like the you know the Mister Hyde, the, the, the teeth are all kind of sticking out. Yeah, and he's a lot yep. more. He looks more simian. You know, uh, he he definitely has that look about it. It's really good makeup work. It, yeah, it's yeah. very good. And, and I think that um, Jack Pierce recaptured a little bit more of of the original makeup. I thought that Frankenstein looked better in this movie than he did in Bride. Yeah, oh, I agree with that. I, I, I personally think so. 
Yeah, I think I think it's that, all the sweater, Mark. It's all the sweater. It, it, <laughs> it really it brings be. it together. <laughs> it could be. You know, it's it's really one of those things that it just makes his eyes pop, and it really, yep. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's, yeah, it, I love it, man. I, I wonder. It. I wonder, man. You think anybody has that sweater? Ah, oh, what I would do if, for if that. If there's any listeners out there to do needlework, please make Walshy a furry sweater vest. <laughs> yeah, but I'm only like five eight, so I'm not going to be the best break time. But I will sweater. I'll just make fourteen inch boots or whatever. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> you know what? You know what scene really was awesome to me that was really smart, written and acted. Um, was when Wolf and the creature had like that really like interesting scene. Where like he kind of notices the re- and he resembles uh, Victor Frankenstein and his son, and then like the, you know what I'm talking about. Then he like waves the image away with disgust. Yeah. And then like uh, Wolf in the mirror. Once that happens, he's like studying the difference between him and Victor. Yeah. I love yeah. that. So I he's love looking that for a family thing. resemblance. That's exactly what it both, was. They're both sons of Frankenstein, technically. Yeah. That's it. You know, they're yeah, they're dude, brothers. They're like half brothers at this point, yep. you know, which is kind of, you know, when you think about it, you, you see what the monster is doing there you know, and kind of looking for some glimmer of, you know, similarity between them. Um, yeah, it's great. Like I said, they're like, you know, even though Karloff is not on screen for all that long, they really make the most of his scenes, which he's got some great, great set pieces, especially in context of the first two films. I think, I I think, like I said, you know, I think of this movie as a very worthy successor to those first two. It's not quite of the same caliber, um, but really it doesn't do anything to diminish what came before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's personally, hold on, it's personally my favorite to watch of the three. A lot of people like to watch the second one because of all the effects and stuff, but uh, uh, some of those tones that we talked about from the last film. If I had a pick from the three to watch, this is one I have think has the best replay value in my yeah. in my opinion. I I could always play this movie, and yeah, I mean you got Dracula and Frankenstein together. That's so cool. Yeah, a lot of people will be like, "Well, what happened to the monster that he was learning to speak in Bride, and now he has no speech anymore?" And and I was like, "Well, number one, he's kind of been he was in like a coma, and he was kind of like." You know, hidden away, so maybe he devolved a little bit. I I like the no speech monster. Me too. That's, I just, Me too. I, I think that it was just a little. I mean, even though I like Bride of Frankenstein and those scenes, like really crack me up. Of yeah, I, keep, I keep doing it, you know, with good smoke and all that. And it's because it's 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 funny, it's endearing, and uh, you know, I'm kind of like I, I kind of like the silent, you know, growling monster than than. Uh, than the speaking monster. So I, I like that he yep. went back, you know, it would have been, it would have been a little more campy if he'd have been speaking. So yeah, yeah I, I mean, totally agree. In, in Bride of Frankenstein, when he speaks, um, I think that they still maintain his dignity mm-hmm. in his speaking, but it is very easy to mock it. Oh, sure. You know, it's, it's right for mocking. And of course, you know, Phil Hartman did it. You know, and <laughs> later oh, on, you know, we, 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 I love fire, you know, he's going, but yeah. it, so, so we know how easy that is to mock, um, even though I don't think that it was mocking inside that film. Uh, but yeah, returning to the silent one, he's not so easy to kind of poke fun at, you know, if you wanted to make jokes at his expense. Yeah. 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 That's a great point, man. You know what? I have to ask. Would, now, it's kind of weird because we love our black and white universal monster movies, but. 
uh, I, I'm sure you guys know this. They really wanted to shoot it in color, so they did a lot of color testing. Actually, yeah. if you go on YouTube, you'll see color testing, yeah. and it was awesome. What I, I would love to see a colored version of this. Um, what, what do you guys think? Well, I think I think then you would lose some of the uh, expressionist elements. Yeah, like the, of the, yeah, of the of the set design. Um, That's true. That is because true. I mean every you know some these. I, I think the French term is mise en scene. You know where it's if if you oh, basically nice. if you yeah, like, yeah, I didn't mise en scene. S'il vous plaît, je dois faire pour vous être l'audi. Your French is better than mine, Mark. Uh, but no, it's it basically means like if you just if you pause the movie, every it would look like a work of art. Yeah. You can just take it, put it right up on a, on a wall, and that would be right. your work of art, you know? And this, I think, has that. There's so many things, when I think back to scenes of this, that just evokes that. Like, the way that it's set up, and the shadow, and the light, and how it plays, you know? And the the, the kind of, the, just the palette, you know, that of, of light and shadow, that it helps to create this kind of, this canvas on the screen, which is really nice. It's really impressive. Yeah. But I think that if it was colored, I think it would completely lose that sense. I mean, on the one hand, I'd love to see that sulfur pit, you know, red and fire and everything like that. That'd be a lot of fun. But at the Come same on, time, when I, when right. I think of, when I think of Wolf and his wife just sitting there eating breakfast and just that set, I don't want to see that set in color. Yeah, yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Because, like, the director really wanted it in color, but he was doing so much of that, you know, the German yeah. expressionism type stuff, um, which doesn't. Black it, and white it's, is its own medium. It really is. It's not just. Yeah, it's, it's like water just, and wine. It's not just something that lacks color. Yeah, that's why, you know, I'm, I'm going through my. Uh, I'm going through, you know, all the silent horror films, you know, for my blog. And yes, I call it. I call it, uh, you know, a play of light and shadow, which is. I love that. You know, which is all that is. You know, the, really you have these, these silent images. Of course, there's music playing this and that, but I, I, I watch most of those movies actually muted, just because a lot of times the music that accompanies them doesn't really fit very well. So I mute that's it, right. and then I just watch these images, and it's just this play of light and shadow that are creating these amazing images. And that's what you know. You if if you look at you know Hitchcock's Psycho compared to you know Gus Van Sant's remake, you know, which is all colorized, you know that the. the 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 black and white is just infinitely superior. Yeah, it's a whole much. different way of filming. So I think they made the right the right call. I do. Me too. They yeah. did. They definitely I, did. No, I, I think it would be neat for you know just for you know poops and giggles. Yeah, I'd uh, love to, to, see to, to see like any of these colorized or whatever. It's just like one see. of my favorite movies of all time is It's a Wonderful Life. I've got. Yep. I've got the colorized version on Blu-ray, but I never watch it. I've seen it a couple right. times just to see what it looked like. But I always go back to the black and white because that's the way Not it was shot, and it was intended to be that way. And let me let me read this uh, piece of trivia about that. It says plans were discussed to shoot the film in Technicolor, but the decision was made to revert to black and white. Both director Lee and co-star Josephine Hutchinson verified in later years that the film was designed for and shot in monochrome. Urban myth has it that Karloff's makeup photographed bright green and was a primary reason for shooting in black and white. Um, and then uh, an urban myth has it that Dwight Fry was in the Technicolor test reel and was subse subsequently dropped from the cast. And in late eight 1980s, a reel of Technicolor test footage was discovered in Universal vaults, but was either stolen from the desk of the executive who was in possession of it or simply boxed back up 
by bureaucrats and shipped to a New Jersey film vault. So who knows? Uh, but uh, what you were saying, the Karloff family home movie shot on the set of the film revealed the monster's coloration to be grayish with subtle highlights and shadows of blue-green and brick-red. The brief clips show Karloff in monster makeup sticking his tongue out at the camera and pretending to strangle Jack Pierce. And you yeah, can see that great. on YouTube, or you can buy a CD-ROM called The Interactive History of Frankenstein uh, by Sarah oh, Karloff. Cool. Yeah, I guess that was uh, something she put out, his daughter. So, wow. Yeah, so I think there was you know, a, a lot of talk about that, and Technicolor was kind of that you know, that new thing back then. I mean, what, what was the first movie shot in color? Was it Wizard of Oz? I think so. I'm not sure uh, if it... I don't know if that was the first, but... I mean, I'm not sure me. if it was or not, but I know that was that was like a huge deal. Uh, and But I don't know if this would have... Uh, you know, I don't know. It just makes me think about it, because uh, the Wicked just, Witch... Well, yeah, I would like the to Wicked Witch just to have... Like, you know, in, in, in Wizard of Oz, that green skin. No, that, because that's striking. I'm just thinking right now, uh, you know, Lionel Atwell was in House of Wax back in like 1933, and that was in color. Was it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so it's it goes at least far that far back. Okay. Okay, 1917. <laughs> Is the, the first Gulf color? Between the yeah, but, color feature. Wow. Oh, that was, okay. Yeah, so it definitely goes back. <laughs> U.S., so 1917, wow, that had to be crazy expensive. Anyway, yeah, I just, like, even if it was, like, a bonus feature, because it was such a push for it, um, but like I said, it's like water, it's like oil and water. It just doesn't mix with the way the sets were designed. It would just be so crazy to see what yeah, it would have I think it would end up looking like. gaudy for the most part. It uh, would, it would. Yeah, but I mean, I I would like to see scenes of it in color. (laughs) Yeah, 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 I could see that. Yeah, well, there you go, Uh, listeners. Go to YouTube and check out. You know, look for that that test footage, that little home not test footage, but the home movie that Sarah Karloff uh, shared. So you get to see. That's uh, really cool. You get to see Karloff strangling Jack Pierce. (laughs) (laughs) It's awesome. Yep. But well, um, (laughs) we really hit. The main, main likes. I mean, there's yeah. like three huge ones, which we kind of all touched on. So, I mean, you guys have want to get into the dislikes now or you have any more likes? Uh, I just got two little ones. Yeah, th- throw just, them out. Uh, likes, you know, I love the lightning outside that window. Yeah. Oh, yes. That yes, looks great. That's right. It, especially for, you know, again, 1939. That's the thing, you know, these monster movies from the 30s are are just such a higher caliber than what we get for like the next two decades. I yeah, know. the forties and even into the fifties. Yeah, the fifties have some good stuff. Um, but man, there was just some amazing filmmaking that we don't see matched again. I don't think until really the sixties. I totally uh, agree. So it, it's you know it, it's easy to dismiss if you haven't seen these thirties films. Um, just how just how technically good they are. And the other little thing I love to see is I loved uh, the X ray machine <laughs> that yeah. they used yeah. inside the yeah. monster. You know, that was I, just, I, I just got a kick out of that. I, I love that. That was sweet, man. <laughs> Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. It was, right. it was it was it was hilarious, is what it was. Yeah. So, <laughs> exactly. And I and I love how um, a little piece of trivia wasn't this the one where they had the little microscope and they took the blood 
and they were looking at the blood. Isn't that this one? I'm almost positive it was. And you see a little shot of the blood, and you're like, look, he's got this superhuman blood or whatever. And it, they actually used red blood cells and sperm <laughs> to create that. What's, what, what you see on the screen wow, is – who had that job? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was the guy that was doing the orgies. Like, that's right. That's okay. right. That was Lionel Atwell. That was his. I got a whole yeah. bunch of it back in my house. <laughs> <laughs> had these left over from last night. Maybe you want to use them. I don't know. But. They just scraped his sheets and used that. <sighs> oh, that's awesome. That is gross, but I think that was kind of kind of a neat thing to to think about. I mean, all the sensors and stuff, for the all the sensors and stuff. And in 1939, they got sperm in the movie. But that's anyway. funny, man. Yeah. You got to get something to move. Figure it out. All right. Uh, what about some dislikes, guys? Uh, Mark, what, what didn't you like? Well, I know we've all talked about the vest. Uh, I'm just not a big fan of it. I know you liked it. I know you wish you could wear it and cuddle up at night with it. It just looks, it it almost looks like, makes him look prehistoric. (laughs) You know, I'm just not, I don't know what was wrong with, with the blazer. What's wrong with, what's wrong with the blazer that he was, you know, I don't know what's wrong with the blazer. I think it was a members only jacket. That's yeah, right. Well, it was, it was, yeah. it, was a, it was a good look, his original look. And I, I was a little, <laughs> no, little sad no, to see it go. Um, and then I, I do think that for the average, um, movie watcher, this can get a, a little, um, dragged out in the middle. Yeah, I agree it's, with it's that. A, it's a little talky there in the middle and, and well, especially, no, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say it, there is my only real dislike is the tediousness when it comes to Wolf Frankenstein not saying anything. Yes. Not yep. saying that there's a monster when at a point where he really should have already said something. You know, the only reason he's not saying it is because they need the movie to go longer. Yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's there's again, I, I really love the scenes with um, Basil Rathbone, Lionel Atwill. You know, kind of having this meeting of the minds, but it it does go on too long. Um, it definitely it, does. I agree. yeah, there should have had a quick resolution to that. Yeah. Well, th- mm. this is this is by far the longest of those three movies. Oh uh, yeah, what this is, is this is this is almost a hundred minutes. This is ninety nine minutes. Yeah, long, and, and seconds. And yeah, yeah, for a for a movie from nineteen thirty nine, uh, a horror movie that. That's that's pretty long. Yeah, and you yeah. do like you're you're right. You do feel the time, the the extended yeah. time throughout the middle. Definitely, it's like the beginning, great. The middle's still good, but you're like, man, they probably could have cut ten minutes out of this. Yep. And the, and then the ending, yeah. great. You know, so that that's really the only big dislike that I have. I, I enjoyed um, the cinematography. I enjoyed the score. I enjoyed all that stuff. I thought it was really well done, but man, it, it would probably go up another point, point and a half in my book if they just would have edited it just a little bit better. Yeah. No, that's, that's a good point, man. Uh, really only my, and other than that, which you just mentioned, is there's some con, con, continuity issues. Um, but we get that. That's like, but at this point, it's like a normal thing for Universal movies. They were like the godfather of continuity problems. Um, you mean like you know, you like how the how the how the the um, the lab doesn't look anything like the yeah, the yeah, lab. Like there's a bunch of different things that it's similar but not the same, and they just throw it off. Even with Igor, man, like Fritz and Igor, even from the book, it's, yeah. it's crazy. There's a bunch of different stuff uh, that doesn't go as it should, but. 
that's only a minor dislike of my end. Um, I did have one more. Let me let me find here. Vin, what about you? What didn't you like? His uh, his mic is. He just okay. he just texted uh, M. So, um, what else? Let me see. Hold up. Um, I M? I think one of the yo you back. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you now. Right. Oh, you know what, Mark? You know what my other dislike was? Um, I didn't like the score as much. I, I don't know. It just it just didn't work for me as well. Um, I don't know why. It's just a, a, it's one of those scores that kind of bothered me throughout. It had really? a good. It had yeah. To me, it had really good parts, but then some of it just threw me off, man. I don't know why. It just I liked my it. Dislike. I liked it better than uh, Bride. Did you? I did. I thought it was a little bit more. There wasn't as much like cheery, yippy, you know, stuff. But I, oh I, yeah, I, I know what I, you mean. Yeah, but yeah, I'm opposite with you there. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What about you, Vin? For dislikes. Uh, I mean, we've already mentioned mine. The only other thing is, I I think Karloff could have been given more to do. Uh, but again, that's that's with what he had, he did great. Uh. But that's the only thing, you know. We we could have had the monster kind of come to the picture a little bit quicker. Yeah. What well, what? Well, yeah, just what sure. you were saying and what I was saying, where it was a little bit too long and maybe, um, Carlo, uh, Karloff. You mean Karloff could have had more to do? Is that what you're yeah. saying? Yeah, yeah. The monster, right? Yeah. Uh, there was there was really no prepared script for the for this movie. No, a, a really? lot of it. Yes, a lot of it was just written moments before the actors were going to shoot their scenes. That and, is and, and super impressive. Well, I'm I'm sure he kind of had an idea of where he wanted to go, but you know that's why he was able to keep Bella Lugosi working and, and build that character up and and all of that. So right, right. It, that, that when you don't have a set script, no, no wonder it's a little bit too long, and you know maybe one actor doesn't get as much as the next, you know, because you're just kind of going by the seat of your pants. I mean, for a movie that's done that well that way, it 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 works very well, but yeah, it's, it's um, crazy. I th- I found that kind of crazy that they didn't have a, you know, a prepared script when they started shooting, so I yeah, I had no idea about that. That that's even more impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh but yeah, that that makes sense how you can, it can add on, you know, just trying to build up different people. So Yep. All right. Uh, well, I guess that's it for our dislikes. So, how about some trivia? I know you guys got some trivia. Van, take um, it away. Yeah. Well, I mean, we had already kind of talked about profitability, but the movie was a huge hit, as you had said, Mark. And it, and this is the movie that helped return Universal Studios to profitability. Mm-hmm. Um, just as again, Dracula had done. <laughs> you know, All back in 1931. Years. Yeah, horror continually keeping these studios afloat. Um, you know, it's like. New Line Cinema and the house that Freddie built. Yeah, uh, sure. This is this is something that we see repeated over and over again. Again, it's not a genre that gets any respect, but and why it do makes they a keep, lot of money for them? Why do they keep walking away from it? You know, when it's the when it's their their daggone bread and you. it's their bread and butter. Yeah, you know, it's and, ridiculous. Uh, okay, so we already talked about Lionel Atwell, but I do have some biographical information on Basil Rathbone and. Donnie. Do it. Go, <laughs> uh, go, go. Interesting. And one thing I got to say is, you know, okay, James Whale was in World War One. You know, Ernest Thesiger was wounded in World War One. And when we talk about Basil Rathbone, man, these guys were way more badass than us. 
<laughs> yeah, so, I could agree. Hey, 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 <laughs> so, hey, well, hey, speak for yourself, pal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I when you, I get to, by the end of this, you're going to know I am speaking for you as well. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I was wounded seriously in a in a big uh you know incident. I was uh trying to get some eggs and milk for this big <laughs> snowstorm we're having, and I turned my ankle. Some old lady hit me with a purse. Yeah, on the list with these guys. Then go ahead. I want to hear you've this. Seen the war zone. All right. So Basil Rathbone. All right. He's born. 13th of June, 1892, in Johannesburg, South Africa. Uh, at the end of 1915, Rathbone was called into the British Army as a private with the London Scottish Regiment, uh, joining a regiment that also counted in its ranks its future his future professional acting contemporaries Claude Rains, Herbert Marshall, and Ronald Coleman at different points throughout the conflict. After basic training with the London Scots in early 1916, he received a commission as a lieutenant where he served as an intelligence officer and eventually attained the rank of captain. Rathbone's younger brother John was killed in action on 4th June 1918. It was after this that Rathbone convinced his superiors to allow him to scout enemy positions during daylight rather than at night as was a usual practice to minimize the chance of detection. Rathbone describes it thus in his autobiography. Camouflage suits have been made for us to resemble trees. On our heads were wreaths of freshly plucked foliage. Our faces and hands were blackened with burnt cork. End quote. As a result of these highly dangerous wow. daylight reconnaissance patrols in September 1918, he was awarded the Military Cross for, quote, conspicuous daring and resource on patrol, end quote. Richard Van Emden, in his book Famous... 1914 to 18 speculates that this extreme bravery may have been a form of guilt or a need for vengeance following his brother's death. He rose to prominence in the United Kingdom as a Shakespearean stage actor and went on to appear in more than 70 films, primarily costume dramas, swashbucklers, and occasionally horror films. Uh, Rathbone frequently portrayed suave villains or morally ambiguous characters, such as Mr. Birdstone, David Copperfield, and Sir Guy of Gisborne in The Adventures of Robin Hood in 1938. His most famous role, however, was heroic, that of Sherlock Holmes in 14 Hollywood films made between 1939 and 1946, and in a radio series. And those Rathbone, movies are great. Yeah. Those movies and, are really good. Uh, we just showed my son recently The Great Mouse Detective, which, of course, his yes. name is Basil in that, after yeah. Basil Rathbone. Uh, okay, Rathbone died suddenly of a heart attack in New York City on 21st July, 1967, at the age of 75. He is interred in a crypt in the Shrine of Memories Mausoleum at Ferncliff Cemetery in Hartsdale, New York, which is a drive, not not too bad of a drive for me, so I may have to stop in there. Yeah, me neither. Pay my respects. Cool. Um, and now, Donnie Dunnigan. All right. Um, this is going to get my talk about badasses. This little kid. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> you know, of course, Peter von Frankenstein, the, the very little curly headed kid in the movie. He was born in San Antonio, Texas, but his family soon moved to Memphis, Tennessee, where he, they struggled with poverty. There at the age of three and a half, he won a talent contest prize of $100. St- spotted by a studio talent scout, the family moved to Hollywood, where Dunnigan appeared in a series of films and soon became his family's main breadwinner. And as you mentioned before, Mark, he became the voice of the young fawn in Walt Disney's Bambi. By the age of 13, Dunnigan was living in a boarding house and working as a lathe operator. In 1952, at the age of 18, he enlisted in the Marine Corps. He became the Marine's youngest ever drill instructor and served three tours in Vietnam, where he was wounded several times before what? finally retiring in 1977 with the rank of major. For his service, he received a Bronze Star and three Purple Hearts. 
Donegan kept his acting career secret while serving the Marines, but in 2004, he was located and exhaustively interviewed by horror movie historian Tom Weaver in a special Donnie Donegan issue of Video Watchdog magazine. Donegan is retired and is currently living in San Angelo, Texas with his wife. Once again, a bunch of, bunch of badasses. Dude, that is <laughs> cool. A bronze star and three purple hearts? Yep. Yep. Do you realize what that is? I know. That's that is like that's a hell of a decoration. Yep. That is unbelievable. He yep. was a lathe operator. As what did you say? How old? Uh, thirteen. Thirteen. Yeah. Wow. That that's amazing, man. Thanks for bringing that stuff up. I love hearing that the backgrounds on these people, man. Yeah, that's crazy. He was uncredited for Bambi too. Mm. Like it wow. doesn't say what is who who voiced Bambi on the on the screen. So yeah. Now that you made us feel useless, uh, but uh, let me let me point out that it wasn't the Disney historians that tracked him down and gave him recognition. It was the horror movie historian. That's true. <laughs> that you said true. you said it was Mark Gaddis. Are you talking uh, about Mark Gaddis, Tom Weaver? Because yeah. he's also um, he was interviewed. If you go on YouTube, you can check out. There's a thing called a history of horror with Mark Gaddis. And, oh um, yeah, the guy. Would, yeah, I know. I know what you're talking about the British one. Yeah, yes, it was, yes. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very good uh, little mini series that'll put yeah, all put together. On Universal and Hammer Horror. Yeah, yeah. and and uh, he he appears on that. You know, given well, a little bit. That was from 2010. So yeah, well, back you want to Tom see Weaver. what he looks like? Yeah, back good. to Tom Weaver, man. He's he's does. The absolute best commentaries on these uh, legacy collections. I'm telling listeners, listen to Weaver's commentaries on all of these different Universal films. He will blow you away with the stuff he knows. He literally, like, like he hunted down that kid, man. Like, he hunts down everybody and he pulls out the most phenomenal details. Uh, Vin, you especially gotta listen to them if you, if you never did. They're unbelievable, man. I can't praise them enough. Yeah, the only thing that I wish they would have done is give somebody, uh, give him somebody to play off of. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it's so just different. It's just him talking. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Know. And, which is good. It's a, I mean, it's a ton of information. It's but, nonstop. Yeah, but I would have loved it. Like if it would have been him and somebody else having a conversation about. It. I, that's the. Those mm-hmm. are the commentaries I like the most. When somebody is is having a conversation, but yeah, I mean, if you're looking for straight info. up like info that you've never heard before, uh, yeah, this this guy is is a maniac. <laughs> really, it, it doesn't take a breath. It's just nonstop. There's it's no incredible. way that guy can be married and know, <laughs> and know that and know that much stuff about Frankenstein than movies. Nato. That's right. No way. <laughs> Believe it or not. All right, um, uh, Mark. Any trivia from you, or we had yeah, it all when we were just, reviewing. Just, just some pretty simple stuff. Um, yeah, go ahead. Uh, everyone should know that the this is the movie that Young Frankenstein really um, parodies a lot, and oh, yeah. most of the script it kind of follows this the the son coming back and and all of that. Um, of course, it has uh, callbacks to the first and even Bride and stuff, but this is the main one. Mm-hmm. Um, th- this is weird. You know the you ever heard of the old? Um, uh, he was a, a big athlete. He played in the in the uh, football. I don't know if it's the NFL yet, but he uh, played football. He played baseball, and he was in the Olympics. Jim Thorpe. He's actually oh, I, he's actually our in high this, school is Jim Thorpe High School. Oh, he's in this movie. 
He came from Pittston, Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, Who is he's he in this movie? Wild, widely, widely considered to be one of the greatest athletes of all time. Um, yep. He was one of the um, um, the burgers. Huh. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. Do you know I had he's, no he's un- idea? Yeah, he's uncredited. That. He's uncredited. But this would have been a, a time in history where he was pretty well known. You know, th- this is like... The audience this is would have recognized him pretty yeah, quickly. Probably, th- this, is, okay. this is like something like... Um, you know, this is like a Babe uh, Ruth of football. Yeah, Babe Ruth being in a movie or... Or, yeah. uh, you know, right now, LeBron James, if he's in a movie, which he was, he was in a train wreck. But, um, you know what I'm saying? So that, that's kind of a, a cool thing to look for. Uh, I'm not sure how much he stands out. He's just kind of like one of the, you know, guys in the crowd there. Um, oh, that's really cool. And this is, that. yeah. And this is, uh, loosely remade in 1964 by Hammer. And it was called The Evil of Frankenstein. Which Frankenstein, is a great film. Starring Peter Cushing. And I and I say loosely, but it's kind of yeah. got a little bit of the same same yep. thing. Great but, film. Yep, that's about it. That's about awesome. all I got, man. All right, well let's let's get into ratings here. Vin, what do you rate Son of Frankenstein? Um, I mean it's it's the lesser of the trilogy, but it's still a feast for the eyes. It's a thoroughly enjoyable film in its own right, um, and it's definitely, as I said before, it's a worthy follow up to James Whale's what are can, I think could be considered masterpieces. Um, yep. and I kept going back and forth kind of between like a 8.5 right now. I'm going to go with an eight. Um, but I've only, I've only watched it once. Uh, so this is a film with repeat viewings that could possibly go up further. Uh, but right now it's an eight, which is a very, very good score for me. Um, I think it goes without saying that people should own this and watch it. Uh, but yeah, it's th- this, this is a great cap to a very, very iconic and wonderful trilogy. Nice. Okay, Mark Nato, what is your score for Son of Frankenstein? Yeah, I'd definitely again say to own this movie, get that Legacy Collection. If you're a horror fan, you're a horror collector, get it. What are you waiting for? Uh, Second and, that. <laughs> and uh, kind of like Vin, I was teetering. I was teetering between a seven and a half and an eight, uh, just because I, I wish there would be a little bit more action. That there'd be a little, you know, less, uh, you know dragging there in the middle that that's really a, a, about it um but um it's a good movie but i i'd say give it a seven and a half out of ten still still something that's worth owning and worth seeing and worth revisiting it's it's not just one of those movies that you only need to see once i mean watch it watch it more than once you'll you'll discover new things that's that's the awesome thing about these older movies is every time you watch it you know something else sticks out so yeah, it's true. It's true. Well, I'll come in with mine, and I'm coming in with an eight and a half out of ten, and it's an absolute must buy. I second Mark Nato. Well, and then on these legacy collections, you gotta get them. Um, it is my favorite one to watch over and over out of the three, and it's even though that's it's not my highest score. I scored the first two films because they're technically better, but. For rewatchability and fun, this is my favorite one to watch. So eight and a half, man. I mean, that's a great score. I'm happy. So that's going to do it for the reviews of Frankenstein, Karloff Trilogy. And that's a great end to a trilogy. I really do believe that. So that'll do it for this episode's reviews. But in two weeks, we're going to be continuing on our Monster Palooza series. And whose picks are next, Mark? You know what? I have no clue. 
I'm Mark. not looking. Is it mine? All right, Mark. They're mine. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so it's Vin's. So Vin, okay, what what are you? It. What are your two picks? Uh, it is 1990s Tremors. Um, definitely one of my. I probably, maybe the horror movie I've seen the most times. Um, Graboids. Right. Uh, and the host, which I believe I don't have it in front of me. I, I, 2006, I believe uh, it's a South Korean film. Yep. Yep. Oh, two. So, uh, yeah, man. Two. Yeah. That'll be a great episode. Yeah, good picks. Yeah. So guys, I, get your viewing in. Yeah, I own the host. Never seen it, so I'd like to. Uh, mm. Oh, sure. you're, you're in yeah. for a treat, brother. Yeah, you're in for a treat. Okay, so those are that's where our next monster palooza series. We're we're about we're deep into it now. Uh, I'm really enjoying it, but. Where can the people find us? Magneto, where can they find you? Well, they can uh, email at askthehorrorcast at gmail.com if you have any uh, thoughts, suggestions, critiques. Uh, if you want to request you know, us to uh, cover a movie, doesn't mean that we're, we're going to do it, but we might. Um, just uh, drop us a, a, an email. You can also follow us on Twitter at the HCast. And I also wanted to just say before we head out that um, I am going to put a couple of uh, little bio things after the end credits um, on Boris, Boris Karloff and Jack Pierce. So if you're into that sort of thing, like like I am, uh, stay tuned after the, the end theme, and there'll be more. So Awesome. Okay, Vin, where can the people find you? Uh, you can, if you're interested in reading my blog, it's, uh, therevenantreview.com. Uh, I can be reached via email at therevenantreview at gmail.com. And on Twitter, I'm at revenantreview. Yes. And, and can I plug that real quick? I, I enjoyed your little Hellraiser thing you had going on there. So, oh, my, my retrospective where I went through it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. He brings Thank Hell you. Hellraiser to life, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, well, as for me, uh, my good buddy Mark Nato started me a Facebook page. Uh, so you can find me under Walshy Horrorcast um, on Facebook there or any of uh, through our website, our emails. You know, it, we're all interconnected here. We'll get it no matter what. So that's that. Yes. And as as for Horror Gal, she's, she's trying to get on um, Facebook. I don't know. She's, she has tons of trouble with technology. It's always something. Um, but she, go on her YouTube, man. That's what she's known for. She has a great little channel, and it's the Horror Gal Susan. Just type it in, search her on YouTube. Yeah, and I did want to. I did want to say we we. This is all kind of new to us being on a podcast network. So I keep I keep forgetting to to acknowledge. But we are part of a podcast network uh, called the Phantom Podcast Network, and you can. Get all of that stuff on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever your podcasts are downloaded. But uh, check us out at uh, www.downrightcreepy.com. And there's uh, all of our updates are on there. Plus, there's a lot of other really cool shows. Uh, the Modern Horrors Podcast, the um, uh, Attack of the Killer Podcast. There's a ton of Horror Scouts. There's a ton of, of good quality shows on this network. And uh, so go visit and check it out because uh, uh, they're, they're really it's, – it's growing. And yep. uh, I want to say a shout-out to, to Tim, who is the leader of that podcast. He's down uh, He was down at South by Southwest this week checking out some horror movies. And, um, yeah, man, so I'm, I'm excited to be part of it. Yeah, it's a great podcast network. Uh, the really good people. You know, Tim's a great guy. He's been uh, 
he's been really good to us so far, even just reaching out. So thanks for that, man. Yep. Okay. And if you'd like to stay current on our podcast, we really hope you do. If you'd like to ask a question, comment on any of our episodes, send a request, or you'd like to just join in as a guest, or just say hello, visit us at the links we just told you. And if you would, please, we've got to do our little begging, give us an iTunes review, give us a five-star review, right? you got to get a five-star review. And if you do, then one of the next five people, i got a little horror package for you. Uh, nobody knows about that, but I, I have some good stuff, man. So nice. maybe that will give you a little incentive to get out there and get some more reviews. We really do appreciate it. That means a lot to us. Um, so <laughs> until next time, thanks for listening to the horror cast where it's all killer, no filler. And as always, stay scared. I say.
When you talk about Boris Karloff, when you talk about his great roles, you think Frankenstein, Fu Manchu, Body Snatcher. But if you talk about Boris Karloff as a character, you think of the storyteller. Karloff was able to lure them inside and to see things looking out. I'm sure Karloff never thought that it was going to lead to an entire career starring in horror movies. I am ready. Black and white they may be, but even that's part of the appeal. I've yet to find a way of combining Frankenstein's technique with my own. There's a strange mysticism about Karloff, almost, you could say, a spirituality. Uh, women responded to it, children responded to it, animals responded to it. They loved Boris Karloff. There was something very, very odd about him. It was almost like the St. Francis Assisi of horror stars. There was always that underlying uh, touch that he brought to it that made you feel sorry for the characters he played. Boris Karloff brought a quality to the horror film that hadn't been seen since the death of Lon Chaney. And it's not a quality that you would immediately associate with a horror icon. What it is is vulnerability. He was able to kind of explore these characters from very unexpected areas and really surprise the audience. You shall rest from that, like the setting sun in the west. But you shall dawn anew in the east as the first rays of Amon-Ra dispel the shadows. If anybody ever paid their dues in the acting profession, it was Boris Karloff. He cleared land, he drove trucks, he did hard labor to make a living so that he could act. Because he was a good actor, he was able to, I think, take advantage of the, um, the opportunities that came by, and it, and it didn't hurt that he had good directors. It's very obvious to most of us nowadays that a horror icon is someone, one who has outlived the films or outlived, outlived their own life in these films and gone on to inspire a new generation. Even when he was being gentlemanly or subtle, you got the impression there was this great storm raging in this man behind those incredible eyes. There's a feral quality in Karloff. There's never anything comforting or cozy about the performances. The horror films that he was in almost transcend the genre. These people can survive that long. They are genuine, genuine movie stars and movie icons. When Universal clicked with Dracula, instantly they knew that it wasn't going to be Jekyll and Hyde next, it was going to be Frankenstein next. Partly that was economics. Universal said, hey, we've made a lot of money out of this, let's do something else. What's the other famous book? It's Frankenstein. These monsters represent, embody something in the moviegoers' psyche at the time. We can probably make a case that Frankenstein is, is the first film to be made where someone has deliberately set out to make a horror film. Boris Karloff is in two early Howard Hawks pictures. He's in The Criminal Code, in which he plays a homicidal prisoner, and he's very impressive and scary in it. There's a scene where he goes to stalk a brutal warder and to kill him, and he moves in a very, very strange, interesting way. He won't get any bigger. Take it before he finds out about these guns. And, of course, he's in Scarface as one of the um, gangsters that has double-crossed Scarface and gets rubbed out while he's bowling. Carl Emley Jr. was determined to make Frankenstein, and so he looked around on the lot for a director, and James Whale was directing Waterloo Bridge. Carl Emley Jr. had watched the dailies, which were quite impressive, and um, 
He offered the assignment to James Whale, and James Whale saw the dramatic possibilities and jumped at it. Whale didn't think that the same guy should play Dracula and Frankenstein. He thought that that would confuse the public. Lugosi was unceremonially dumped from Frankenstein rather than stepping aside to make way for, for Karloff. Karloff always said, uh, he's asked Whale, well, what do you want me to test for? And Whale said, a damned awful monster. And Karloff said his feelings were hurt because he was rather well-dressed and made up that day for a role in a gangster picture. And he said, I thought I looked rather saucy. James Whale saw the monster having a sort of bony skull-like face on top of a big body. The only thing that was missing was the large body, but of course that could be padded in a costume. And of course on the titles, he's a question mark. Karloff has no billing. It's like, who is the monster? Karloff's sense of menace was there just waiting to happen. The combination of two Englishmen in Hollywood, and in the case of James Well, clearly somebody who felt kind of committed to the outsider. It's one of those things that, you know, every so often everything falls together perfectly, and in the case of Frankenstein with Karloff as the monster, by gum it did. greatest performances in cinema. It's one of the most moving, wordless performances that we have. I think what's so touching about the creature in Frankenstein is it's a silent film performance in a sound movie. He's doing all these wonderful pantomime gestures and you feel incredibly sort of sympathetic towards him uh, as if he's a sort of recalcitrant child. It's not his fault. I mean, he didn't, you know, he didn't choose to have dysfunctional brain put into his cranium. That was Fritz's fault. Did I ask for this? It's not my fault. You're, why have you done this to me? Karloff was brilliant at why have you done this to me. The moment when we see him first in Frankenstein, of course, is one of those hugely great things. Bam, bam, bam. His jump cuts into his face before Goddard or Truffaut or New Wave. Even though it's wildly different makeup, he's still recognizably Karloff beneath it, and it gives him the ability to be very subtly expressive. Sit down. Sit down. That really does fix him in that image. And it's a masterclass in acting, anyway. Uh, but it's also a masterclass in how Hollywood creates myths in the 20th century. Well, Karloff looks like the perfect Frankenstein monster. It's one of those classic matches of, of role, and in this case, obviously, makeup uh, and commitment to, to the part. But there's a sense in which old Karloff's squarish head was, was perfect for what Jack Pierce wanted to do with it. And there's that wonderful scene where the monster reaches up to the light, and you can almost imagine watching that scene that Karloff is asking God to give him a soul. Take care, Take care. Based on his performance, you almost believe that he's been given one. It's like this miracle happens in the film. I think that audiences, without necessarily articulating that, felt it. People also tend to forget that the monster is terrified all the time. It's one of the great cinematic representations of fear and terror. Sit down. Go and sit down. Karloff brought those memorable gestures, the, the, the upside-down hand gesture of supplication and asking for some kind of understanding in this world. The humanity in 
those eyes behind those heavy lids. And the heavy lids, by the way, was also Karloff's addition to the makeup. He said, the monster looks too aware. I think this monster should be almost sleepwalking. We, we need to show him not quite dead and not quite alive, and thus came up with the heavy waxed eyelids. He goes through huge ranges of emotion just in the eyes, and I think that's again what Whale recognized, that, that he could do that. And it's a very unusual gift to be able to understand the camera and know what you can do. The merest flicker, which is imperceptible perhaps to the naked eye, the camera picks it up. The easy out of playing that part is just to play it for sympathy. If you had played it all as the, the monster on the loose, the horror elements of it, that wouldn't have worked as well. As, a, as an experienced stage actor, he brought those two elements together and, and he melded them into, into one single dramatic performance. Karloff realises that you know, if, if you whip a dog, it turns vicious. Oh, come away, Fritz. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. What's the scariest thing in, in the film is the way that you see how this potentially noble, innocent figure is, through mischance and abuse, turned into a monster. Would you like one of my flowers? The most remarkable scene that I always think of with Karloff is the scene with Little Maria and the incredible tragedy that he's able to create with that little girl, with Marilyn Harris in that scene. The, the twisted smile he has, the strange falsetto laughter he has while they play. I mean, this is a very eerie scene, incredibly powerful. No, you're hurting me! No! He's using every atom of his ability. And I think Karloff, although he came from a very well-to-do background, was coming into Frankenstein after a, several decades of basically very poor living. I think that really gives the, the Frankenstein monster a sort of underclass feel. Mary Shelley's monster never shuts up. What the makers of the film decide is to silence the monster entirely, which allows Karloff license under this extraordinary half a ton of makeup, padding a big monster suit to produce this extraordinarily moving, kind of balletic mime. These movies superseded the literary sources and became something else. They became a myth. This would generate this, this remarkable folklore in Hollywood. How do you evoke this nightmarish creature, such as Frankenstein's monster, pieced together from corpses, bolts in his neck, terribly frightening creation? And how do you actually get audiences to love the character? And so it was a remarkable achievement, both for Whale as a director, for Karloff as an actor, to be able to pull that off. Creature is is the center the heartbeat of that movie if karloff hadn't delivered it wouldn't have been a hit you've got to remember that karloff was in his 40s when he uh, played frankenstein i mean this was a guy whose career was kind of not really going anywhere i mean been in some pictures but you know this was a a big shock that this picture was so successful and that all of a sudden he was a name universal had found their new lon cheney a man of a thousand faces, and Universal um, immediately signed Karloff to a contract, and they put him in The Old Dark House, another James Whale picture, and they have an opening 
card on the old dark house explaining to the audience that this is the same Karloff who played the monster in Frankenstein just a few months earlier and that it's a credit to his versatility as an actor that the audience would even be confused that it's the same person. In other words, the publicity machine was already grinding promoting Karloff as a movie star bigger than life. Yeah, if, if the film was utterly ridiculous, like Fu Manchu, he knew just that right degree of wry tongue-in-cheekness to inject that made it bearable, that made it yeah, something you could get away with. It's uh, clearly a performance that he relishes enormously. Uh, it's somewhat politically incorrect, mm. but it definitely is a, a, a genuine portrait of sort of, you know, of, of Asiatic evil. And sort of the edge of cruelty he brings to it is, is, is unexpected for, for such a, a genteel actor. You get The Mummy, which is basically a remake of Dracula with the star of Frankenstein. And then I think we've, we, we know what, what it is. And every other studio in Hollywood says, let's start making films like this. <laughs> his next horror picture for Universal, The Mummy, they even took his first name away, and he became Karloff, just Karloff, or Karloff the Uncanny. He became a, a brand name, you know, he had the good housekeeping seal of approval as a horror star. And that's Universal doing what it does, which is making movie stars. There was Garbo, there was Chaplin, and there was Karloff, I mean he was billed as Karloff, and Karloff the Uncanny. Never saw a mummy like that, neither I imagine as anyone else. Looks as though he died in some sensationally unpleasant manner. Buried alive. The superlative scene in which he, he returns to life in mummified form, which is surely the most frightening scene in the cinema, probably up to that point, precisely because of the timing and, and more particularly of the pacing. I mean, it really feels like something very, very slowly filling up with, with life after it's been dead. He's all bandaged up in the first scene with eight hours of makeup, which, by the way, supposedly caused Karloff to collapse on the set because he couldn't get the oxygen. Then later he had the shrivel-faced Art of Bay makeup that had to be melted off every night. And here he is sort of trapped in these incredible makeups. As the New York Times said, here's a man who has to act behind synthetic wrinkles. We Egyptians are not permitted to dig up our ancient dead. Only foreign museums. Yet he comes across as his very fervent spiritual lover. First time he sees Zeta Johan in that film, the, and the camera comes in and you see his eyes, it's staggering, the romanticism that he evokes there. A thousand pardons. I am not at bay. It's very much a kind of imperial revenge fantasy or paranoia going on there, isn't there? You know, what happens if, if, if they come and get us? Instead of us going out and colonizing them, we don't like it when they do it to us. A lot of the credit for the success of that picture went to Karloff. The interesting thing about Karloff with that billing of Karloff the Uncanny is that he actually lives up to the hype. A lesser actor would have been crushed under that kind of expectancy. Karloff was very wise in looking for roles that showcased him not only as uh, a horror star, but also as a great character actor. And for example, he did John Ford's The Lost Patrol that was released in 1934, and he played a religious lunatic, went stark raving mad in the desert. Very juicy role, um, and it was the kind of role that 
that uh, certainly at that time audiences watched and thought, wow, what a great actor. Boris Karloff could have done straight roles probably for the rest of his career. However, I don't think that he would have been a movie star. He was a movie star because he returned to the genre. And I think he returned to the genre because A, he was very grateful to the genre, and B, it gave him great roles. Well, the first Karloff and Lugosi film was The Black Cat, Universal in 1934. And Karloff, of course, was under contract at the time to Universal, and they were looking for a great horror property for him. Lugosi was in New York preparing to do a new play. But the uh, brainstorm erupted to put the two of them together. There's something in horror movies that people love your favorite box of chocolates. You know? They like seeing a movie with, your, with the familiar sets and the familiar actors. And Lugosi's got to do his number and Karloff's got to do his number. And it, maybe it reassures people. You hear that, Peter? The phone is dead. Even the phone is dead. The Black Cat is my very favourite film. I think as a pairing it was inspired. They match each other precisely and brilliantly. You can actually see Karloff taking great delight in being genuinely evil. Hungary's greatest psychiatrist is travelling to meet Austria's greatest architect, who is also a Satanist, some kind of mad scientist who preserves women in his castle. I wanted to have her beauty always. And he's a great concert organist as well. This is great um, deranged chess match being played between these two insane polymaths. Checkmate. You lose, fetus. You have Karloff playing the modern... Lucifer, you have Lugosi playing the avenging angel who skins him alive, and they work together like champions. You must be indulgent of Dr. Verdigast's weakness. He is the unfortunate victim of one of the commoner phobias, but in an extreme form. He has an intense and all-consuming horror of cats. He's very spine-chilling in that. Karloff has already taken over the, the name of Frankenstein, not Frankenstein's monster anymore, because you know, it would be too much of a mouthful, I suppose. But nevertheless, you know, the, these two absolutely iconic images are going to be put together in a film. This is being marketed as the appeal of that movie. It was alchemy, really. It was box office magic. They adjusted the uh, billing on the Raven to say Karloff and Lugosi for the only time. But it was still Karloff top bill, even though in the Raven his role was only half as large as Lugosi's. Legends of rivalry between Karloff and Lugosi, and Karloff always spoke very, very respectfully of Lugosi throughout his life and after Lugosi's death. I think Lugosi in those days would have liked to have disliked him, but he couldn't. I think Karloff was simply too charming. I mean, he was funny on the set, and he sang Cockney ditties, and he was, you know, a delight, and he had tea breaks. Karloff had a twinkle in his eye. There's something slightly ironic about a lot of Karloff's performances. He's sort of watching himself doing it, and he's not taking himself 100% seriously. They worked together very, very peacefully because of the fact that they were both European gentlemen. Told him to keep his mouth shut. Gets the gag out of his mouth and starts yelling for the police. I have the acetylene torch in my hand. So you put the burning torch into his face, into his eyes. 
Oh, sometimes you can't help things like that. When Bride of Frankenstein came along, of course, he was the logical choice to play the monster again, and he jumped at the opportunity, even though he disagreed with James Whale about allowing the monster to speak. The Frankenstein monster, uh, Carlos, was the first monster in the history of the cinema to be brought back to life after he was officially dead. I mean, he established that, that, that precedent, really. I mean, now we're used to them popping up at the end of the movie. This is going to be the story in which the monster didn't die at the end after all. We only thought he was dead. Carlos seemed to feel a responsibility to the character. He was happy to come back for Bride of Frankenstein, although he, he clashed with Whale over the direction that the, the character was taken. And he thought, yeah, it was, it was kind of breaking the frame. You know, it's what animators call off-model. Yeah, having the Frankenstein monster talk. For me, uh, the Bride of Frankenstein is his best performance as the creature. The key scene where Karloff's concerned in the Bride of Frankenstein is with the hermit, the blind hermit in the forest, where, uh, which is a, trans a direct transcription of a whole chunk of the middle volume of the, of the original novel, where, where, where the creature learns language and learns all about literature and things by meeting this, this family. <laughs> No, no, this is good. Smoke. You try. Oh. <laughs> good, good. And it's easy to parody, you know, food, good, smoke, good, you know, and all this. But it's genuinely touching. Blind hermit who is really beginning to enjoy and starting to laugh and enjoy, have a party in the middle of the forest. And this sad, lumbering creature. And they develop, in the space of three minutes, a relationship that's really, really touching. I think you can get a sense in which they, they pretty well did everything they possibly could do with, with, with the, the speaking monster. Uh, not least, he becomes actually, in some ways, a very blackly comic figure. Oh. I thought I was alone. Good evening, Smog. Friend. Yes, I hope so. Have a cigar. They're my only weakness. There's a great deal of underlying uh, black and wicked wit in, 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 in almost all of Wales' horror movies. If anything, he's playing the pathos even more in the second one, where he becomes Christ at one point. You know, there he is on this extraordinary treeless forest designed by Danny Hall, where, where you've got these upright trees, which, which are like telephone pylons. They don't, they don't have any leaves, they don't have any branches, and uh, Karloff is, is strapped to one of those. So he becomes a sort of Christ figure. How James Whale got that through the censors is, I mean, is one of the great mysteries, I think. The fact that the rest of the film has got more going for it than the performance means that it's perhaps less appreciated. I mean, the whole thing about The Bride of Frankenstein is it's not just got the Frankenstein monster, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's got Elsa Lanchester, uh, it's got, uh, Dr. Pretorius and, and, and lots of, yeah, quirky, interesting visual ideas. It's full of things that are great. Um, and the Frankenstein monster is just one part of it. Whereas I, I think you'd have to say in the first film, the Frankenstein monster is 75% of why it's great. We belong dead. time he gets to the third one, when Karloff actually said he was worried that it would either become burlesque, that if you push this thing any further, it would become musical, or it would become just a prop. 
but he still has moments of, of pathos with Basil Rathbone when he first sees him and compares their faces in a mirror, and later on with Basil Rathbone's little son when he's deciding whether or not to uh, throw him in the pit of boiling lava. You can see the, the criminal brain warring with his better nature. The monster becomes mute again, um, but he becomes, uh, again, he, he reverts to the tragic figure of the first film. And in a sense, there's, there's no more tragic or heart-rending moment uh, in the series than when a cast monster realizes that his only friend, uh, Igor, is dead. And um, that, that, that's, that's a remarkable moment, and, and perhaps not, not yet fully uh, as anthologized as I'm sure it will be as time goes on. All the magic of the monster is in that moment. He turned 50 on the set of Son of Frankenstein and thought that he was just too old to do this anymore. Karloff felt that the series cheapen the character. As he said, it was from hunger. They were making movies because the movies would make money, not because they had anything interesting or new to say about the character. The character of the monster is, is on its way to be picture status in that picture because he's basically, and, and Karloff saw this, I mean, he, 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 that's why he didn't do any more of it. He said, look, I'm, I'm becoming a prop. Not following in the series in the 40s for him was certainly the right decision. Wiggle it. Or I could do this one. I could do with this one because I'm a DJ, you know. So, what you gonna do with that big fat butt? Wiggle, wiggle, wiggle. <laughs> you know that one, Jason oh Derulo. My God, you gotta leave that in. November twenty first, nineteen thirty one, the height of the Great Depression. In the midst of traditional entertainment. A small, struggling studio would introduce the world to a name that would forever be associated with fear. The studio was universal, and the name was Frankenstein. It's alive! It's alive! When unknown actor Boris Karloff made his unforgettable entrance, the terrifying face of Frankenstein's monster etched itself into world consciousness forever. The movie gave birth to the American horror film, and for the next two decades, the great icons of terror made their way onto the silver screen. One by one, they came to life through the combined imaginations of filmmakers, actors, and a single man whose makeup skills and artistic versatility would literally create universal monsters. His name was Jack Pierce. He's probably one of the most important people in the history of monster movies. And yet also at the same time, he's one of the most unknown people. He refined what you could do, where it made a remarkable change in what the audience was getting and what, indeed, the audience came to expect. This one guy created a stable of, like, amazing characters. Jack Pierce's Frankenstein is, to me, is the only Frankenstein. And that's like the defining moment for, for a makeup artist. Yeah, he created the Frankenstein monster. He created the Bride of Frankenstein. He created the Wolfman. He created the different mummies. He really created some of the greatest screen characters ever. In the makeup field, he's considered the father of the universal monster. Well, in the very early days of 
cinema, you had the theatrical tradition that actors did their own makeup. You know, the job, makeup artist didn't specifically even exist. Lon Chaney was the first to bring a finesse and an imagination to these techniques, uh, using tons of nose putty, wires to pull his face and everything. I'm amazed when I see the makeups that Lon Chaney Sr. did at the time that they were doing them. The Phantom of the Opera that he did still hasn't been topped in any Phantom of the Opera makeup. Jack Pierce looked at this and said, wow, with simple materials, this guy could do great stuff. That's where I'm headed. And that's what he did. The makeup that really brought Jack Pierce to the attention of Carl Emley in Universal was his 1926 makeup in a movie called The Monkey Talks. Even today, when you look at it, it's a really brilliant makeup. It rivals anything that John Chambers did in Planet of the Apes. But then he came back and he did The Man Who Laughs at Universal in 1928. And Pierce created this amazing, ghoulish, freaky kind of makeup. It became so iconographic that it became the inspiration for the Joker, the most popular and well-known villain in all of comic books. And apparently, Pierce was taken under Carl Lemley's wing uh, to head up the Universal Makeup Department. Because he was the head of Universal Makeup, he would be involved in all the films Universal were turning out in the 1930s and early 40s. He isn't losing sight of the fact that he is a makeup artist, and that means making up everybody. When they decided to make films of the classic horror novels, being Dracula and Frankenstein in the early 30s, I think Pierce really saw an opportunity to do something great. And of course, Dracula was the first one made. And although he actually worked on Dracula and worked with Bela Lugosi, apparently the two of them never really got on very well. And Lugosi himself insisted still on doing some of his own makeup. In 1931, Jack Pierce is very disappointed when Dracula is released, and even though it's a huge success, he's not really credited with creating the character. Although Dracula came first, we actually really think of the Universal Cycle as beginning with the Frankenstein monster, because it's the most visually amazing thing. Audiences have never seen anything like that before. One of the sketches that was done by the art department at Universal showed it as a mechanical robot made out of some kind of a metal. Pierce didn't go in that direction, thankfully. And of course, he doesn't bear any resemblance to the actual description in Mary Shelley's book. But what he created was something that was perfect for its time. Karloff had just a great face for it, especially in the original film when he was a starving actor and he was very gaunt and cadaverous looking. After work at night, he and Karloff would devise the makeup. During that time, which was about a three-week stretch, they tested different things. They tried all sorts of little quirky things and then settled upon one thing and then that, that was the look for the character. There were no prosthetic rubber pieces that were stuck on. This was started from scratch every time Karloff sat in the chair. Jack Pierce surrounded himself with reference books on medicine, criminology, electronics, all these things. He looked at hundreds of pictures of criminals and determined that there's a criminal look and Pierce emphasized that look in this movie. Jack Pierce tells the story about how he came up with the flat head, which never made any sense to me. He says he studied the way that you know surgeons work in ancient Egyptian you know burial things, and decided that you know uh, Frankenstein, not being a trained surgeon, would take the easiest route to get a man's brain out, which is saw the top of his head off and take the brain out, replace it with the other one, and put it back on. Therefore, he made it flat like a lid of a box. I don't know if he tried to make up an answer after the fact, you know, in where that square head came from, but 
it works. It makes it instantly recognizable as Frankenstein's monster. Karloff had to be on for the ride, you know, to be endure the hours in the chair and on set and, and any of the pain and, and scars that might have been left, you know, but they understood what it took and, and signed on for it 100%. You look at movie monsters in the 30s, and their faces move. And it's because you've got this craftsman, painstaking work of gluing every single bit individually. And it's a lot easier to project through that than it is just through a mask. Jack Pierce created the classic monsters with primitive techniques. I mean, cotton and collodion. Collodion is this horrible liquid plastic that's 24% ether. He built it up with layers of cotton, painting collodion over it, blending it in, using Q-tips or something to get the edges of the cotton to you know, disappear into the skin. And he built up the head the same way. And it was time consuming. Karloff talks about getting into Universal Studios at 3.30 in the morning to prepare for the makeup. It was more horrible taking it off. This stuff adhered like epoxy. I've heard that Karloff sometimes slept in the makeup so he wouldn't have to come and do the makeup the next day. And then, of course, how would he be brought to life? The famous, everyone calls them bolts, but they're actually electrodes on the neck. Pierce added those. We know that he put the electrodes on with spirit gum because Karloff has often remarked in interviews that, you know, he has scars where the electrodes were. He's made this cranium. He's used wax on the eyelids to give them a heavy look. But how the hell did he cave in one side of the guy's face? And I looked at that for ages when I was a kid. And, you know, when finally somebody says to you, Karloff had false teeth, Jack Pierce just said, take him out. I think one of the great things about the Frankenstein monster makeup is it does look like a walking dead man. You've never seen Karloff look more cadaverous than he does in Frankenstein. There is not a makeup artist alive that wouldn't like to create something as dynamic as the original Frankenstein. Nobody's ever been able to duplicate that, and everybody's tried. It's quite telling that Boris Karloff, many years later, would always credit Pierce as the man who created the Frankenstein monster. Karloff said, I was the person who wore the suit, I was the person who filled out the suit, but it was Jack Pierce who actually created the look and the feel of the monster. It comes together in such a way that it almost feels like it always existed. That's how great it is, like the Mona Lisa. Jack Pierce, after Frankenstein, was a superstar on the Universal lot, and they immediately put into production a, a film about the mummy. When you look at the opening scenes in that film of Karloff coming back from the tomb, wrapped in the bandages, and you can actually see the little globules of earth and dust and, and, and stuff that Pierce meticulously painted into those bandages. It is just the, probably the best mummy ever. He basically cooked the linen so that it would have a very aged and fragile feeling to it, and he wrapped it around vertically, horizontally, and diagonally around Boris Karloff. He literally spends hours getting him into this, so much so that he has to sort of be wheeled around. Pierce did the whole makeup, top of his head to bottom of his feet, and it took eight hours. And considering he's on screen so little, that image is massively iconic. One of the great moments in the history of cinema. It looks real because, it, in effect, it is. When I was a kid, seeing the mummy and then knowing that that's the same guy that was Frankenstein, it was like one of those, wait, how did they, how did he look like Frankenstein and now he looks like a mummy? Carl Freund rather undershoots the mummy. I think he was given probably a better job than he was expecting. Ah! 
you can tell that the mummy makeup will do all sorts of things that it's not required to do. But then he goes one step further, and suddenly you have Karloff in this, in this incredible old age makeup, where you really can't believe he's 3,000 years old. And I think probably it's the Ardath Mayer makeup that I always think of Pierce's greatest moment. That's a stretch and stipple technique that we still use today, where you, you stretch a section of the skin, you put latex on it, you dry it and let it go, and it contracts into a bunch of wrinkles. I did the exact same thing to Scott Reiniger in Dawn of the Dead. You know, that was a Jack Pierce mummy makeup on the Scott Reiniger zombie. We've seen many mummy movies since the original, and to me, nothing's as effective as what he did. It's almost like, you know, with all the tools of the trade, you know, we've lost some of the magic because we can do anything. And I think with his limitations, he created stuff that, you know, obviously withstood the test of time. Pierce and Karloff had a, a mutual respect for each other, and Pierce didn't always get that. Jack made up Boris and The Raven and an Old Dark House and just all these movie, amazing movies that he did with him. And, and uh, they still, you know, many years later, still had that respect and admiration for each other. I don't think anyone had quite pulled off horror in the contemporary world until The Black Cat did. What I find interesting about the makeup is this sort of fierce, logical, geometric character. Angular hair, angular shoulders. He's a piece of walking geometry who's like a prop in a modernist house, which is the polar opposite of what was going on in the Gothic films, but equally frightening. She's alive! Alive! The Bride of Frankenstein, the actual makeup on an Elsa Lancaster, is really uh, another great iconic makeup. This is an example, you see, of Jack Pierce. He always said he used scientific, but he often used cultural references. In the script, it says she should look like an Egyptian mummy. Jack Pierce didn't bother with that. Let's make her look like Nefertiti. It's not the first thing that you'd think of if you were going to design a makeup for a woman who was brought back from the dead with electricity. And yet, like the monster, it comes together in a very artistic way. And Elsa Lanchester, you know, she wrote a famous account of being made up by Jack Pierce. Describes he's dressed in this button-up surgeon's outfit with slick back hair, looking, as someone said, like a Greek barber. She said he really enjoyed these kind of uh, tortuous uh, uh, applications of makeup at five in the morning. By now, he was living the part. He also created the amazing hairstyle, which they put up in a cage, uh, as Elsa described it. And the only hint that this is a corpse is the stitching around her jaw, which James Whale wisely uh, features in the low-angle shots. A lot of people don't ever even realize that Frankenstein went through incarnations of makeup stages from movie to movie. The transition of the makeup from Frankenstein to Bride of Frankenstein, where the hair is singed back a little bit more and you see a little bit more of his forehead. And there's the, the burn on the cheek, and then in Son of Frankenstein, that you know, he's got this big, massive chest. You know, those are just great little touches. Good. Makeups that work on one person won't necessarily work on another. I think Frankenstein's monster never looked as good as it did on Karloff in the first film, and again, because of how thin Karloff was at that point. You know, by the time it was in the Son of Frankenstein, Karloff had could eat and put on some weight and he was also older so his face was fuller and it just didn't didn't look as good you know the worst was when they put it on Bela Lugosi at that point he actually had switched to a slip rubber headpiece and it wasn't fabricated on a daily basis and it didn't look as good but again his face was so wrong 
Oddly enough, when they bring Chaney in, it's defaulted back to the original Frankenstein monster look. So the way that there's a change between Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, and Son of Frankenstein, suggesting the character evolving, all that's just been wiped out. And Chaney is required to look as much like Boris Karloff in the first film as possible. And that's the look that then carried on for Lugosi and Glenn Strange and Eddie Parker and Herman Munster and yeah, anyone else who's ever got into that get-up. Pearson hits it out of the park in Son of Frankenstein is with Igor. And Igor, for my money, is probably Lugosi's second greatest screen character of all time. And it's fantastic and such a great marriage of actor and makeup artist. Igor has a broken neck. So Pierce created a rubber appliance that had a, a broken sort of bone in the neck, and that was strapped onto Bella Lugosi's neck, and apparently uh, it was secured with a, some kind of band under his arm. And then a beard was applied around that with Yak's hair, Jack Pierce's favorite kind of hair. That's where Pierce is really showing his skills at doing great hair work on characters. And he laid that whole beard in himself, the wig, and then would trim it every day to give Lugosi that great sort of semi-hunchback kind of character. And then he was given a set of really nasty teeth that include fangs. That's the one time that Bela Lugosi actually wore fangs in a movie, not for Dracula, but for Igor. So that was a really iconic makeup by Jack Pierce. <laughs> I always was fond of the Wolfman. I mean, I like that whole concept of an animal and a man combined into one kind of creature. Pierce had created basically the same makeup in 1935 for Henry Hull for the Werewolf of London, but Henry Hull didn't want to wear it. It was too much makeup for him. It was uncomfortable, and he wanted more of his face to show. And the makeup he did on Henry Hull, one could easily look at it and go, well, it doesn't look like a werewolf to me, but it was, it was a lovely approach very stylized, but it's lovely to compare it with what he did to Lon Chaney Jr. in The Wolfman. The Wolfman became Chaney's baby. He was very invested in this character, which is good because the makeup was very arduous. Jack Pierce was a master with hair work. When you think all of that was pretty much hand laid, it's incredible. Yak's hair was applied in layers and trimmed and then scorched with a curling iron and curled and blended. He never had upper teeth in. The Wolfman only wore lower dentures, so it jutted out his lower teeth as if it's like a, a dog or a wolf. But one thing that Jack Pierce couldn't do every day was completely model the Wolfman's nose from scratch. So that is the one appliance Jack Pierce definitely did use on these films, which all indications are was created by Ellis Merman Sr. Jack Pierce would secretly have these sculpture and molds made from impressions of the actors, and he would bring them to my father. My father would run the foam latex and the molds make the pieces for him. Jack Pierce really didn't want to let it out to the other makeup people that he was unfamiliar with those materials. They would literally shoot time-lapse photography. Jack Pierce had to run in between each successive makeup change and apply makeup and glue hair and then go back in and glue a little bit more hair. He had to sort of reverse engineer what that look looked like and then build into it. There's talks that it took, you know, 10, 12 hours of, of Cheney literally having to sit in that chair while they would shoot that transition and the, that progression of makeups. 
by the time he did Frankenstein meets a Wolfman, which was the second time the Wolfman appeared, he really just made it perfect. And I don't think it was ever better than that after that. that that's the perfect Wolfman makeup. The mummies in the 1940s were totally different from the 1932 mummy. First of all, they're not really the same type of film at all, and the makeups are totally different. With Tom Tyler in The Mummy's Hand, which is 1940, he's really creating a mummy similar to the Imhotep mummy that Karloff played in 1932. The Three Cheney films, Mummy's Tomb, Mummy's Ghost, Mummy's Curse, he's really doing a different kind of character altogether. And Pierce by then is doing a really different turn on the character than he had done with either Karloff or Tom Tyler. Cheney was not enjoying being made up as Karloff. So, for the third Karloff performance by Lon Chaney Jr., Pierce fashioned a rubber mask. But I think the big difference between, say, a Karloff and a Chaney, Karloff was willing to sit for hours being tortured like no other person was willing to do, and other actors were not as willing to do that. So it really, it's not a criticism of Chaney so much as a compliment to someone like Boris Karloff. This is one of the mummy's curse faces that Lon Chaney Jr. wore in uh, The Mummy's Curse that Jack Pierce did. Now, Jack gave me this around 1963, and it's just simple latex, so he didn't use rubber, even though he said he didn't. Now, he didn't use appliance rubber. That's what he was really talking about, but this, this is rubber, and uh, you know, you can see all the wrinkles and well, all the stuff in here, and you can see all the detail uh, that's in this mask, but it's, uh, it's one of my favorite things in the world. And as far as I know, I know Rick Baker, a lot of people have checked on this, and I think this is the only surviving piece of Jack's work now. Check the mega voltage. 25,000. In the mid-1940s, Universal was looking at ways of saving money and making as much money as they could from their monsters. And so they started churning out House of Dracula and House of Frankenstein, and suddenly Pierce had to work on three or four monsters in one movie. Jack Pierce had to make a Frankenstein monster from Glenn Strange, do the Wolfman on Lon Chaney Jr., and uh, create a Dracula makeup for John Carradine. And there was a lot of pressure on Jack Pierce to accommodate the actors and, of course, the production company. It was take, take too much time to do Cotton and Collodion. One can easily imagine actors who have been through a 12-hour makeup might well, the next time they come back, beg, you know, is there any way you can reduce the time or can you use something that's less corrosive? And unfortunately, Jack Pierce had never signed a contract with the studio and had been there 19 years as the department head by 1947, and he was let go in favor of a new breed of younger people who could get things done faster and quicker. You know, Jack Pierce is a guy who, you know, at the time, you know, he, he did his thing, he did it better than anybody, and, and he knew no other way, you know, and, and, and the movie and the industry changed. He did all the Frankenstein movies except Abbott Costello meets Frankenstein. In that film, Bud Westmore brought in the masks and basically used the over-the-head rubber mask approach to all the monsters. And you can see the difference. The makeups do not stand up anywhere near as well as when Pierce was doing them. Then, then that was a whole new start of, uh, you know, how makeup, uh, makeup and prosthetics and, and specialty characters were going to be handled for the future. When Jack Pierce left Universal, he did independent movies, he worked a lot in television, then he ended up doing B-films. He ended up gluing monofilament to Mr. Ed's lip, you know, it's like, that's terrible. To my knowledge, he was even asked back to Universal in an underling position in the Bud Westmore era, but declined it. 
One of the sad things about Jack Pierce was that at the end of his career, he was forgotten. He died in the mid-60s in, in near poverty, um, in, in, in near isolation. Nobody remembered who he was. Nobody really cared who he was. You know, I think at his funeral, somebody told me that there were, I think, four or five people when he passed away. You know, for somebody who was so inspirational to so many, very few people showed up. Time had marched on. The horror film had marched on. It's not like those movies were, were forgotten, but Jack Pierce was kind of forgotten. Took us about four hours in the morning. <laughs> Put the Frankenstein face and the head on for us. They're newly an hour to take it off. The whole outfit weighed about 20, 35 pounds. Yeah, you know who that is, Boris. That's One of the leading makeup Jack artists Pierce. in motion pictures who flew down here from Angel's Camp, California, where he's working on the Ransom Broidy production, Bullwhip, your very good friend, Jack Pierce. The best makeup man in the world. It's happened to so many makeup artists I know that they look back and it was either the Frankenstein makeup or the mummy or the wolfman that made them get up and decide that they wanted to do that. And I think his legacy is that he sowed that seed and this is decade upon decade upon decade later. His legacy is the inspiration of thousands and thousands of makeup people, thousands and thousands of horror fans and thousands and thousands of directors that watched those movies and were inspired by those movies. Nowadays, when we can do anything, that we still can't accomplish what he did, maybe that's why his stuff was so unique. My grandson, who knows who Frankenstein is, he's five years old, someday I'll show him the bust of Jack Pierce and say, see, the, he made him. You see how Grandpa makes these monsters? Well, he made this monster, and that's why I'm making my monsters. Halloween is a lasting tribute to Jack Pierce. When a kid dresses up like Frankenstein, he's dressing up in Jack Pierce's design. When a kid dresses up like the Wolfman, he's dressing up in Jack Pierce's design. Unfortunately, Jack didn't have children. He doesn't have that legacy to carry on. But he had these children that will outlast any children that he would have. He created these characters that outlived him and will outlive me, and people can see these a thousand years from now. You can look back and you can go, Universal Classic Monsters, there's a whole world there. Jack Pierce created that. Hey, what's up and welcome to Pawn Shop Horrors. This is Mark Nato of the Horror Cast and this is something I'm going to be doing from time to time just to, uh, you know, just because I think it's fun, but one of my favorite things to do and I'm sure there's a lot of you out there 
and horror land that like to do the same thing is I like uh, checking out pawn shops to find out what diamonds in the rough I can find. Uh, I love collecting. I love collecting Blu-rays especially, but also some DVDs that uh, may be out of print or just older movies that uh, I'm not really willing to go sometimes in the $15, $20, uh, price range for a Blu-ray. And uh, I really have fun with it. My wife said I, I spent way too much money on it. So I kind of, you know, stopped for a little while, but I'm back because it's October, it's Halloween season, and I am right back into it. So today I stopped by my local uh, uh, pawn shop, one of my favorites here on West Street in Annapolis, Maryland. And I spent $7 and I got five Blu-rays and four DVDs. And I'm just going to share with you what I got. Uh, first of all, I'll start with the Blu-rays. I got a, a really nice copy. Brand, I mean, brand new. Still had the wrapper on it uh, of Searching. Searching is a, uh, I believe, a 2018 film uh, starring David, uh, not David, but uh, John Cho. A 16-year-old daughter of his goes missing. And it's basically a movie about him investigating where she could possibly be. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, technology involved in the, the making of this film. There's uh, screenshot. The, the whole movie is basically screenshots of different uh, computer programs and social media. Uh, but it's very uh, Hitchcockian uh, in its in its suspense. And, and there's a mystery unraveling. And it's got a really good ending. So I'm really uh, happy that I picked that up. I'm not going to go out and spend $15 on a Blu-ray for it. But if, you know, I go to the pawn shop and it's there for a dollar like this was, absolutely. So that's the searching. Next is a movie that I, uh, uh, I've i been hearing a lot about. It's not even a, a newer movie. It's a few years old. It's called The Fourth Kind. I know it's like an alien, um, like uh, abduction type movie. Uh, it says a remarkable remarkable movie that boggles the mind. This is Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind. So uh, I've had a lot of people say this is a good movie. It's a scary movie. I've never made time to watch it. So uh, I'm glad I picked it up for a buck. I'm going to grab uh, grab that and take it home and watch that. Got a really cool copy of Big Trouble and Little China Blu-ray. It's got the audio commentary by Carpenter and Russell, deleted scenes, extended ending. Now, I know I have this movie probably on um, Blu-ray from Screen Factory, but I picked this up because, you know, it's a buck and it's a great little, um, uh, really in good shape Blu-ray. And I might even use it as a giveaway on the horror cast. And then next I got a, uh, a Blu-ray of Leatherface, which is, um, they're saying the best Texas Chainsaw film since the original. Not sure about that. But uh, this is the one that came out just a few years ago, uh, kind of continuing the story about the Sawyer family. And it's a pretty decent movie. It wasn't anything that uh, blew my mind. But again, for a buck, you can't beat that uh, to have that on Blu-ray. So I believe I have it on DVD, and I'll probably give that DVD away now on uh, the horror cast. Next was, I guess it ends up being the crown jewel of uh, today's thing, because I wasn't even aware of this. Uh, I own this movie on a really nice DVD uh, packaging. Uh, it's called Near Dark. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with it. It's uh, Catherine Bigelow. Uh, it's a really, really good kind of like almost like a Wild West, modern Wild West vampire movie. And uh, they had the, bl the Blu-ray there, and I just sat there, and I, I was thinking, should I get this? I don't know if I have it on Blu-ray, and 
I just picked it up for a buck. And, and uh, when I posted it on Facebook, someone came back and said, yeah, that Blu-ray's been out of print for a while. Uh, it's going for about 40, 50 bucks on eBay. So I got it for like a buck, buck 50. And I'm glad I did because it's in really good shape. Um, and that's a great, great movie. So uh, anytime you can get something that uh, has been out of print and, and uh, uh, that, that's a, a definite, definite plus. So yay for me. Got that. And then I got four DVDs. Uh, I don't really collect DVDs too much unless they're like a quarter, 40 cents, you know, and there's something that I really, really like. Like I, I picked up um, today. The it's, it looks like it's the original packaging, the original DVD from when Labyrinth came out um, back in what 1980. I don't. I'm not sure. I'm looking now. It says 1994 is when this um, DVD came out, and I haven't seen this DVD packaging before, and I already have a Blu-ray of it. But uh, it says uh, includes Inside the Labyrinth making of documentary. Uh, so I'm, I'm uh, just as a collector, interested to see that. I always uh, enjoyed uh, the Henson puppets and all of that. And by the way, I, I do recommend that new um, Dark Crystal uh, show on, um, on Netflix. So check that out. I got <laughs> Ernest Scared Stupid. Um, just being in the Halloween mood, just figured I would give this one a go. I don't think I've ever seen Ernest Scared Stupid, and I'm not going to pay money for it like as a blu-ray but i believe this ended up being 30 or 40 cents and it's in perfect condition so i got that i got an uh, a copy a dvd copy of practical magic okay it's not horror but it's kind of like a, a, a witchcraft movie and uh, i'm looking forward to that because i've never seen that as well so I'm a big Sandra Bullock, uh, Nicole uh, Kidman fan. So I'm going to check that out. And then the last thing that I got, I've never seen this on Blu-ray or never seen it on Blu-ray, never seen it on DVD. And it's, uh, it's one of Tom Hanks uh, first like major movies from 1982. It's called Mazes and Monsters. It's a 1982 made for TV movie that, uh, also stars Chris Makepeace. Uh, if, I don't know if you remember him. He was in a, a, a early 80s movie called uh, My Bodyguard. That was a great movie. But I guess they are playing uh, a Mazes and Monsters game, sort of similar to Dungeons and Dragons. And there are three college students, and they decide to move their, their board game into the local legendary cavern. So I can only imagine what happens as they go into the cavern and play this game. Uh, I've heard that this is kind of like a anti um, Dungeons and Dragons. You know, I don't know if you remember back in the day when Dungeons and Dragons came out. Oh, it was a big stink. Oh, it's it's witchcraft. It's Satanism. It's bad stuff. You don't let your kids do it, and they'll get possessed and all that. So, I'm not sure what this movie is, but the fact that it is a Tom Hanks movie uh, at the very very beginning of his career uh, would made it completely worth it and it's not beat up it's in a great great condition and the uh the sleeve looks great the the dvd is no scratches 
So I am, uh, I'm, I'm almost as happy with that as I am for Near Dark. But I'm sure this movie is not very good. Don't get me wrong. This is not like, oh, wow, this is a, a spectacular movie. It's just the fact that it's Tom Hanks's, one of Tom Hanks's first ones that, um, uh, that gets me. So, all right. Well, that, that is basically going to be it. Uh, drop me a line and let me know some of the coolest pickups in pawn shops that you have ever gotten. Uh, you can check it out. Our, our email at, uh, ask the horror cast, uh, at gmail.com. And if you, uh, if you say something about a, a great find that you've had, uh, on the email at a pawn shop, then basically the next time I do one of these, I'll shout you out. I'll read that email and we can get that uh, uh, the camaraderie going because I know there's a lot of people out there that love this uh, collecting as much as I do and finding these diamonds in the rough. So that's it for now. Uh, thanks for joining me for these just few minutes uh, to chat about what I found. And uh, we're all killer, no filler at the horror cast. Stay scared. <laughs>